Chapter 17 A Sluggish Memory Late in the afternoon, a few days after New Year, Harry, Ron, and Ginny lined up beside the kitchen fire to return to Hogwarts. The Ministry had arranged this one-off connection to the flu network to return students quickly and safely to the school. Only Mrs. Weasley was there to say goodbye, as Mr. Weasley, Fred, George, Bill, and Fleur were all at work. Mrs. Weasley dissolved into tears at the moment of parting. Admittedly, it took very little to set her off lately. She had been crying on and off ever since Percy had stormed from the house on Christmas Day, with his glasses splattered with mashed parsnip, for which Fred, George, and Ginny all claim credit. Don't cry, Mum, said Ginny, patting her on the back, as Mrs. Weasley sobbed into her shoulder. It's okay. Yeah, don't worry about us said Ron, permitting his mother to plant a very wet kiss on his cheek. What about Percy? He's such a prat. It's not really a loss, is it? Mrs. Weasley sobbed harder than ever as she enfolded Harry in her arms. Promise me you'll look after yourself. Stay out of trouble. I always do, Mrs. Weasley, said Harry. I like a quiet life, you know me. She gave a watery chuckle and stood back. Be good then, all of you. Harry stepped into the emerald fire and shouted, Hogwarts! He had one last fleeting view of the Weasley's kitchen and Mrs. Weasley's tearful face before the flames engulfed him. Spinning very fast, he caught blurred glimpses of other wizarding rooms, which were whipped out of sight before he could get a proper look. Then he was slowing down, finally stopping squarely in the fireplace in Professor McGonagall's office. She barely glanced up from her work as he clambered out over the grate. Evening, Potter. Try not to get too much ash on the carpet. No, Professor. Harry straightened his glasses and flattened his hair as Ron came spinning into view. When Ginny had arrived, all three of them trooped out of McGonagall's office and off toward Gryffindor Tower. Harry glanced out of the corridor windows as they passed. The sun was already sinking over grounds carpeted in deeper snow than had lain over the burrow garden. In the distance, he could see Hagrid feeding Buckbeak in front of his cabin. Baubles, said Ron confidently when they reached the fat lady, who was looking rather paler than usual, and winced at his loud voice. No, she said. What do you mean, no? There is a new password, she said, and please don't shout. But we've been away. How are we supposed to? Harry, Ginny... Hermione was hurrying toward them, very pink-faced and wearing a cloak, hat, and gloves. I got back a couple of hours ago. I've just been down to visit Hagrid and Buck, I mean, Witherwings, she said breathlessly. Did you have a good Christmas? Yeah, said Ron at once. Pretty eventful. Rufus, Scrim. I've got something for you, Harry, said Hermione, neither looking at Ron nor giving any sign that she had heard him. Oh, hang on. Password. Abstinence, precisely, said the fat lady in a feeble voice and swung forward to reveal the portrait hall. What's up with her? asked Harry. Overindulged over Christmas, apparently, said Hermione, rolling her eyes as she led the way into the packed common room. She and her friend Violet drank their way through all the wine in that picture of drunk monks down by the charms corridor. Anyway, she rummaged in her pocket for a moment, then pulled out a scroll of parchment with Dumbledore's writing on it. Great, 
said Harry, unrolling it at once to discover that his next lesson with Dumbledore was scheduled for the following night. I've got loads to tell him, and you. Let's sit down. But at that moment, there was a loud squeal of, one, one, and Lavender Brown came hurtling out of nowhere and flung herself into Ron's arms. Several onlookers sniggered. Hermione gave a tinkling laugh and said, there's a table over there. Coming, Ginny. No, thanks. I said I'd meet Dean, said Ginny, though Harry could not help noticing that she did not sound very enthusiastic. Leaving Ron and Lavender locked in a kind of vertical wrestling match, Harry led Hermione over to the spare table. So, how was your Christmas? Oh, fine, she shrugged. Nothing special. How was it at one ones? I'll tell you in a minute, said Harry. Look, Hermione, can't you... No, I can't, she said flatly, so don't even ask. I thought maybe, you know, over Christmas. It was the fat lady who drank a vat of 500-year-old wine, Harry, not me. So, what was this important news you wanted to tell me? She looked too fierce to argue with at that moment, so Harry dropped the subject of Ron and recounted all that he had overheard between Malfoy and Snape. When he had finished, Hermione sat in thought for a moment and then said, Don't you think... He was pretending to offer help so that he could trick Malfoy into telling him what he's doing. Well, yes, said Hermione. Ron's dad and Lupin think so, Harry said grudgingly. But this definitely proves Malfoy's planning something, you can't deny that. No, I can't, she answered slowly. And he's acting on Voldemort's orders, just like I said. Hmm. Did either of them actually mention Voldemort's name? Harry frowned, trying to remember. I'm not sure. Snape definitely said, your master, and who else would that be? I don't know, said Hermione, biting her lip. Maybe his father? She stared across the room, apparently lost in thought, not even noticing Lavender tickling Ron. How's Lupin? Not great, said Harry, and he told her all about Lupin's mission among the werewolves and the difficulties he was facing. Have you heard of this Fenrir Greyback? Yes, I have, said Hermione, sounding startled. And so have you, Harry. When? History of magic? You know full well I never listened. No, no, not history of magic. Malfoy threatened Borgin with him, said Hermione. Back in Nocturne Alley, don't you remember? He told Borgin that Greyback was an old family friend and that he'd be checking up on Borgin's progress. Harry gaped at her. I forgot. But this proves Malfoy's a Death Eater. How else could he be in contact with Greyback and telling him what to do? It is pretty suspicious, breathed Hermione, unless... Oh, come on, said Harry in exasperation. You can't get round this one. Well... There is the possibility it was an empty threat. You're unbelievable, you are, said Harry, shaking his head. We'll see who's right. You'll be eating your words, Hermione, just like the Ministry. Oh, yeah, I had a row with Rufus Scrimjaw as well. And the rest of the evening passed amicably with both of them abusing the Minister of Magic, for Hermione, like Ron, thought that after all the Ministry had put Harry through the previous year, they had a great deal of nerve asking him for help now. The new term started next morning with a pleasant surprise for the sixth years. 
A large sign had been pinned to the common room notice boards overnight. Apparition Lessons If you are 17 years of age, or will turn 17 on or before the 31st August next, you are eligible for a 12-week course of apparition lessons from a Ministry of Magic apparition instructor. Please sign below if you would like to participate. Cost 12 galleons. Harry and Ron joined the crowd that was jostling around the notice and taking it in turns to write their names at the bottom. Ron was just taking out his quill to sign after Hermione when Lavender crept up behind him, slipped her hands over his eyes and trilled, Guess who? One, one. Harry turned to see Hermione stalking off. He caught up with her, having no wish to stay behind with Ron and Lavender, but to his surprise, Ron caught up with them only a little way beyond the portrait hall, his ears bright red and his expression disgruntled. Without a word, Hermione sped up to walk with Neville. So, apparition, said Ron, his tone making it perfectly plain that Harry was not to mention what had just happened. Should be a laugh, eh? I dunno, said Harry. Maybe it's better when you do it yourself. I didn't enjoy it much when Dumbledore took me along for the ride. I forgot you'd already done it. I'd better pass my test first time, said Ron, looking anxious. Fred and George did. Charlie failed, though, didn't he? Yeah, but Charlie's bigger than me. Ron held his arms out from his body as though he was a gorilla. So Fred and George didn't go on about it much, not to his face anyway. When can we take the actual test? Soon as we're seventeen. That's only March for me. Yeah, but you wouldn't be able to apparate in here. Not in the castle. Not the point, is it? Everyone would know I could apparate if I wanted. Ron was not the only one to be excited at the prospect of apparition. All that day there was much talk about the forthcoming lessons. A great deal of store was set by being able to vanish and reappear at will. How cool will it be when we can just... Seamus clicked his fingers to indicate disappearance. Me cousin Fergus does it just to annoy me. You wait till I can do it back. He'll never have another peaceful moment. Lost in visions of this happy prospect, he flicked his wand a little too enthusiastically, so that instead of producing the fountain of pure water that was the object of today's charms lesson, he let out a hose-like jet that ricocheted off the ceiling and knocked Professor Flitwick flat on his face. Harry's already apparated, Ron told a slightly abashed Seamus, after Professor Flitwick had dried himself off with a wave of his wand and set Seamus lines, I am a wizard, not a baboon brandishing a stick. Dumb, uh, someone took him. Signed a long apparition, you know. Whoa, whispered Seamus, and he, Dean, and Neville put their heads a little closer to hear what apparition felt like. For the rest of the day, Harry was besieged with requests from the other sixth years to describe the sensation of apparition. All of them seemed awed, rather than put off, when he told them how uncomfortable it was, and he was still answering detailed questions at ten to eight that evening, when he was forced to lie and say that he needed to return a book to the library so as to escape in time for his lesson with Dumbledore. The lamps in Dumbledore's office were lit, the portraits of previous headmasters were snoring gently in their frames, and the pensive was ready upon the desk once more. Dumbledore's hands lay on either side of it, the right one as blackened and burnt-looking as ever. It did not seem to have healed at all, and Harry wondered, for perhaps the hundredth time, what had caused such a distinctive injury, but did not ask. 
Dumbledore had said that he would know eventually, and there was, in any case, another subject he wanted to discuss. But before Harry could say anything about Snape and Malfoy, Dumbledore spoke. I hear that you met the Minister of Magic over Christmas. Yes, said Harry. He's not very happy with me. No, sighed Dumbledore. He is not very happy with me, either. We must try not to sink beneath our anguish, Harry, but battle on, Harry grinned. He wanted me to tell the wizarding community that the Ministry's doing a wonderful job. Dumbledore smiled. It was Fudge's idea originally, you know. During his last days in office, when he was trying desperately to cling to his post, he sought a meeting with you, hoping that you would give him your support. After everything Fudge did last year, said Harry angrily, after Umbridge? I told Cornelius there was no chance of it, but the idea did not die when he left office. Within hours of Scrimgeour's appointment, we met, and he demanded that I arrange a meeting with you. So that's why you argued, Harry blurted out. It was in the Daily Prophet. The Prophet is bound to report the truth, occasionally, said Dumbledore, if only accidentally. Yes, that was why we argued. Well, it appears that Rufus found a way to corner you at last. He accused me of being Dumbledore's man through and through. How very rude of him. I told him I was. Dumbledore opened his mouth to speak, and then closed it again. Behind Harry, Fawkes the phoenix let out a low, soft, musical cry. To Harry's intense embarrassment, he suddenly realized that Dumbledore's bright blue eyes looked rather watery, and stared hastily at his own knees. When Dumbledore spoke, however, his voice was quite steady. I am very touched, Harry. Scrimgeour wanted to know where you go when you're not at Hogwarts, said Harry, still looking fixedly at his knees. Yes, he is very nosy about that, said Dumbledore, now sounding cheerful, and Harry thought it safe to look up again. He has even attempted to have me followed. Amusing, really. He set Dawlish to tail me. It wasn't kind. I have already been forced to jinx Dawlish once. I did it again with the greatest regret. So they still don't know where you go, asked Harry, hoping for more information on this intriguing subject. But Dumbledore merely smiled over the top of his half-moon spectacles. No, they don't, and the time is not quite right for you to know either. Now, I suggest we press on, unless there's anything else. There is, actually, sir, said Harry. It's about Malfoy and Snape. Professor Snape, Harry. Yes, sir. I overheard them during Professor Slughorn's party. Well, I followed them, actually. Dumbledore listened to Harry's story with an impassive face. When Harry had finished, he did not speak for a few moments, then said, Thank you for telling me this, Harry. But I suggest that you put it out of your mind. I do not think that it is of great importance. Not of great importance? repeated Harry incredulously. Professor, did you understand? Yes, Harry, blessed as I am with extraordinary brain power, I understood everything you told me, said Dumbledore a little sharply. I think you might even consider the possibility that I understood more than you did. Again, I am glad that you have confided in me, but let me reassure you that you have not told me anything that causes me disquiet.
Harry sat in seething silence, glaring at Dumbledore. What was going on? Did this mean that Dumbledore had indeed ordered Snape to find out what Malfoy was doing, in which case he had already heard everything Harry had just told him from Snape? Or was he really worried by what he had heard, but pretending not to be? So, sir, said Harry in what he hoped was a polite, calm voice, you definitely still trust... I have been tolerant enough to answer that question already, said Dumbledore, but he did not sound very tolerant anymore. My answer has not changed. I should think not, said a snide voice. Phineas Nigellus was evidently only pretending to be asleep. Dumbledore ignored him. And now, Harry, I must insist that we press on. I have more important things to discuss with you this evening. Harry sat there feeling mutinous. How would it be if he refused to permit the change of subject, if he insisted upon arguing the case against Malfoy? As though he had read Harry's mind, Dumbledore shook his head. Ah, Harry, how often this happens, even between the best of friends. Each of us believes that what he has to say is much more important than anything the other might have to contribute. I don't think what you've got to say is unimportant, sir, said Harry stiffly. Well, you are quite right, because it is not, said Dumbledore briskly. I have two more memories to show you this evening, both obtained with enormous difficulty, and the second of them is, I think, the most important I have collected. Harry did not say anything to this. He still felt angry at the reception his confidences had received, but could not see what was to be gained by arguing further. So, said Dumbledore in a ringing voice, we meet this evening to continue the tale of Tom Riddle, whom we left last lesson poised on the threshold of his years at Hogwarts. You will remember how excited he was to hear that he was a wizard, that he refused my company on a trip to Diagon Alley, and that I, in turn, warned him against continued thievery when he arrived at school. Well, the start of the school year arrived, and with it came Tom Riddle, a quiet boy in his second-hand robes, who lined up with the other first years to be sorted. He was placed in Slytherin House almost the moment that the sorting hat touched his head, continued Dumbledore, waving his blackened hand toward the shelf over his head where the sorting hat sat, ancient and unmoving. How soon Riddle learned that the famous founder of the house could talk to snakes? I do not know. Perhaps that very evening. The knowledge can only have excited him and increased his sense of self-importance. However, if he was frightening or impressing fellow Slytherins with displays of parcel tongue in their common room, no hint of it reached the staff. He showed no sign of outward arrogance or aggression at all. As an unusually talented and very good-looking orphan, he naturally drew attention and sympathy from the staff almost from the moment of his arrival. He seemed polite, quiet, and thirsty for knowledge. Nearly all were most favorably impressed by him. Didn't you tell them, sir, what he'd been like when you met him at the orphanage? asked Harry. No, I did not. Though he had shown no hint of remorse, it was possible that he felt sorry for how he had behaved before and was resolved to turn over a fresh leaf. I chose to give him that chance. Dumbledore paused and looked inquiringly at Harry, who had opened his mouth to speak. Here again was Dumbledore's tendency to trust people in spite of overwhelming evidence that they did not deserve it. But then Harry remembered something. 
But you didn't really trust him, sir, did you? He told me the riddle who came out of that diary said, Dumbledore never seemed to like me as much as the other teachers did. Let us say that I did not take it for granted that he was trustworthy, said Dumbledore. I had, as I have already indicated, resolved to keep a close eye upon him, and so I did. I cannot pretend that I gleaned a great deal from my observations at first. He was very guarded with me. He felt, I am sure, that in the thrill of discovering his true identity, he had told me a little too much. He was careful never to reveal as much again, but he could not take back what he had let slip in his excitement, nor what Mrs. Cole had confided in me. However, he had the sense never to try and charm me, as he charmed so many of my colleagues. As he moved up the school, he gathered about him a group of dedicated friends. I call them that for want of a better term, although, as I have already indicated, Riddle undoubtedly felt no affection for any of them. This group had a kind of dark glamour within the castle. They were a motley collection, a mixture of the weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and the thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. In other words, they were the forerunners of the Death Eaters, and indeed some of them became the first Death Eaters after leaving Hogwarts. Rigidly controlled by Riddle, they were never detected in open wrongdoing, although their seven years at Hogwarts were marked by a number of nasty incidents to which they were never satisfactorily linked, the most serious of which was, of course, the opening of the Chamber of Secrets, which resulted in the death of a girl. As you know, Hagrid was wrongly accused of that crime. I have not been able to find many memories of Riddle at Hogwarts, said Dumbledore, placing his withered hand on the pensive. Few who knew him then are prepared to talk about him. They are too terrified. What I know, I found out after he had left Hogwarts, after much painstaking effort, after tracing those few who could be tricked into speaking, after searching old records and questioning muggle and wizard witnesses alike. Those whom I could persuade to talk told me that Riddle was obsessed with his parentage. This is understandable, of course. He had grown up in an orphanage and naturally wished to know how he came to be there. It seems that he searched in vain for some trace of Tom Riddle Sr. on the shields in the trophy room, on the lists of prefects in the old school records, even in the books of wizarding history. Finally, he was forced to accept that his father had never set foot in Hogwarts. I believe that it was then that he dropped the name forever, assumed the identity of Lord Voldemort, and began his investigations into his previously despised mother's family, the woman whom, you will remember, he had thought could not be a witch if she had succumbed to the shameful human weakness of death. All he had to go upon was the single name, Marvolo, which he knew from those who ran the orphanage had been his mother's father's name. Finally, after painstaking research through old books of wizarding families, he discovered the existence of Slytherin's surviving line. In the summer of his sixteenth year, he left the orphanage to which he returned annually and set off to find his gaunt relatives. And now, Harry, if you will stand... Dumbledore rose, and Harry saw that he was again holding a small crystal bottle filled with swirling pearly memory. 
I was very lucky to collect this, he said, as he poured the gleaming mass into the pensive, as you will understand when we have experienced it. Shall we? Harry stepped up to the stone basin and bowed obediently until his face sank through the surface of the memory. He felt the familiar sensation of falling through nothingness, and then landed upon a dirty stone floor in almost total darkness. It took him several seconds to recognize the place by which time Dumbledore had landed beside him. The Gaunt's house was now more indescribably filthy than anywhere Harry had ever seen. The ceiling was thick with cobwebs, the floor coated in grime. Moldy and rotting food lay upon the table amidst a mass of crusted pots. The only light came from a single guttering candle placed at the feet of a man with hair and beard so overgrown Harry could see neither eyes nor mouth. He was slumped in an armchair by the fire, and Harry wondered for a moment whether he was dead. But then there came a loud knock on the door, and the man jerked awake, raising a wand in his right hand and a short knife in his left. The door creaked open. There, on the threshold, holding an old-fashioned lamp, stood a boy Harry recognized at once, tall, pale, dark-haired, and handsome, the teenage Voldemort. Voldemort's eyes moved slowly around the hovel and then found the man in the armchair. For a few seconds they looked at each other, then the man staggered upright, the many empty bottles at his feet clattering and tinkling across the room. You! he bellowed. You! And he hurtled drunkenly at Riddle, wand and knife held aloft. Stop! Riddle spoke in parcel tongue. The man skidded into the table, sending moldy pots crashing to the floor. He stared at Riddle. There was a long silence while they contemplated each other. The man broke it. You speak it? Yes, I speak it, said Riddle. He moved forward into the room, allowing the door to swing shut behind him. Harry could not help but feel a resentful admiration for Voldemort's complete lack of fear. His face merely expressed disgust and, perhaps, disappointment. Where is Marvolo? he asked. Dead, said the other. Died years ago, didn't he? Riddle frowned. Who are you, then? I'm Morfin, ain't I? Marvolo's son? Course I am, then. Morfin pushed the hair out of his dirty face, the better to see Riddle and Harry saw that he wore Marvolo's black-stoned ring on his right hand. I thought you was that muggle, whispered Morphine. You look mighty like that muggle. What muggle? said Riddle sharply. That muggle what my sister took a fancy to. That muggle what lives in the big house over the way, said Morphine, and he spat unexpectedly upon the floor between them. You look right like him, Riddle, but he's older now, isn't he? He's older than you. Now I think on it. Morfin looked slightly dazed and swayed a little, still clutching the edge of the table for support. He come back, see? He added stupidly. Voldemort was gazing at Morfin as though appraising his possibilities. Now he moved a little closer and said, Riddle came back. Ah, he left her and serve her right, marrying filth, said Morfin, spitting on the floor again. Robbed us, mine, before she ran off. Where's the locket, eh? Where's Slytherin's locket? Voldemort did not answer. Morfin was working himself into a rage again. He brandished his knife and shouted, Dishonored us, she did, that little slut! 
And who are you coming here and asking questions about all that? It's over, isn't it? It's over. He looked away, staggering slightly, and Voldemort moved forward. As he did so, an unnatural darkness fell, extinguishing Voldemort's lamp and Morphin's candle, extinguishing everything. Dumbledore's fingers closed tightly around Harry's arm, and they were soaring back into the present again. The soft golden light in Dumbledore's office seemed to dazzle Harry's eyes after that impenetrable darkness. Is that all? said Harry at once. Why did it go dark? What happened? Because Morphin could not remember anything from that point onward, said Dumbledore, gesturing Harry back into his seat. When he awoke next morning, he was lying on the floor, quite alone. Marvolo's ring had gone. Meanwhile, in the village of Little Hangleton, a maid was running along the high street, screaming that there were three bodies lying in the drawing room of the big house. Tom Riddle Sr. and his mother and father. The Muggle authorities were perplexed. As far as I am aware, they do not know to this day how the Riddles died, for the Avada Kedavra curse does not usually leave any sign of damage. The exception sits before me, Dumbledore added with a nod to Harry's scar. The Ministry, on the other hand, knew at once that this was a wizard's murder. They also knew that a convicted muggle hater lived across the valley from the Riddle House. A muggle hater who had already been imprisoned once for attacking one of the murdered people. So the Ministry called upon Morphin. They did not need to question him. To use Veritas Serum or Legilimency. He admitted to the murder on the spot, giving details only the murderer could know. He was proud, he said, to have killed the Muggles, had been awaiting his chance all these years. He handed over his wand, which was proved at once to have been used to kill the Riddles. And he permitted himself to be led off to Azkaban without a fight. All that disturbed him was the fact that his father's ring had disappeared. He'll kill me for losing it, he told his captors over and over again. He'll kill me for losing his ring. And that, apparently, was all he ever said again. He lived out the remainder of his life in Azkaban, lamenting the loss of Marvolo's last heirloom, and is buried beside the prison, alongside the other poor souls who have expired within its walls. So Voldemort stole Morphin's wand and used it, said Harry, sitting up straight. That's right, said Dumbledore. We have no memories to show us this, but I think we can be fairly sure what happened. Voldemort stupefied his uncle, took his wand, and proceeded across the valley to the big house over the way. There he murdered the muggle man who had abandoned his witch mother, and, for good measure, his muggle grandparents, thus obliterating the last of the unworthy riddle line, and revenging himself upon the father who never wanted him. Then he returned to the gaunt hovel performed the complex bit of magic that would implant a false memory in his uncle's mind, laid Morphin's wand beside its unconscious owner, pocketed the ancient ring he wore, and departed. And Morphin never realized he hadn't done it. Never, said Dumbledore. He gave, as I say, a full and boastful confession. But he had this real memory in him all the time. Yes, but it took a great deal of skilled legitimacy to coax it out of him, said Dumbledore. And why should anybody delve further into Morphin's mind when he had already confessed to the crime? 
However, I was able to secure a visit to Morphin in the last weeks of his life, by which time I was attempting to discover as much as I could about Voldemort's past. I extracted this memory with difficulty. When I saw what it contained, I attempted to use it to secure Morphin's release from Azkaban. Before the Ministry reached their decision, however, Morphin had died. But how come the Ministry didn't realize that Voldemort had done all that to Morphin? Harry asked angrily. He was underage at the time, wasn't he? I thought they could detect underage magic. You are quite right. They can detect magic, but not the perpetrator. You will remember that you were blamed by the Ministry for the hover charm that was, in fact, cast by Dobby, growled Harry. This injustice still rankled. So, if you're underage and you do magic inside an adult witch or wizard's house, the Ministry won't know? They will certainly be unable to tell who performed the magic, said Dumbledore, smiling slightly at the look of great indignation on Harry's face. They rely on witch and wizard parents to enforce their offspring's obedience while within their walls. Well, that's rubbish, snapped Harry. Look what happened here. Look what happened to Morphin. I agree, said Dumbledore. Whatever Morphin was, he did not deserve to die as he did. Blamed for murders he had not committed. But it is getting late, and I want you to see this other memory before we part. Dumbledore took from an inside pocket another crystal vial, and Harry fell silent at once, remembering that Dumbledore had said it was the most important one he had collected. Harry noticed that the contents proved difficult to empty into the pensive, as though they had congealed slightly. Did memories go bad? This will not take long, said Dumbledore when he had finally emptied the vial. We shall be back before you know it. Once more into the pensive, then and Harry fell again through the silver surface, landing this time right in front of a man he recognized at once. It was a much younger Horace Slughorn. Harry was so used to him bald that he found the sight of Slughorn with thick, shiny, straw-colored hair quite disconcerting. It looked as though he had had his head thatched, though there was already a shiny galleon-sized bald patch on his crown. His mustache, less massive than it was these days, was gingery blonde. He was not quite as rotund as the slughorn Harry knew, though the golden buttons on his richly embroidered waistcoat were taking a fair amount of strain. His little feet resting upon a velvet poof, he was sitting well back in a comfortable winged armchair, one hand grasping a small glass of wine, the other searching through a box of crystallized pineapple. Harry looked around as Dumbledore appeared beside him and saw that they were standing in Slughorn's office. Half a dozen boys were sitting around Slughorn, all on harder or lower seats than his, and all in their mid-teens. Harry recognized Voldemort at once. His was the most handsome face, and he looked the most relaxed of all the boys. His right hand lay negligently upon the arm of his chair. With a jolt, Harry saw that he was wearing Marvolo's gold and black ring. He had already killed his father. Sir... Is it true that Professor Merrythought is retiring? He asked. Tom, Tom, if I knew, I couldn't tell you, said Slughorn, wagging a reproving, sugar-covered finger at Riddle, though ruining the effect slightly by winking. I must say, I'd like to know where you get your information, boy. More knowledgeable than half the staff you are. Riddle smiled. The other boys laughed and cast him admiring looks. 
What with your uncanny ability to know things you shouldn't and your careful flattery of the people who matter, thank you for the pineapple, by the way. You're quite right. It is my favorite. As several of the boys tittered, something very odd happened. The whole room was suddenly filled with a thick white fog, so that Harry could see nothing but the face of Dumbledore, who was standing beside him. Then Slughorn's voice rang out through the mist, unnaturally loudly. You'll go wrong, boy! Mark my words! The fog cleared as suddenly as it had appeared, and yet nobody made any allusion to it, nor did anybody look as though anything unusual had just happened. Bewildered, Harry looked around as a small golden clock standing upon Slughorn's desk chimed eleven o'clock. Good gracious, is it that time already? said Slughorn. You'd better get going, boys, or we'll all be in trouble. Lestrange, I want your essay by tomorrow or its detention. Same goes for you, Avery. Slughorn pulled himself out of his armchair and carried his empty glass over to his desk as the boys filed out. Voldemort, however, stayed behind. Harry could tell he had dawdled deliberately, wanting to be the last in the room with Slughorn. Look sharp, Tom, said Slughorn, turning around and finding him still present. You don't want to be caught out of bed out of hours? And you, a prefect? Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away then, my boy, ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about about Horcruxes. And it happened all over again. The dense fog filled the room so that Harry could not see Slughorn or Voldemort at all, only Dumbledore smiling serenely beside him. Then Slughorn's voice boomed out again, just as it had done before. I don't know anything about Horcruxes, and I wouldn't tell you if I did. Now, get out of here at once, and don't let me catch you mentioning them again. Well, that's that said Dumbledore placidly beside Harry. Time to go. And Harry's feet left the floor to fall seconds later back onto the rug in front of Dumbledore's desk. That's all there is, said Harry blankly. Dumbledore had said that this was the most important memory of all, but he could not see what was so significant about it. Admittedly, the fog and the fact that nobody seemed to have noticed it was odd, but other than that, Nothing seemed to have happened, except that Voldemort had asked a question and failed to get an answer. As you might have noticed, said Dumbledore, reseating himself behind his desk, that memory has been tampered with. Tampered with? repeated Harry, sitting back down too. Certainly, said Dumbledore. Professor Slughorn has meddled with his own recollections. But why would he do that? Because I think he is ashamed of what he remembers, said Dumbledore. He has tried to rework the memory to show himself in a better light, obliterating those parts which he does not wish me to see. It is, as you will have noticed, very crudely done. And that is all to the good, for it shows that the true memory is still there beneath the alterations. And so, for the first time, I am giving you homework, Harry. It will be your job to persuade Professor Slughorn to divulge the real memory, which will undoubtedly be our most crucial piece of information of all. Harry stared at him. But surely, sir, he said, keeping his voice as respectful as possible, you don't need me. You could use legitimacy or veritas serum. Professor Slughorn is an extremely able wizard who will be expecting both, said Dumbledore. 
He is much more accomplished at occlumency than poor Morphin Gaunt, and I would be astonished if he has not carried an antidote to Veritas Serum with him ever since I coerced him into giving me this travesty of a recollection. No, I think it would be foolish to attempt to wrest the truth from Professor Slughorn by force, and might do much more harm than good. I do not wish him to leave Hogwarts, however, he has his weaknesses like the rest of us, and I believe that you are the one person who might be able to penetrate his defenses. It is most important that we secure the true memory, Harry. How important? We will only know when we have seen the real thing, so... Good luck, and good night. A little taken aback by the abrupt dismissal, Harry got to his feet quickly. Good night, sir. As he closed the study door behind him, he distinctly heard Phineas Nigellus say, I can't see why the boy should be able to do it better than you, Dumbledore. I wouldn't expect you to, Phineas, replied Dumbledore, and Fawkes gave another low musical cry. Chapter 18 Birthday Surprises The next day, Harry confided in both Ron and Hermione the task that Dumbledore had set him, though separately, for Hermione still refused to remain in Ron's presence longer than it took to give him a contemptuous look. Ron thought that Harry was unlikely to have any trouble with Slughorn at all. He loved you, he said over breakfast, waving an airy forkful of fried egg. Won't refuse you anything, will he? Not his little potions, Prince. Just hang back after class this afternoon and ask him. Hermione, however, took a gloomier view. He must be determined to hide what really happened if Dumbledore couldn't get it out of him, she said in a low voice as they stood in the deserted, snowy courtyard at break. Horcruxes. Horcruxes? I've never even heard of them. You haven't? Harry was disappointed. He had hoped that Hermione might be able to give him a clue as to what Horcruxes were. They must be really advanced dark magic, or why would Voldemort have wanted to know about them? I think it's going to be difficult to get the information, Harry. You'll have to be very careful about how you approach Slughorn. Think out a strategy. Ron reckons I should just hang back after potions this afternoon. Oh, well, if one one thinks that, you'd better do it, she said. Flaring up at once. After all, when has one one's judgment ever been faulty? Hermione, can't you? No, she said angrily and stormed away, leaving Harry alone and ankle deep in snow. Potion's lessons were uncomfortable enough these days, seeing as Harry, Ron, and Hermione had to share a desk. Today, Hermione moved her cauldron around the table so that she was close to Ernie and ignored both Harry and Ron. What have you done? Ron muttered to Harry, looking at Hermione's haughty profile. But before Harry could answer, Slughorn was calling for silence from the front of the room. Settle down, settle down, please. Quickly now, lots of work to get through this afternoon. Golpalot's third law. Who can tell me but Miss Granger can, of course? Hermione recited at top speed. Gopalot's third law states that the antidote for a blended poison will be equal to more than the sum of the antidotes for each of the separate components. Precisely, beamed Slughorn. Ten points for Gryffindor. Now, if we accept Gopalot's third law as true... 
Harry was going to have to take Slughorn's word for it that Golpalut's third law was true, because he had not understood any of it. Nobody, apart from Hermione, seemed to be following what Slughorn said next, either. Which means, of course, that assuming we have achieved correct identification of the potion's ingredients by Scarpin's revealer spell, our primary aim is not the relatively simple one of selecting antidotes to those ingredients in and of themselves, but to find that added component that will, by an almost alchemical process, transform these disparate elements. Ron was sitting beside Harry with his mouth half open, doodling absently on his new copy of Advanced Potion Making. Ron kept forgetting that he could no longer rely on Hermione to help him out of trouble when he failed to grasp what was going on. And so, finished Slughorn, I want each of you to come and take one of these vials from my desk. You are to create an antidote for the poison within it before the end of the lesson. Good luck, and don't forget your protective gloves. Hermione had left her stool and was halfway towards Slughorn's desk before the rest of the class had realized it was time to move, and by the time Harry, Ron, and Ernie returned to the table, she had already tipped the contents of her vial into her cauldron and was kindling a fire underneath it. It's a shame that the prince won't be able to help you much with this, Harry, she said brightly as she straightened up. You have to understand the principles involved this time. No shortcuts or cheats. Annoyed, Harry uncorked the poison he had taken from Slughorn's desk, which was a garish shade of pink, tipped it into his cauldron, and lit a fire underneath it. He did not have the faintest idea what he was supposed to do next. He glanced around at Ron, who was now standing there looking rather gormless, having copied everything Harry had done. You sure the prince hasn't got any tips? Ron muttered to Harry. Harry pulled out his trusty copy of Advanced Potion Making and turned to the chapter on antidotes. There was Gulpalot's third law, stated word for word as Hermione had recited it, but not a single illuminating note in the prince's hand to explain what it meant. Apparently the prince, like Hermione, had had no difficulty understanding it. Nothing, said Harry gloomily. Hermione was now waving her wand enthusiastically over her cauldron. Unfortunately, they could not copy the spell she was doing because she was now so good at non-verbal incantations that she did not need to say the words aloud. Ernie Macmillan, however, was muttering, Specialis Revelio, over his cauldron, which sounded impressive, so Harry and Ron hastened to imitate him. It took Harry only five minutes to realize that his reputation as the best potion maker in the class was crashing around his ears. Slughorn had peered hopefully into his cauldron on his first circuit of the dungeon, preparing to exclaim in delight, as he usually did, and instead had withdrawn his head hastily, coughing, as the smell of bad eggs overwhelmed him. Hermione's expression could not have been any smugger. She had loathed being outperformed in every potions class. She was now decanting the mysteriously separated ingredients of her poison into ten different crystal vials. More to avoid watching this irritating sight than anything else, Harry bent over the half-blood prince's book and turned a few pages with unnecessary force. And there it was, scrawled right across a long list of antidotes. Just shove a bezoar down their throats. Harry stared at these words for a moment. 
Hadn't he once long ago heard of Bezoars? Hadn't Snape mentioned them in their first ever potions lesson? A stone taken from the stomach of a goat, which will protect from most poisons. It was not an answer to the Golpalot problem, and had Snape still been their teacher, Harry would not have dared do it. But this was a moment for desperate measures. He hastened toward the store cupboard and rummaged within it, pushing aside unicorn horns and tangles of dried herbs until he found at the very back a small cardboard box on which had been scribbled the word, Bezoars. He opened the box just as Slughorn called, Two minutes left, everyone! Inside were half a dozen shriveled brown objects, looking more like dried-up kidneys than real stones. Harry seized one, put the box back in the cupboard, and hurried back to his cauldron. Time's up, called Slughorn genially. Well, let's see how you've done, please. What have you got for me? Slowly Slughorn moved around the room, examining the various antidotes. Nobody had finished the task, although Hermione was trying to cram a few more ingredients into her bottle before Slughorn reached her. Ron had given up completely and was merely trying to avoid breathing in the putrid fumes issuing from his cauldron. Harry stood there, waiting, the bezoar clutched in his slightly sweaty hand. Slughorn reached their table at last. He sniffed Ernie's potion and passed on to Ron's with a grimace. He did not linger over Ron's cauldron, but backed away swiftly, retching slightly. And you, Harry, he said, what have you got to show me? Harry held out his hand, the bezoar sitting on his palm. Slughorn looked down at it for a full ten seconds. Harry wondered for a moment whether he was going to shout at him. Then he threw back his head and roared with laughter. <laughs> You've got nerve, boy! He boomed, taking the bezoar and holding it up so that the class could see it. Oh, you're like your mother! Well, I can't fault you. A bezoar would certainly act as an antidote to all these potions. Hermione, who was sweaty-faced and had soot on her nose, looked livid. Her half-finished antidote, comprising fifty-two ingredients, including a chunk of her own hair, bubbled sluggishly behind Slughorn, who had eyes for nobody but Harry. And you thought of a bezoar all by yourself, did you, Harry? She asked through gritted teeth. That's the individual spirit a real potion maker needs, said Slughorn happily, before Harry could reply. Just like his mother, she had the same intuitive grasp of potion making. It's undoubtedly from Lily he gets it. Yes, Harry, yes. If you've got a bezoar to hand, of course, that would do the trick. Although, as they don't work on everything and are pretty rare, it's still worth knowing how to mix antidotes. The only person in the room looking angrier than Hermione was Malfoy, who, Harry was pleased to see, had spilled something that looked like catsick over himself. Before either of them could express their fury that Harry had come top of the class by not doing any work, however, the bell rang. Time to pack up, said Slughorn, and an extra ten points to Gryffindor for sheer cheek. Still chuckling, he waddled back to his desk at the front of the dungeon. Harry dawdled behind, taking an inordinate amount of time to do up his bag. Neither Ron nor Hermione wished him luck as they left, 
both looked rather annoyed. At last, Harry and Slughorn were the only two left in the room. Come on now, Harry, you'll be late for your next lesson, said Slughorn affably, snapping the gold clasps shut on his dragon-skin briefcase. Sir, said Harry, reminding himself irresistibly of Voldemort, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away then, my dear boy, ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about... about Horcruxes. Slughorn froze. His round face seemed to sink in upon itself. He licked his lips and said hoarsely, What did you say? I asked whether you know anything about Horcruxes, sir. You see, Dumbledore put you up to this, whispered Slughorn. His voice had changed completely. It was not genial anymore, but shocked, terrified. He fumbled in his breast pocket and pulled out a handkerchief, mopping his sweating brow. Dumbledore's shown you that, that memory, well, hasn't he? Yes, said Harry, deciding on the spot that it was best not to lie. Yes, of course, said Slughorn quietly, still dabbing at his white face. Of course. Well, if you've seen that memory, Harry, you'll know that I don't know anything, anything, he repeated the word forcefully, about Horcruxes. He seized his dragonskin briefcase, stuffed his handkerchief back into his pocket, and marched to the dungeon door. Sir, said Harry desperately, I just thought there might be a bit more to the memory. Did you? said Slughorn. Then you were wrong, weren't you? Wrong! He bellowed the last word and, before Harry could say another word, slammed the dungeon door behind him. Neither Ron nor Hermione was at all sympathetic when Harry told them of this disastrous interview. Hermione was still seething at the way Harry had triumphed without doing the work properly. Ron was resentful that Harry hadn't slipped him a bees or two. It would have just looked stupid if we'd both done it, said Harry irritably. Look, I had to try and soften him up so I could ask him about Voldemort, didn't I? Oh, will you get a grip? He added in exasperation as Ron winced at the sound of the name. Infuriated by his failure and by Ron and Hermione's attitudes, Harry brooded for the next few days over what to do next about Slughorn. He decided that for the time being he would let Slughorn think that he had forgotten all about Horcruxes. It was surely best to lull him into a false sense of security before returning to the attack. When Harry did not question Slughorn again, the potion's master reverted to his usual affectionate treatment of him, and appeared to have put the matter from his mind. Harry awaited an invitation to one of his little evening parties, determined to accept this time, even if he had to reschedule Quidditch practice. Unfortunately, however, no such invitation arrived. Harry checked with Hermione and Ginny. Neither of them had received an invitation, and nor, as far as they knew, had anyone else. Harry could not help wondering whether this meant that Slughorn was not quite as forgetful as he appeared, simply determined to give Harry no additional opportunities to question him. Meanwhile, the Hogwarts library had failed Hermione for the first time in living memory. She was so shocked, she even forgot that she was annoyed at Harry for his trick with the Bezoar. I haven't found one single explanation of what Horcruxes do, she told him. Not a single one. 
I've been right through the restricted section, and even in the most horrible books where they tell you how to brew the most gruesome potions. Nothing. All I could find was this in the introduction to Magic Most Evil. Listen. Of the Horcrux, wickedest of magical inventions, we shall not speak nor give direction. I mean, why mention it then? She said impatiently, slamming the old book shut. It let out a ghostly wail. Oh, shut up, she snapped, stuffing it back into her bag. The snow melted around the school as February arrived, to be replaced by cold, dreary wetness. Purplish-gray clouds hung low over the castle, and a constant fall of chilly rain made the lawn slippery and muddy. The upshot of this was that the sixth year's first apparition lesson, which was scheduled for a Saturday morning so that no normal lessons would be missed, took place in the Great Hall instead of in the grounds. When Harry and Hermione arrived in the hall, Ron had come down with lavender, they found that the tables had disappeared. Rain lashed against the high windows, and the enchanted ceilings swirled darkly above them as they assembled in front of Professors McGonagall, Snape, Flitwick, and Sprout, the heads of houses, and a small wizard, whom Harry took to be the apparition instructor from the ministry. He was oddly colorless, with transparent eyelashes, wispy hair, and an insubstantial air, as though a single gust of wind might blow him away. Harry wondered whether constant disappearances and reappearances had somehow diminished his substance, or whether this frail build was ideal for anyone wishing to vanish. Good morning, said the ministry wizard, when all the students had arrived and the heads of houses had called for quiet. My name is Wilkie Tricross, and I shall be your ministry apparition instructor for the next twelve weeks. I hope to be able to prepare you for your apparition tests in this time. Malfoy, be quiet and pay attention, barked Professor McGonagall. Everybody looked around. Malfoy had flushed a dull pink. He looked furious as he stepped away from Crabbe, with whom he appeared to have been having a whispered argument. Harry glanced quickly at Snape, who also looked annoyed, though Harry strongly suspected that this was less because of Malfoy's rudeness than the fact that McGonagall had reprimanded one of his house. By which time many of you may be ready to take your tests, Twycross continued, as though there had been no interruption. As you may know, it is usually impossible to apparate or disapparate within Hogwarts. The headmaster has lifted this enchantment purely within the Great Hall for one hour, so as to enable you to practice. May I emphasize that you will not be able to apparate outside the walls of this hall, and that you would be unwise to try. I would like each of you to pace yourselves now so that you have a clear five feet of space in front of you. There was a great scrambling and jostling as people separated, banged into each other, and ordered others out of their space. The heads of houses moved among the students, marshalling them into position and breaking up arguments. Harry, where are you going? demanded Hermione. But Harry did not answer. He was moving quickly through the crowd, past the place where Professor Flitwick was making squeaky attempts to position a few Ravenclaws, all of whom wanted to be near the front, past Professor Sprout, who was chivying the Hufflepuffs into line, until, by dodging around Ernie Macmillan, he managed to position himself right at the back of the crowd, directly behind Malfoy, who was taking advantage of the general upheaval to continue his argument with Crabbe, 
standing five feet away and looking mutinous. I don't know how much longer, all right? Malfoy shot at him, oblivious to Harry's standing right behind him. It's taking longer than I thought it would. Crabbe opened his mouth, but Malfoy appeared to second-guess what he was going to say. Look, it's none of your business what I'm doing, Crabbe. You and Goyle just do as you're told, and keep a lookout. I tell my friends what I'm up to, if I want them to keep a lookout for me, Harry said, just loud enough for Malfoy to hear him. Malfoy spun around on the spot, his hand flying to his wand, but at that precise moment, the four heads of house shouted, Quiet! and silence fell again. Malfoy turned slowly to face the front again. Thank you, said Twycross. Now then, he waved his wand. Old-fashioned wooden hoops instantly appeared on the floor in front of every student. The important things to remember when apparating are the three Ds, said Twycross. Destination, determination, deliberation. Step one. Fix your mind firmly upon the desired destination, said Twycross. In this case, the interior of your hoop. Kindly concentrate upon that destination now. Everybody looked around furtively to check that everyone else was staring into their hoop, then hastily did as they were told. Harry gazed at the circular patch of dusty floor enclosed by his hoop and tried hard to think of nothing else. This proved impossible, as he couldn't stop puzzling over what Malfoy was doing that needed lookouts. Step two, said Twycross. Focus your determination to occupy the visualized space. Let your yearning to enter it flood from your mind to every particle of your body. Harry glanced around surreptitiously. A little way to his left, Ernie McMillan was contemplating his hoop so hard that his face had turned pink. It looked as though he was straining to lay a quaffle-sized egg. Harry bit back a laugh and hastily returned his gaze to his own hoop. Step three, called Twycross, and only when I give the command, turn on the spot, feeling your way into nothingness, moving with deliberation. On my command now, one. Harry glanced around again. Lots of people were looking positively alarmed at being asked to apparate so quickly. Two! Harry tried to fix his thoughts on his hoop again. He had already forgotten what the three Ds stood for. Three! Harry spun on the spot, lost balance, and nearly fell over. He was not the only one. The whole hall was suddenly full of staggering people. Neville was flat on his back. Ernie McMillan, on the other hand, had done a kind of pirouetting leap into his hoop and looked momentarily thrilled until he caught sight of Dean Thomas roaring with laughter at him. Never mind, never mind, said Twycross dryly, who did not seem to have expected anything better. Adjust your hoops, please, and back to your original positions. The second attempt was no better than the first. The third was just as bad. Not until the fourth did anything exciting happen. There was a horrible screech of pain, and everybody looked around, terrified, to see Susan Bones of Hufflepuff wombling in her hoop, with her left leg still standing five feet away where she had started. The heads of house converged on her. There was a great bang and a puff of purple smoke, which cleared to reveal Susan sobbing, reunited with her leg, but looking horrified. Splinching, or the separation of random body parts, 
said Wilkie Twycross dispassionately, occurs when the mind is insufficiently determined. You must concentrate continuously upon your destination and move without haste but with deliberation. Thus, Twycross stepped forward, turned gracefully on the spot with his arms outstretched, and vanished in a swirl of robes, reappearing at the back of the hall. Remember the three Ds, he said, and try again. One, two, three. But an hour later, Susan's splinching was still the most interesting thing that had happened. Twycross did not seem discouraged. Fastening his cloak at his neck, he merely said, Until next Saturday, everybody, and do not forget destination, determination, deliberation. With that, he waved his wand, vanishing the hoops, and walked out of the hall accompanied by Professor McGonagall. Talk broke out at once as people began moving toward the entrance hall. How did you do? asked Ron, hurrying toward Harry. I think I felt something the last time I tried, a kind of tingling in my feet. I expect your trainers are too small, one one, said a voice behind them, and Hermione stalked past, smirking. I didn't feel anything, said Harry, ignoring this interruption. But I don't care about that now. What do you mean, you don't care? Don't you want to learn to apparate? said Ron incredulously. I'm not fussed, really. I prefer flying, said Harry, glancing over his shoulder to see where Malfoy was, and speeding up as they came into the entrance hall. Look, hurry up, will you? There's something I want to do. Perplexed, Ron followed Harry back to the Gryffindor Tower at a run. They were temporarily detained by Peeves, who had jammed a door on the fourth floor shut and was refusing to let anyone pass until they set fire to their own pants. But Harry and Ron simply turned back and took one of their trusted shortcuts. Within five minutes, they were climbing through the portrait hole. Are you going to tell me what we're doing then? asked Ron, panting slightly. Up here, said Harry, and he crossed the common room and led the way through the door to the boys' staircase. Their dormitory was, as Harry had hoped, empty. He flung open his trunk and began to rummage in it while Ron watched impatiently. Harry? Malfoy's using Crab and Goyle as lookouts. He was arguing with Crab just now. I want to know. Aha! He had found it, a folded square of apparently blank parchment, which he now smoothed out and tapped with the tip of his wand. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Or Malfoy is, anyway. At once, the marauder's map appeared on the parchment's surface. Here was a detailed plan of every one of the castle's floors, and, moving around it, the tiny labeled black dots that signified each of the castle's occupants. Help me find Malfoy, said Harry urgently. He laid the map upon his bed, and he and Ron leaned over it, searching. There, said Ron, after a minute or so. He's in the Slytherin common room, look, with Parkinson and Zabini and Crab and Goyle. Harry looked down at the map, disappointed, but rallied almost at once. Well, I'm keeping an eye on him from now on, he said firmly. And the moment I see him lurking somewhere with Crab and Goyle keeping watch outside, it'll be on with the old invisibility cloak and off to find out what he's... He broke off as Neville entered the dormitory, bringing with him a strong smell of singed material and began rummaging in his trunk for a fresh pair of pants. Despite his determination to catch Malfoy out, Harry had no luck at all over the next couple of weeks. Although he consulted the map as often as he could, sometimes making unnecessary visits to the bathroom between lessons to search it, 
he did not once see Malfoy anywhere suspicious. Admittedly, he spotted Crabbe and Goyle moving around the castle on their own more often than usual, sometimes remaining stationary in deserted corridors. But at these times, Malfoy was not only nowhere near them, but impossible to locate on the map at all. This was most mysterious. Harry toyed with the possibility that Malfoy was actually leaving the school grounds, but could not see how he could be doing it, given the very high level of security now operating within the castle. He could only suppose that he was missing Malfoy amongst the hundreds of tiny black dots upon the map. As for the fact that Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle appeared to be going their different ways when they were usually inseparable, these things happened as people got older. Ron and Hermione, Harry reflected sadly, were living proof. February moved toward March with no change in the weather, except that it became windy as well as wet. To general indignation, a sign went up on all common room notice boards that the next trip into Hogsmeade had been cancelled. Ron was furious. It was on my birthday, he said. I was looking forward to that. Not a big surprise, though, is it? said Harry. Not after what happened to Katie. She has still not returned from St. Mungo's. What was more, further disappearances had been reported in the Daily Prophet, including several relatives of students at Hogwarts. But now, all I've got to look forward to is stupid apparition, said Ron grumpily. Big birthday treat. Three lessons on, apparition was proving as difficult as ever, though a few more people had managed to splinch themselves. Frustration was running high, and there was a certain amount of ill-feeling toward Wilkie Twycross and his three Ds, which had inspired a number of nicknames for him, the politest of which were Dog Breath and Dunghead. Happy birthday, Ron, said Harry, when they were woken on the 1st of March by Seamus and Dean leaving noisily for breakfast. Have a present. He threw the package across onto Ron's bed, where it joined a small pile of them that must, Harry assumed, have been delivered by house elves in the night. Cheers, said Ron drowsily, and as he ripped off the paper, Harry got out of bed, opened his own trunk, and began rummaging in it for the marauder's map, which he hid after every use. He turfed out half the contents of his trunk before he found it hiding beneath the rolled-up socks in which he was still keeping his bottle of lucky potion, Felix Felicis. Right, he murmured, taking it back to bed with him, tapping it quietly and murmuring, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good, so that Neville, who was passing the foot of his bed at the time, would not hear. Nice one, Harry! said Ron enthusiastically, waving the new pair of Quidditch keeper's gloves Harry had given him. No problem, said Harry absent-mindedly as he searched the Slytherin dormitory closely for Malfoy. Hey, I don't think he's in his bed. Ron did not answer. He was too busy unwrapping presents, every now and then letting out an exclamation of pleasure. Seriously good haul this year! he announced, holding up a heavy gold watch with odd symbols around the edge and tiny moving stars instead of hands. See what Mum and Dad got me? Blimey! I think I'll come of age next year, too. Cool, muttered Harry, sparing the watch a glance before peering more closely at the map. Where was Malfoy? He did not seem to be at the Slytherin table in the Great Hall, eating breakfast. He was nowhere near Snape, who was sitting in his study, he wasn't in any of the bathrooms or in the hospital wing. Want one? said Ron thickly, holding out a box of chocolate cauldrons. No, thanks, said Harry, looking up. 
Malfoy's gone again. Can't have done, said Ron, stuffing a second cauldron into his mouth as he slid out of bed to get dressed. Come on, if you don't hurry up, you'll have to apparate on an empty stomach. Might make it easier, I suppose. Ron looked thoughtfully at the box of chocolate cauldrons, then shrugged and helped himself to a third. Harry tapped the map with his wand, muttered, Mischief managed, though it hadn't been, and got dressed, thinking hard. There had to be an explanation for Malfoy's periodic disappearances, but he simply could not think what it could be. The best way of finding out would be to tail him, but even with the invisibility cloak, this was an impractical idea. Harry had lessons, Quidditch practice, homework, and apparition. He could not follow Malfoy around school all day without his absence being remarked upon. Ready? he said to Ron. He was halfway to the dormitory door when he realized that Ron had not moved, but was leaning on his bedpost, staring out of the rain-washed window with a strangely unfocused look on his face. Ron? Breakfast? I'm not hungry. Harry stared at him. I thought you just said, well, all right, I'll come down with you, sighed Ron, but I don't want to eat. Harry scrutinized him suspiciously. You've just eaten half a box of chocolate cauldrons, haven't you? It's not that, Ron sighed again. You, you wouldn't understand. Fair enough, said Harry, albeit puzzled, as he turned to open the door. Harry, said Ron suddenly. What? Harry, I can't stand it. You can't stand what? asked Harry, now starting to feel definitely alarmed. Ron was rather pale and looked as though he was about to be sick. I can't stop thinking about her, said Ron hoarsely. Harry gaped at him. He had not expected this and was not sure he wanted to hear it. Friends they might be, but if Ron started calling Lavender Lav-Lav, he would have to put his foot down. Why does that stop you having breakfast? Harry asked, trying to inject a note of common sense into the proceedings. I don't think she knows I exist, said Ron with a desperate gesture. She definitely knows you exist said Harry, bewildered. She keeps snogging you, doesn't she? Ron blinked. Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? said Harry, with an increasing sense that all reason had dropped out of the conversation. Gramilda Vane, said Ron softly, and his whole face seemed to illuminate as he said it, as though hit by a ray of purest sunlight. They stared at each other for almost a whole minute before Harry said, This is a joke, right? You're joking. I think, Harry, I think I love her, said Ron in a strangled voice. Okay, said Harry, walking up to Ron to get a better look at the glazed eyes and the pallid complexion. Okay, say that again with a straight face. I love her, repeated Ron breathlessly. Have you seen her hair? It's all black and shiny and silky, and her eyes... Her big, dark eyes, and her... This is really funny and everything, said Harry impatiently. But joke's over, all right, drop it. He turned to leave. He had got two steps toward the door when a crashing blow hit him on the right ear. Staggering, he looked around. Ron's fist was drawn right back. His face was contorted with rage. He was about to strike again. Harry reacted instinctively. His wand was out of his pocket, and the incantation sprang to mind without conscious thought. Levicorpus! 
Ron yelled as his heel was wrenched upward once more. He dangled helplessly, upside down, his robes hanging off him. What was that for? Harry bellowed. You insulted her, Harry. You said it was a joke, shouted Ron, who was slowly turning purple in the face as all the blood rushed to his head. This is insane, said Harry. What's got into? And then he saw the box lying open on Ron's bed, and the truth hit him with the force of a stampeding troll. Where did you get those chocolate cauldrons? They were a birthday present, shouted Ron, revolving slowly in midair as he struggled to get free. I offered you one, didn't I? You just picked them up off the floor, didn't you? They'd fallen off my bed, all right. Let me go. They didn't fall off your bed, you prat. Don't you understand? They were mine. I chucked them out of my trunk when I was looking for the map. They're the chocolate cauldrons Ramilda gave me before Christmas, and they're all spiked with love potion. But only one word of this seemed to have registered with Ron. Ramilda, he repeated. Did you say Ramilda, Harry? Do you know her? Can you introduce me? Harry stared at the dangling Ron, whose face now looked tremendously hopeful, and fought a strong desire to laugh. A part of him, the part closest to his throbbing right ear, was quite keen on the idea of letting Ron down and watching him run amok until the effects of the potion wore off. But on the other hand, they were supposed to be friends. Ron had not been himself when he had attacked, and Harry thought that he would deserve another punching if he permitted Ron to declare undying love for Romilda Vane. Yeah, I'll introduce you, said Harry, thinking fast. I'm going to let you down now, okay? He sent Ron crashing back to the floor. His ear did hurt quite a lot, but Ron simply bounded to his feet again, grinning. She'll be in Slughorn's office, said Harry confidently, leading the way to the door. Why will she be in there? asked Ron anxiously, hurrying to keep up. Oh, she has extra potions lessons with him, said Harry, inventing wildly. Maybe I could ask if I can have them with her, said Ron eagerly. Great idea said Harry. Lavender was waiting beside the portrait hole, a complication Harry had not foreseen. You're late, one-one, she pouted. I've got you a birthday. Leave me alone, said Ron impatiently. Harry's going to introduce me to Ramilda Vane. And without another word to her, he pushed his way out of the portrait hole. Harry tried to make an apologetic face to Lavender, but it might have turned out simply amused, because she looked more offended than ever as the fat lady swung shut behind them. Harry had been slightly worried that Slughorn might be at breakfast, but he answered his office door at the first knock, wearing a green velvet dressing gown and matching nightcap, and looking rather bleary-eyed. Harry, he mumbled, this is very early for a call. I generally sleep late on a Saturday. Professor, I'm really sorry to disturb you said Harry as quietly as possible, while Ron stood on tiptoe, attempting to see past Slughorn into his room. But my friend Ron's swallowed a love potion by mistake. You couldn't make him an antidote, could you? I'd take him to Madame Pomfrey, but we're not supposed to have anything from Weasley's Wizard Wheezes and, you know, awkward questions. I'd have thought you could have whipped him up a remedy, Harry. An expert potioneer like you? asked Slughorn. Uh said Harry, somewhat distracted by the fact that Ron was now elbowing him in the ribs in an attempt to force his way into the room. Well, I've never mixed an antidote for a love potion, sir, and by the time I get it right, Ron might have done something serious. 
Helpfully, Ron chose this moment to moan. I can't see her, Harry. Is he hiding her? Was this potion within date? Asked Slughorn, now eyeing Ron with professional interest. They can strengthen, you know, the longer they're kept. That would explain a lot, panted Harry, now positively wrestling with Ron to keep him from knocking Slughorn over. It's his birthday, Professor, he added imploringly. Oh, all right, come in then, come in, said Slughorn, relenting. I've got the necessary here in my bag. It's not a difficult antidote. Ron burst through the door into Slughorn's overheated, crowded study, tripped over a tasseled footstool, regained his balance by seizing Harry around the neck, and muttered, She didn't see that, did she? She's not here yet, said Harry, watching Slughorn opening his potion kit and adding a few pinches of this and that to a small crystal bottle. That's good, said Ron fervently. How do I look? Very handsome, said Slughorn smoothly, handing Ron a glass of clear liquid. Now drink that up. It's a tonic for the nerves. Keep you calm when she arrives, you know. Brilliant, said Ron eagerly, and he gulped the antidote down noisily. Harry and Slughorn watched him. For a moment, Ron beamed at them. Then, very slowly, his grin sagged and vanished, to be replaced by an expression of utmost horror. Back to normal, then, said Harry, grinning. Slughorn chuckled. Thanks a lot, Professor. Don't mention it, my boy. Don't mention it, said Slughorn, as Ron collapsed into a nearby armchair, looking devastated. Pick me up. That's what he needs, Slughorn continued, now bustling over to a table loaded with drinks. I've got butter beer, I've got wine, I've got one last bottle of this oak-matured mead. Mmm, meant to give that to Dumbledore for Christmas. Ah, well, he shrugged. He can't miss what he's never had. Why don't we open it now and celebrate Mr. Weasley's birthday? Nothing like a fine spirit to chase away the pangs of disappointed love. He chortled again, and Harry joined in. This was the first time he had found himself almost alone with Slughorn since his disastrous first attempt to extract the true memory from him. Perhaps if he could just keep Slughorn in a good mood. Perhaps if they got through enough of the oak-matured mead. There you are, then, said Slughorn, handing Harry and Ron a glass of mead each before raising his own. Well, a very happy birthday, Ralph. Ron, whispered Harry. But Ron, who did not appear to be listening to the toast, had already thrown the mead into his mouth and swallowed it. There was one second, hardly more than a heartbeat, in which Harry knew there was something terribly wrong, and Slughorn, it seemed, did not. And may you have many more. Ron! Ron had dropped his glass. He half rose from his chair and then crumpled, his extremities jerking uncontrollably. Foam was dribbling from his mouth, and his eyes were bulging from their sockets. Professor, Harry bellowed, do something. But Slughorn seemed paralyzed by shock. Ron twitched and choked. His skin was turning blue. What? But, spluttered Slughorn. Harry leapt over a low table and sprinted towards Slughorn's open potion kit, pulling out jars and pouches, while the terrible sound of Ron's gargling breath filled the room. Then he found it, the shriveled, kidney-like stone Slughorn had taken from him in potions. He hurtled back to Ron's side, wrenched open his jaw, and thrust the bezoar into his mouth. Ron gave a great shudder, a rattling gasp. 
and his body became limp and still. Chapter 19 Elf Tales So, all in all, not one of Ron's better birthdays, said Fred. It was evening, the hospital wing was quiet, the windows curtained, the lamps lit. Ron's was the only occupied bed. Harry, Hermione, and Ginny were sitting around him. They had spent all day waiting outside the double doors, trying to see inside whenever somebody went in or out. Madame Pomfrey had only let them enter at eight o'clock. Fred and George had arrived at ten past. This isn't how we imagined handing over our present, said George grimly, putting down a large wrapped gift on Ron's bedside cabinet and sitting beside Ginny. Yeah, when we pictured the scene, he was conscious, said Fred. There we were in Hogsmeade, waiting to surprise him, said George. You were in Hogsmeade? asked Ginny, looking up. We were thinking of buying Zonkos, said Fred gloomily. A Hogsmeade branch, you know. But a fat lot of good it'll do us if you lot aren't allowed out at weekends to buy our stuff anymore. But never mind that now. He drew up a chair beside Harry and looked at Ron's pale face. How exactly did it happen, Harry? Harry retold the story he had already recounted. It felt like a hundred times to Dumbledore, to McGonagall, to Madame Pomfrey, to Hermione, and to Ginny. And then I got the bezoa down his throat, and his breathing eased up a bit. Slughorn ran for help, McGonagall and Madame Pomfrey turned up, and they brought Ron up here. They reckon he'll be all right. Madame Pomfrey says he'll have to stay here a week or so, keep taking essence of root. Blimey! It was luck you thought of a bezoa, said George in a low voice. Lucky there was one in the room, said Harry, who kept turning cold at the thought of what would have happened if he had not been able to lay hands on the little stone. Hermione gave an almost inaudible sniff. She had been exceptionally quiet all day. Having hurtled white-faced up to Harry outside the hospital wing and demanded to know what had happened, she had taken almost no part in Harry and Ginny's obsessive discussion about how Ron had been poisoned, but merely stood beside them, clenched-jawed and frightened-looking, until at last they had been allowed in to see him. Do Mum and Dad know? Fred asked Ginny. They've already seen him. They arrived an hour ago. They're in Dumbledore's office now, but they'll be back soon. There was a pause while they all watched Ron mumble a little in his sleep. So the poison was in the drink, said Fred quietly. Yes, said Harry at once. He could think of nothing else and was glad for the opportunity to start discussing it again. Slughorn poured it out. Would he have been able to slip something into Ron's glass without you seeing? Probably, said Harry. But why would Slughorn want to poison Ron? No idea, said Fred, frowning. You don't think he could have mixed up the glasses by mistake? Meaning to get you. Why would Slughorn want to poison Harry? Asked Ginny. I don't know, said Fred. But there must be loads of people who'd like to poison Harry, mustn't there? The chosen one and all that. So you think Slughorn's a death eater? Said Ginny. Anything's possible, said Fred darkly. He could be under the imperious curse, said George. Or he could be innocent, said Ginny. The poison could have been in the bottle, in which case it was probably meant for Slughorn himself. Who'd want to kill Slughorn? Dumbledore reckons Voldemort wanted Slughorn on his side, said Harry. 
Slughorn was in hiding for a year before he came to Hogwarts, and he thought of the memory Dumbledore had not yet been able to extract from Slughorn. And maybe Voldemort wants him out of the way. Maybe he thinks he could be valuable to Dumbledore. But you said Slughorn had been planning to give that bottle to Dumbledore for Christmas, Ginny reminded him. So the Poisoner could just as easily have been after Dumbledore. Then the Poisoner didn't know Slughorn very well, said Hermione, speaking for the first time in hours and sounding as though she had a bad head cold. Anyone who knew Slughorn would have known there was a good chance he'd keep something that tasty for himself. Hermione, croaked Ron unexpectedly from between them. They all fell silent, watching him anxiously. But after muttering incomprehensibly for a moment, he merely started snoring. The dormitory doors flew open, making them all jump. Hagrid came striding toward them, his hair rain-flecked, his bearskin coat flapping behind him, a crossbow in his hand, leaving a trail of muddy dolphin-sized footprints all over the floor. Been in the forest all day, he panted. Aragog's worse. I've been reading to him. Didn't get up to dinner till just now. And then Professor Sprout told me about Ron. How is he? Not bad, said Harry. They say he'll be okay. No more than six visitors at a time, said Madame Pomfrey, hurrying out of her office. Hagrid makes six, George pointed out. Oh, yes, said Madame Pomfrey, who seemed to have been counting Hagrid as several people due to his vastness. To cover her confusion, she hurried off to clear up his muddy footprints with her wand. I don't believe this, said Hagrid hoarsely, shaking his great shaggy head as he stared down at Ron. Just don't believe it. Look at him lying there. Who'd want to hurt him, eh? That's just what we were discussing, said Harry. We don't know. Someone couldn't have a grudge against the Gryffindor Quidditch team, could they? said Hagrid anxiously. First Katie, now Ron. I can't see anyone trying to bump off a Quidditch team, said George. Wood might have done the Slytherins if he could have got away with it, said Fred fairly. Well, I don't think it's Quidditch, but I think there's a connection between the attacks, said Hermione quietly. How do you work that out? asked Fred. Well, for one thing, they both ought to have been fatal and weren't although that was pure luck. And for another, neither the poison nor the necklace seems to have reached the person who was supposed to be killed. Of course, she added broodingly, that makes the person behind this even more dangerous in a way, because they don't seem to care how many people they finish off before they actually reach their victim. Before anybody could respond to this ominous pronouncement, the dormitory doors opened again and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley hurried up the ward. They had done no more than satisfy themselves that Ron would make a full recovery on their last visit to the ward. Now Mrs. Weasley seized hold of Harry and hugged him very tightly. Dumbledore's told us how you saved him with the bezoar, she sobbed. Oh, Harry, what can we say? You saved Ginny, you saved Arthur, now you've saved Ron. Don't be... I didn't, muttered Harry awkwardly. Half our family does seem to owe you their lives. Now I stop and think about it, Mr. Weasley said in a constricted voice. Well, all I can say is that it was a lucky day for the Weasleys when Ron decided to sit in your compartment on the Hogwarts Express, Harry. 
Harry could not think of any reply to this, and was almost glad when Madame Pomfrey reminded them that there were only supposed to be six visitors around Ron's bed. He and Hermione rose at once to leave, and Hagrid decided to go with them, leaving Ron with his family. It's terrible, growled Hagrid into his beard as the three of them walked back along the corridor to the marble staircase. All this new security, and kids are still getting hurt. Dumbledore's worried sick. He don't say much, but I can tell. Hasn't he got any ideas, Hagrid? asked Hermione desperately. I expect he's got hundreds of ideas, brain like his, said Hagrid. But he doesn't know who sent that necklace, nor put poison in that wine, or they'd have been caught, wouldn't they? What worries me, said Hagrid, lowering his voice and glancing over his shoulder. Harry, for good measure, checked the ceiling for Peeves. Is how long Hogwarts can stay open if kids are being attacked? Chamber of Secrets all over again, isn't it? There'll be panic. More parents taking their kids out of school, and next thing you know, the Board of Governors... Hagrid stopped talking as the ghost of a long-haired woman drifted serenely past, then resumed in a hoarse whisper. The Board of Governors will be talking about shutting us up for good. Surely not, said Hermione, looking worried. Gotta see it from their point of view, said Hagrid heavily. I mean, it's always been a bit of a risk sending a kid to Hogwarts, hasn't it? You expect accidents, don't you? With hundreds of underage wizards all locked up together. But attempted murder, that's different. It's no wonder Dumbledore's angry with Sna- Hagrid stopped in his tracks, a familiar guilty expression on what was visible of his face above his tangled black beard. What? said Harry quickly. Dumbledore's angry with Snape. I never said that, said Hagrid, though his look of panic could not have been a bigger giveaway. Look at the time. It's getting on from midnight. I need to- Hagrid, why is Dumbledore angry with Snape? Harry asked loudly. Shh, said Hagrid, looking both nervous and angry. Don't shout stuff like that, Harry. Do you want me to lose me job? Mind, I don't suppose you'd care, would you? Not now you've given up care of magic. Don't try and make me feel guilty. It won't work, said Harry forcefully. What's Snape done? I don't know, Harry. I shouldn't have heard it at all. I... Well, I was coming out of the forest the other evening and I overheard him talking. Well, arguing. Didn't like to draw attention to myself, so I sort of skulked and tried not to listen, but it was a, well, a heated discussion, and it wasn't easy to block it out. Well? Harry urged him, as Hagrid shuffled his enormous feet uneasily. Well, I just heard Snape saying Dumbledore took too much for granted, and maybe he, Snape, didn't want to do it anymore. Do what? I don't know, Harry. It sounded like Snape was feeling a bit overworked, that's all. Anyway, Dumbledore told him flat out he'd agreed to do it, and that was all there was to it. Pretty firm with him. And then he said somewhat about Snape making investigations in his house in Slytherin. Well, there's nothing strange about that, Hagrid added hastily as Harry and Hermione exchanged looks full of meaning. 
All the heads of houses were asked to look into that necklace business. Yeah, but Dumbledore's not having rows with the rest of them, is he? said Harry. Look, Hagrid twisted his crossbow uncomfortably in his hands. There was a loud splintering sound, and it snapped in two. I know what you're like about Snape, Harry, and I don't want you to go reading more into this than there is. Look out, said Hermione tersely. They turned just in time to see the shadow of Argus Filch looming over the wall behind them before the man himself turned the corner, hunchbacked, his jowls a-quiver. Oh-ho! he wheezed. Out of bed so late. This'll mean detention. No, it won't, Filch, said Hagrid shortly. They're with me, aren't they? And what difference does that make? asked Filch obnoxiously. I'm a ruddy teacher, aren't I, you sneaking squib? said Hagrid, firing up at once. There was a nasty hissing noise as Filch swelled with fury. Mrs. Norris had arrived unseen and was twisting herself sinuously around Filch's skinny ankles. Get going, said Hagrid out of the corner of his mouth. Harry did not need telling twice. He and Hermione both hurried off. Hagrid's and Filch's raised voices echoed behind them as they ran. They passed Peeves near the turning into Gryffindor Tower, but he was streaking happily toward the source of the yelling, cackling and calling. When there's strife and when there's trouble, call on Peevesy, he'll make double. The fat lady was snoozing and not pleased to be woken, but swung forward grumpily to allow them to clamber into the mercifully peaceful and empty common room. It did not seem that people knew about Ron yet. Harry was very relieved. He had been interrogated enough that day. Hermione bade him good night and set off for the girls' dormitory. Harry, however, remained behind, taking a seat beside the fire and looking down into the dying embers. So, Dumbledore had argued with Snape. In spite of all he had told Harry, in spite of his insistence that he trusted Snape completely, he had lost his temper with him. He did not think that Snape had tried hard enough to investigate the Slytherins, or perhaps to investigate a single Slytherin. Malfoy? Was it because Dumbledore did not want Harry to do anything foolish, to take matters into his own hands, that he had pretended there was nothing in Harry's suspicions? That seemed likely. It might even be that Dumbledore did not want anything to distract Harry from their lessons, or from procuring that memory from Slughorn. Perhaps Dumbledore did not think it right to confide suspicions about his staff to sixteen-year-olds. There you are, Potter! Harry jumped to his feet in shock, his wand at the ready. He had been quite convinced that the common room was empty. He had not been at all prepared for a hulking figure to rise suddenly out of a distant chair. A closer look showed him that it was Cormac McLagan. I've been waiting for you to come back, said McLagan, disregarding Harry's drawn wand. Must have fallen asleep. Look, I saw them taking Weasley up to the hospital wing earlier. Didn't look like he'll be fit for next week's match. It took Harry a few moments to realize what McLagan was talking about. Oh, right, Quidditch, he said, putting his wand back into the belt of his jeans and running a hand wearily through his hair. Yeah, he might not make it. Well then, I'll be playing keeper, won't I? said McLagan. Yeah, said Harry. Yeah, I suppose so. 
He could not think of an argument against it. After all, McLagan had certainly performed second best in the trials. Excellent, said McLagan in a satisfied voice. So, when's practice? What? Oh, there's one tomorrow evening. Good. Listen, Potter, we should have a talk beforehand. I've got some ideas on strategy you might find useful. Right, said Harry unenthusiastically. Well, I'll hear them tomorrow, then. I'm pretty tired now. See ya. The news that Ron had been poisoned spread quickly next day, but it did not cause the sensation that Katie's attack had done. People seemed to think that it might have been an accident, given that he had been in the potion's master's room at the time, and that, as he had been given an antidote immediately, there was no real harm done. In fact, the Gryffindors were generally much more interested in the upcoming Quidditch match against Hufflepuff, for many of them wanted to see Zachariah Smith, who played chaser on the Hufflepuff team, punished soundly for his commentary during the opening match against Slytherin. Harry, however, had never been less interested in Quidditch. He was rapidly becoming obsessed with Draco Malfoy. Still checking the Marauder's map whenever he got a chance, he sometimes made detours to wherever Malfoy happened to be, but had not yet detected him doing anything out of the ordinary. And still, there were those inexplicable times when Malfoy simply vanished from the map. But Harry did not get a lot of time to consider the problem, what with Quidditch practice, homework, and the fact that he was now being dogged wherever he went by Cormac McLagan and Lavender Brown. He could not decide which of them was more annoying. McLagan kept up a constant stream of hints that he would make a better permanent keeper for the team than Ron, and that now that Harry was seeing him play regularly, he would surely come around to this way of thinking too. He was also keen to criticize the other players and provide Harry with detailed training schemes so that more than once Harry was forced to remind him who was captain. Meanwhile, Lavender kept sidling up to Harry to discuss Ron, which Harry found almost more wearing than McLagan's Quidditch lectures. At first, Lavender had been very annoyed that nobody had thought to tell her that Ron was in the hospital wing. I mean, I am his girlfriend. But unfortunately, she had now decided to forgive Harry this lapse of memory and was keen to have lots of in-depth chats with him about Ron's feelings, a most uncomfortable experience that Harry would have happily foregone. Look, why don't you talk to Ron about all this? Harry asked, after a particularly long interrogation from Lavender that took in everything from precisely what Ron had said about her new dress robes to whether or not Harry thought that Ron considered his relationship with Lavender to be serious. Well, I would, but he's always asleep when I go and see him, said Lavender fretfully. Is he? said Harry, surprised, for he had found Ron perfectly alert every time he had been up to the hospital wing, both highly interested in the news of Dumbledore and Snape's row, and keen to abuse McLagan as much as possible. Is Hermione Granger still visiting him? Lavender demanded suddenly. Yeah, I think so. Well, they're friends, aren't they? Said Harry uncomfortably. Friends? Don't make me laugh, said Lavender scornfully. She didn't talk to him for weeks after he started going out with me. But I suppose she wants to make up with him now he's all interesting. Would you call getting poison being interesting? Asked Harry. Anyway, 
Sorry, got to go. There's McLagan coming for a talk about Quidditch, said Harry hurriedly, and he dashed sideways through a door, pretending to be solid wall, and sprinted down the shortcut that would take him off to potions, where, thankfully, neither Lavender nor McLagan could follow him. On the morning of the Quidditch match against Hufflepuff, Harry dropped in on the hospital wing before heading down to the pitch. Ron was very agitated. Madame Pomfrey would not let him go down to watch the match, feeling it would overexcite him. So, how's McLagan shaping up? He asked Harry nervously, apparently forgetting that he had already asked the same question twice. I've told you, said Harry patiently. He could be world class and I wouldn't want to keep him. He keeps trying to tell everyone what to do. He thinks he could play every position better than the rest of us. I can't wait to be shot of him. And speaking of getting shot of people, Harry added, getting to his feet and picking up his firebolt. Will you stop pretending to be asleep when Lavender comes to see you? She's driving me mad as well. Oh, said Ron, looking sheepish. Yeah, all right. If you don't want to go out with her anymore, just tell her, said Harry. Yeah, well, it's not that easy, is it? said Ron. He paused. Hermione going to look in before the match? he added casually. No, she's already gone down to the pitch with Ginny. Oh, said Ron, looking rather glum. Right. Well, good luck. Hope you hammer McClag, I mean, Smith. I'll try, said Harry, shouldering his broom. See you after the match. He hurried down through the deserted corridors. The whole school was outside, either already seated in the stadium or heading down toward it. He was looking out of the windows he passed, trying to gauge how much wind they were facing, when a noise ahead made him glance up, and he saw Malfoy walking toward him, accompanied by two girls, both of whom looked sulky and resentful. Malfoy stopped short at the sight of Harry, then gave a short, humorless laugh and continued walking. Where are you going? Harry demanded. Yeah, I'm really going to tell you because it's your business, Potter, sneered Malfoy. You'd better hurry up, they'll be waiting for the chosen captain, the boy who scored whatever they call you these days. One of the girls gave an unwilling giggle. Harry stared at her. She blushed. Malfoy pushed past Harry, and she and her friend followed at a trot, turning the corner and vanishing from view. Harry stood rooted on the spot and watched them disappear. This was infuriating. He was already cutting it fine to get to the match on time, and yet there was Malfoy, skulking off while the rest of the school was absent, Harry's best chance yet of discovering what Malfoy was up to. The silent seconds trickled past, and Harry remained where he was, frozen, gazing at the place where Malfoy had vanished. Where have you been? demanded Ginny as Harry sprinted into the changing rooms. The whole team was changed and ready. Coot and Peeks, the beaters, were both hitting their clubs nervously against their legs. I met Malfoy, Harry told her quietly as he pulled his scarlet robes over his head. So? So I wanted to know how come he's up at the castle with a couple of girlfriends while everyone else is down here. Does it matter right now? Well, I'm not likely to find out, am I? said Harry, seizing his firebolt and pushing his glasses straight. Come on, then. And without another word, he marched out onto the pitch to deafening cheers and boos. There was little wind. 
The clouds were patchy. Every now and then there were dazzling flashes of bright sunlight. Tricky conditions, McLagan said bracingly to the team. Coot, Peaks, you'll want to fly out of the sun so they don't see you coming. I'm the captain, McLagan. Shut up giving them instructions, said Harry angrily. Just get up by the goalposts. Once McLagan had marched off, Harry turned to Coot and Peaks. Make sure you do fly out of the sun, he told them grudgingly. He shook hands with the Hufflepuff captain, and then on Madame Hooch's whistle, kicked off and rose into the air, higher than the rest of his team, streaking around the pitch in search of the snitch. If he could catch it good and early, there might be a chance he could get back up to the castle, seize the marauder's map, and find out what Malfoy was doing. And that smith of Hufflepuff with the quaffle, said a dreamy voice echoing over the grounds. He did the commentary last time, of course, and Ginny Weasley flew into him. I think probably on purpose. It looked like it. Smith was being quite rude about Gryffindor. I expect he regrets that, now he's playing them. Oh, look, he's lost the quaffle. Ginny took it from him. I do like her. She's very nice. Harry stared down at the commentator's podium. Surely nobody in their right mind would have let Luna Lovegood commentate. But even from above, there was no mistaking that long, dirty blonde hair, nor the necklace of butterbeer corks. Beside Luna, Professor McGonagall was looking slightly uncomfortable, as though she was indeed having second thoughts about this appointment. But now that big Hufflepuff player's got the quaffle from her, I can't remember his name. Is something like Bibble? No, Buggins. It's Cadwallader, said Professor McGonagall loudly from beside Luna. The crowd laughed. Harry stared around for the snitch. There was no sign of it. Moments later, Cadwallader scored. McLagan had been shouting criticism at Ginny for allowing the quaffle out of her possession, with the result that he had not noticed the large red ball soaring past his right ear. McLagan, will you pay attention to what you're supposed to be doing and leave everyone else alone? Bellowed Harry, wheeling around to face his keeper. You're not setting a great example, McLagan shouted back, red-faced and furious. And Harry Potter's now having an argument with his keeper, said Luna serenely, while both Hufflepuffs and Slytherins below in the crowd cheered and jeered. I don't think that'll help him find the snitch but maybe it's a clever ruse. Swearing angrily, Harry spun around and set off around the pitch again, scanning the skies for some sign of the tiny winged golden ball. Ginny and Demelza scored a goal apiece, giving the red and gold-clad supporters below something to cheer about. Then Cadwallader scored again, making things level. But Luna did not seem to have noticed. She appeared singularly uninterested in such mundane things as the score and kept attempting to draw the crowd's attention to such things as interestingly shaped clouds and the possibility that Zachariah Smith, who had so far failed to maintain possession of the quaffle for longer than a minute, was suffering from something called loser's lurgy. Seventy-forty to Hufflepuff, barked Professor McGonagall into Luna's megaphone. Is it already? said Luna vaguely. Oh, look, the Gryffindor keeper's got hold of one of the beater's bats. Harry spun around in midair. 
Sure enough, McLagan, for reasons best known to himself, had pulled Peeks's bat from him and appeared to be demonstrating how to hit a bludger toward an oncoming Cadwallader. Will you give him back his bat and get back to the goalposts? roared Harry, pelting toward McLagan, just as McLagan took a ferocious swipe at the bludger and mishit it. A blinding, sickening pain, a flash of light, distant screams, and the sensation of falling down a long tunnel. And the next thing Harry knew, he was lying in a remarkably warm and comfortable bed and looking up at a lamp that was throwing a circle of golden light onto a shadowy ceiling. He raised his head awkwardly. There on his left was a familiar-looking, freckly, red-haired person. Nice of you to drop in, said Ron, grinning. Harry blinked and looked around. Of course, he was in the hospital wing. The sky outside was indigo streaked with crimson. The match must have finished hours ago, as had any hope of cornering Malfoy. Harry's head felt strangely heavy. He raised a hand and felt a stiff turban of bandages. What happened? Cracked skull, said Madame Pomfrey, bustling up and pushing him back against his pillows. Nothing to worry about. I mended it at once, but I'm keeping you in overnight. You shouldn't overexert yourself for a few hours. I don't want to stay here overnight, said Harry angrily, sitting up and throwing back his covers. I want to find McLagan and kill him. I'm afraid that would come under the heading of overexertion, said Madame Pomfrey, pushing him firmly back onto the bed and raising her wand in a threatening manner. You will stay here until I discharge you, Potter, or I shall call the headmaster. She bustled back into her office, and Harry sank back into his pillows, fuming. Do you know how much we lost by? He asked Ron through clenched teeth. Well, yeah, I do, said Ron apologetically. Final score was 320 to 60. Brilliant, said Harry savagely. Really brilliant. When I get hold of McLagan, you don't want to get hold of him. He's the size of a troll, said Ron reasonably. Personally, I think there's a lot to be said for hexing him with that toenail thing of the prince's. Anyway, the rest of the team might have dealt with him before you get out of here. They're not happy. There was a note of badly suppressed glee in Ron's voice. Harry could tell he was nothing short of thrilled that McLagan had messed up so badly. Harry lay there, staring up at the patch of light on the ceiling, his recently mended skull not hurting precisely, but feeling slightly tender underneath all the bandaging. I could hear the match commentary from here, said Ron, his voice now shaking with laughter. I hope Luna always commentates from now on. Losers lurgy. But Harry was still too angry to see much humor in the situation, and after a while, Ron's snorts subsided. Ginny came in to visit while you were unconscious, he said after a long pause, and Harry's imagination zoomed into overdrive, rapidly constructing a scene in which Ginny, weeping over his lifeless form, confessed her feelings of deep attraction to him while Ron gave them his blessing. She reckons you only just arrived on time for the match. How come? You left here early enough. Oh, said Harry, as the scene in his mind's eye imploded. Yeah, well... I saw Malfoy sneaking off with a couple of girls who didn't look like they wanted to be with him, and that's the second time he's made sure he isn't down on the Quidditch pitch with the rest of the school. He skipped the last match, too, remember? Harry sighed. Wish I'd followed him now. 
The match was such a fiasco. Don't be stupid, said Ron sharply. You couldn't have missed a Quidditch match just to follow Malfoy. You're the captain. I want to know what he's up to, said Harry. And don't tell me it's all in my head, not after what I overheard between him and Snape. I never said it was all in your head, said Ron, hoisting himself up on an elbow in turn and frowning at Harry. But there's no rule saying only one person at a time can be plotting anything in this place. You're getting a bit obsessed with Malfoy, Harry. I mean, thinking about missing a match just to follow him. I want to catch him at it, said Harry in frustration. I mean, where's he going when he disappears off the map? I don't know. Hogsmeade, suggested Ron, yawning. I've never seen him going along any of the secret passageways on the map. I thought they were being watched now anyway. Well then, I don't know, said Ron. Silence fell between them. Harry stared up at the circle of lamplight above him, thinking. If only he had Rufus Scrimgeour's power, he would have been able to set a tail upon Malfoy. But unfortunately, Harry did not have an office full of aurors at his command. He thought fleetingly of trying to set something up with the DA, but there again was the problem that people would be missed from lessons. Most of them, after all, still had full schedules. There was a low, rumbling snore from Ron's bed. After a while, Madame Pomfrey came out of her office, this time wearing a thick dressing gown. It was easiest to feign sleep. Harry rolled over onto his side and listened to all the curtains closing themselves as she waved her wand. The lamps dimmed and she returned to her office. He heard the door click behind her and knew that she was off to bed. This was, Harry reflected in the darkness, the third time that he had been brought to the hospital wing because of a Quidditch injury. Last time he had fallen off his broom due to the presence of Dementors around the pitch, and the time before that all the bones had been removed from his arm by the incurably inept Professor Lockhart. That had been his most painful injury by far. He remembered the agony of regrowing an arm full of bones in one night, a discomfort not eased by the arrival of an unexpected visitor in the middle of the... Harry sat bolt upright, his heart pounding, his bandaged turban askew. He had the solution at last. There was a way to have Malfoy followed. How could he have forgotten? Why hadn't he thought of it before? But the question was, how to call him? What did you do? Quietly, tentatively, Harry spoke into the darkness. Creature! There was a very loud crack, and the sounds of scuffling and squeaks filled the silent room. Ron awoke with a yelp. What's going? Harry pointed his wand hastily at the door of Madame Pomfrey's office and muttered, Mafiato! so that she would not come running. Then he scrambled to the end of his bed for a better look at what was going on. Two house elves were rolling around on the floor in the middle of the dormitory, one wearing a shrunken maroon jumper and several woolly hats, the other a filthy old rag strung over his hips like a loincloth. Then there was another loud bang, and Peeves the poltergeist appeared in midair above the wrestling elves. I was watching that, Potty, he told Harry indignantly, pointing at the fight below, before letting out a loud cackle. Look at the little creatures squabbling, bite. Bitey, punchy, punchy. Creature will not insult Harry Potter in front of Dobby. No, he won't, or Dobby will shut Creature's mouth for him, cried Dobby in a high-pitched voice. Kicky, scratchy, 
cried Peeves happily, now pelting bits of chalk at the elves to enrage them further. Tweaky, pokey! Creature will say what he likes about his master. Oh, yes, and what a master he is. Filthy friend of mudblood. Oh, what would poor Creature's mistress say? Exactly what Creature's mistress would have said, they did not find out. For at that moment, Dobby sank his knobbly little fist into Creature's mouth and knocked out half of his teeth. Harry and Ron both leapt out of their beds and wrenched the two elves apart, though they continued to try and kick and punch each other, egged on by Peeves, who swooped around the lamp squealing, Stick your fingers up his nosy, draw his cork, and pull his earses. Harry aimed his wand at Peeves and said, Langlock! Peeves clutched at his throat, gulped, then swooped from the room, making obscene gestures but unable to speak owing to the fact that his tongue had just glued itself to the roof of his mouth. Nice one, said Ron appreciatively, lifting Dobby into the air so that his flailing limbs no longer made contact with Creature. That was another Prince Hex, wasn't it? Yeah, said Harry, twisting Creature's wizened arm into a half-Nelson. Right, I'm forbidding you to fight each other. Well, Creature, you're forbidden to fight Dobby. Dobby? I know I'm not allowed to give you orders. Dobby is a free house elf, and he can obey anyone he likes. And Dobby will do whatever Harry Potter wants him to do, said Dobby, tears now streaming down his shriveled little face onto his jumper. Okay, then, said Harry, and he and Ron both released the elves, who fell to the floor, but did not continue fighting. Master called me croaked Creature, sinking into a bow, even as he gave Harry a look that plainly wished him a painful death. Yeah, I did, said Harry, glancing toward Madame Pomfrey's office door to check that the Muffliato spell was still working. There was no sign that she had heard any of the commotion. I've got a job for you. Creature will do whatever Master wants, said Creature, sinking so low that his lips almost touched his gnarled toes because Creature has no choice. But Creature is ashamed to have such a master, yes. Dobby will do it, Harry Potter, squeaked Dobby, his tennis ball-sized eyes still swimming in tears. Dobby would be honored to help Harry Potter. Come to think of it, it would be good to have both of you, said Harry. Okay, then, I want you to tail Draco Malfoy. Ignoring the look of mingled surprise and exasperation on Ron's face, Harry went on, I want to know where he's going, who he's meeting, and what he's doing. I want you to follow him around the clock. Yes, Harry Potter, said Dobby at once, his great eyes shining with excitement. And if Dobby does it wrong, Dobby will throw himself off the topmost tower, Harry Potter. There won't be any need for that, said Harry hastily. Master wants me to follow the youngest of the Malfoys, croaked Creature. Master wants me to spy upon the pure-blood great-nephew of my old mistress. That's the one, said Harry, foreseeing a great danger and determining to prevent it immediately. And you're forbidden to tip him off, Creature, or to show him what you're up to, or to talk to him at all, or to write him messages, or, or to contact him in any way. Got it? He thought he could see Creature struggling to see a loophole in the instructions he had just been given, and waited. 
After a moment or two, and to Harry's great satisfaction, Creature bowed deeply again and said, with bitter resentment, Master thinks of everything, and Creature must obey him, even though Creature would much rather be the servant of the Malfoy boy. Oh, yes. That's settled then, said Harry. I'll want regular reports, but make sure I'm not surrounded by people when you turn up. Ron and Hermione are okay, and don't tell anyone what you're doing. Just stick to Malfoy like a couple of wart plasters. Chapter 20 Lord Voldemort's Request Harry and Ron left the hospital wing first thing on Monday morning, restored to full health by the ministrations of Madame Pomfrey, and now able to enjoy the benefits of having been knocked out and poisoned, the best of which was that Hermione was friends with Ron again. Hermione even escorted them down to breakfast, bringing with her the news that Ginny had argued with Dean. The drowsing creature in Harry's chest suddenly raised its head, sniffing the air, hopefully. What did they row about? he asked, trying to sound casual as they turned onto a seventh-floor corridor that was deserted but for a very small girl who had been examining a tapestry of trolls in tutus. She looked terrified at the sight of the approaching sixth years and dropped the heavy brass scale she was carrying. It's all right, said Hermione kindly, hurrying forward to help her. Here. She tapped the broken scales with her wand and said, Ribeiro. The girl did not say thank you, but remained rooted to the spot as they passed, and watched them out of sight. Ron glanced back at her. I swear they're getting smaller, he said. Never mind her, said Harry, a little impatiently. What did Ginny and Dean row about, Hermione? Oh, Dean was laughing about McLagan hitting that bludger at you, said Hermione. It must have looked funny, said Ron reasonably. It didn't look funny at all said Hermione hotly. It looked terrible, and if Coot and Peaks hadn't caught Harry, he could have been very badly hurt. Yeah, well, there was no need for Ginny and Dean to split up over it, said Harry, still trying to sound casual. Or are they still together? Yes, they are. But why are you so interested? asked Hermione, giving Harry a sharp look. I just don't want my Quidditch team messed up again, he said hastily. But Hermione continued to look suspicious, and he was most relieved when a voice behind them called, Harry, giving him an excuse to turn his back on her. Oh, hi, Luna. I went to the hospital wing to find you, said Luna, rummaging in her bag, but they said you'd left. She thrust what appeared to be a green onion, a large spotted toadstool, and a considerable amount of what looked like cat litter into Ron's hands finally pulling out a rather grubby scroll of parchment that she handed to Harry. I've been told to give you this. It was a small roll of parchment, which Harry recognized at once as another invitation to a lesson with Dumbledore. Tonight, he told Ron and Hermione, once he had unrolled it. Nice commentary last match, said Ron to Luna, as she took back the toadstool and the cat litter. Luna smiled vaguely. You're making fun of me, aren't you? She said. Everyone says I was dreadful. No, I'm serious, said Ron earnestly. I can't remember enjoying commentary more. What is this, by the way? He added, holding the onion-like object up to eye level. Oh, it's a girdy root, 
she said, stuffing the cat litter and the toadstool back into her bag. You can keep it if you like. I've got a few of them. They're really excellent for warding off gulping plimpies. And she walked away, leaving Ron chortling, still clutching the girdy root. You know, she's grown on me, Luna, he said, as they set off again for the great hall. I know she's insane, but it's in a good... He stopped talking very suddenly. Lavender Brown was standing at the foot of the marble staircase, looking thunderous. Hi, said Ron nervously. Come on, Harry muttered to Hermione, and they sped past, though not before they had heard Lavender say, Why didn't you tell me you were getting out today, and why was she with you? Ron looked both sulky and annoyed when he appeared at breakfast half an hour later, and though he sat with Lavender, Harry did not see them exchange a word all the time they were together. Hermione was acting as though she was quite oblivious to all of this, but once or twice Harry saw an inexplicable smirk cross her face. All that day she seemed to be in a particularly good mood, and that evening in the common room she even consented to look over, in other words, finish writing, Harry's Herbology essay, something she had been resolutely refusing to do up to this point, because she had known that Harry would then let Ron copy his work. Thanks a lot, Hermione said Harry, giving her a hasty pat on the back as he checked his watch and saw that it was nearly eight o'clock. Listen, I've got to hurry or I'll be late for Dumbledore. She did not answer, but merely crossed out a few of his feebler sentences in a weary sort of way. Grinning, Harry hurried out through the portrait hole and off to the headmaster's office. The gargoyle leapt aside at the mention of Toffee Eclairs, and Harry took the spiral staircase two steps at a time, knocking on the door just as a clock within chimed eight. Enter, called Dumbledore, but as Harry put out a hand to push the door, it was wrenched open from inside. There stood Professor Trelawney. Ha-ha, she cried, pointing dramatically at Harry as she blinked at him through her magnifying spectacles. So this is the reason I am to be thrown unceremoniously from your office, Dumbledore. My dear Sybil, said Dumbledore in a slightly exasperated voice. There is no question of throwing you unceremoniously from anywhere, but Harry does have an appointment, and I really don't think there is any more to be said. Very well, said Professor Trelawney in a deeply wounded voice. If you will not banish the usurping nag, so be it. Perhaps I shall find a school where my talents are better appreciated. She pushed past Harry and disappeared down the spiral staircase. They heard her stumble halfway down, and Harry guessed that she had tripped over one of her trailing shawls. Please close the door and sit down, Harry, said Dumbledore, sounding rather tired. Harry obeyed, noticing as he took his usual seat in front of Dumbledore's desk that the pensive lay between them once more, as did two more tiny crystal bottles full of swirling memory. Professor Trelawney still isn't happy Ferenzi is teaching, then, Harry asked. No, said Dumbledore. Divination is turning out to be much more trouble than I could have foreseen, never having studied the subject myself. I cannot ask Ferenzi to return to the forests where he is now an outcast, nor can I ask Sybil Trelawney to leave. Between ourselves, she has no idea of the danger she would be in outside the castle. She does not know, and I think it would be unwise to enlighten her, that she made the prophecy about you and Voldemort, you see.
Dumbledore heaved a deep sigh, then said, But never mind my staffing problems. We have much more important matters to discuss. Firstly, have you managed the task I set you at the end of our previous lesson? Ah, said Harry, brought up short. What with apparition lessons and Quidditch and Ron being poisoned and getting his skull cracked and his determination to find out what Draco Malfoy was up to, Harry had almost forgotten about the memory Dumbledore had asked him to extract from Professor Slughorn. Well, I asked Professor Slughorn about it at the end of potions, sir, but, uh, he wouldn't give it to me. There was a little silence. I see said Dumbledore eventually, peering at Harry over the top of his half-moon spectacles and giving Harry the usual sensation that he was being x-rayed. And you feel that you have exerted your very best efforts in this matter, do you? That you have exercised all of your considerable ingenuity? That you have left no depth of cunning unplumbed in your quest to retrieve the memory? Well, Harry saw that a loss for what to say next. His single attempt to get hold of the memory suddenly seemed embarrassingly feeble. Well, the day Ron swallowed Love Potion by mistake, I took him to Professor Slughorn. I thought maybe if I got Professor Slughorn in a good enough mood... And did that work? asked Dumbledore. Well, no, sir, because Ron got poisoned. Which naturally made you forget all about trying to retrieve the memory. I would have expected nothing else while your best friend was in danger. Once it became clear that Mr. Weasley was going to make a full recovery, however, I would have hoped that you returned to the task I set you. I thought I made it clear to you how very important that memory is. Indeed, I did my best to impress upon you that it is the most crucial memory of all and that we will be wasting our time without it. A hot, prickly feeling of shame spread from the top of Harry's head all the way down his body. Dumbledore had not raised his voice. He did not even sound angry, but Harry would have preferred him to yell. This cold disappointment was worse than anything. Sir, he said a little desperately, it isn't that I wasn't bothered or anything. I've just had other, other things. Other things on your mind. Dumbledore finished the sentence for him. I see. Silence fell between them again, the most uncomfortable silence Harry had ever experienced with Dumbledore. It seemed to go on and on, punctuated only by the little grunting snores of the portrait of Armando Dippet over Dumbledore's head. Harry felt strangely diminished, as though he had shrunk a little since he had entered the room. When he could stand it no longer, he said, Professor Dumbledore, I'm really sorry. I should have done more. I should have realized you wouldn't have asked me to do it if it wasn't really important. Thank you for saying that, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. May I hope, then, that you will give this matter higher priority from now on? There will be little point in our meeting after tonight unless we have that memory. I'll do it, sir. I'll get it from him, he said earnestly. Then we shall say no more about it just now, said Dumbledore more kindly. But continue with our story where we left off. You remember where that was? Yes, sir, said Harry quickly. Voldemort killed his father and his grandparents and made it look as though his uncle Morfin did it. Then he went back to Hogwarts and he asked, 
He asked Professor Slughorn about Horcruxes. He mumbled shamefacedly. Very good, said Dumbledore. Now, you will remember, I hope, that I told you at the very outset of these meetings of ours that we would be entering the realms of guesswork and speculation. Yes, sir. Thus far, as I hope you agree, I have shown you reasonably firm sources of fact for my deductions as to what Voldemort did until the age of seventeen. Harry nodded. But now, Harry, said Dumbledore, now things become murkier and stranger. If it was difficult to find evidence about the boy riddle, it has been almost impossible to find anyone prepared to reminisce about the man Voldemort. In fact, I doubt whether there is a soul alive, apart from himself, who could give us a full account of his life since he left Hogwarts. However, I have two last memories that I would like to share with you. Dumbledore indicated the two little crystal bottles gleaming beside the pensive. I shall then be glad of your opinion as to whether the conclusions I have drawn from them seem likely. The idea that Dumbledore valued his opinion this highly made Harry feel even more deeply ashamed that he had failed in the task of retrieving the Horcrux memory, and he shifted guiltily in his seat as Dumbledore raised the first of the two bottles to the light and examined it. I hope you are not tired of diving into other people's memories, for they are curious recollections, these two, he said. This first one came from a very old house elf by the name of Hokey. Before we see what Hokey witnessed, I must quickly recount how Lord Voldemort left Hogwarts. He reached the seventh year of his schooling with, as you might have expected, top grades in every examination he had taken. All around him, his classmates were deciding which jobs they were to pursue once they had left Hogwarts. Nearly everybody expected spectacular things from Tom Riddle. Prefect, head boy, winner of the award for special services to the school. I know that several teachers, Professor Slughorn among them, suggested that he join the Ministry of Magic, offered to set up appointments, put him in touch with useful contacts. He refused all offers. The next thing the staff knew, Voldemort was working at Borgin and Burke's. At Borgin and Burke's? Harry repeated, stunned. At Borgin and Burke's, repeated Dumbledore calmly. I think you will see what attractions the place held for him when we have entered Hokey's memory. But this was not Voldemort's first choice of job. Hardly anyone knew of it at the time. I was one of the few in whom the then headmaster confided. But Voldemort first approached Professor Dippet and asked whether he could remain at Hogwarts as a teacher. He wanted to stay here? Why? asked Harry, more amazed still. I believe he had several reasons, though he confided none of them to Professor Dippet, said Dumbledore. Firstly, and very importantly, Voldemort was, I believe, more attached to this school than he has ever been to a person. Hogwarts was where he had been happiest, the first and only place he had felt at home. Harry felt slightly uncomfortable at these words, for this was exactly how he felt about Hogwarts, too. Secondly, the castle is a stronghold of ancient magic. Undoubtedly, Voldemort had penetrated many more of its secrets than most of the students who passed through the place. But he may have felt that there were still mysteries to unravel, 
source of magic to tap. And thirdly, as a teacher, he would have had great power and influence over young witches and wizards. Perhaps he had gained the idea from Professor Slughorn, the teacher with whom he was on best terms, who had demonstrated how influential a role a teacher can play. I do not imagine for an instant that Voldemort envisaged spending the rest of his life at Hogwarts, but I do think that he saw it as a useful recruiting ground and a place where he might begin to build himself an army. But he didn't get the job, sir? No, he did not. Professor Dippet told him that he was too young at 18, but invited him to reapply in a few years if he still wished to teach. How did you feel about that, sir? asked Harry hesitantly. Deeply uneasy, said Dumbledore. I had advised Armando against the appointment. I did not give the reasons I have given you, for Professor Dippet was very fond of Voldemort and convinced of his honesty. But I did not want Lord Voldemort back at this school, and especially not in a position of power. Which job did he want, sir? What subject did he want to teach? Somehow Harry knew the answer even before Dumbledore gave it. Defense against the dark arts. It was being taught at the time by an old professor by the name of Galatea Merrythought, who had been at Hogwarts for nearly fifty years. So Voldemort went off to Borgin and Burks, and all the staff who had admired him said what a waste it was, a brilliant young wizard like that working in a shop. However, Voldemort was no mere assistant. Polite and handsome and clever, he was soon given particular jobs of the type that only exists in a place like Borgin and Burke's, which specializes, as you know, Harry, in objects with unusual and powerful properties. Voldemort was sent to persuade people to part with their treasures for sale by the partners, and he was, by all accounts, unusually gifted at doing this. I'll bet he was, said Harry, unable to contain himself. Well, quite, said Dumbledore with a faint smile. And now it is time to hear from Hokey the house elf, who worked for a very old, very rich witch by the name of Hepzibah Smith. Dumbledore tapped a bottle with his wand. The cork flew out, and he tipped the swirling memory into the pensive, saying as he did so, After you, Harry. Harry got to his feet and bent once more over the rippling silver contents of the stone basin until his face touched them. He tumbled through dark nothingness and landed in a sitting room in front of an immensely fat old lady wearing an elaborate ginger wig and a brilliant pink set of robes that flowed all around her, giving her the look of a melting iced cake. She was looking into a small jeweled mirror and dabbing rouge onto her already scarlet cheeks with a large powder puff, while the tiniest and oldest house elf Harry had ever seen laced her fleshy feet into tight satin slippers. Hurry up, Hokey, said Hepzibar imperiously. He said he'd come at four. It's only a couple of minutes, too, and he's never been late yet. She tucked away her powder puff as the house elf straightened up. The top of the elf's head barely reached the seat of Hepzibar's chair, and her papery skin hung off her frame, just like the crisp linen sheet she wore draped like a toga. How do I look? said Hepzibar turning her head to admire the various angles of her face in the mirror. Lovely, madam, squeaked Hokey. 
Harry could only assume that it was down in Hokey's contract that she must lie through her teeth when asked this question, because Hepzibah Smith looked a long way from lovely in his opinion. A tinkling doorbell rang, and both Mistress and Elf jumped. Quick, quick, he's here, Hokey, cried Hepzibah, and the Elf scurried out of the room, which was so crammed with objects that it was difficult to see how anybody could navigate their way across it without knocking over at least a dozen things. There were cabinets full of little lacquered boxes, cases full of gold-embossed books, shelves of orbs and celestial globes, and many flourishing potted plants in brass containers. In fact, the room looked like a cross between a magical antique shop and a conservatory. The house elf returned within minutes, followed by a tall young man Harry had no difficulty whatsoever in recognizing as Voldemort. He was plainly dressed in a black suit, his hair was a little longer than it had been at school, and his cheeks were hollowed. But all of this suited him. He looked more handsome than ever. He picked his way through the cramped room with an air that showed he had visited many times before, and bowed low over Hepzibah's fat little hand, brushing it with his lips. I brought you flowers, he said quietly, producing a bunch of roses from nowhere. You naughty boy, you shouldn't have, squealed old Hepzibah, though Harry noticed that she had an empty vase standing ready on the nearest little table. You do spoil this old lady, Tom. Sit down, sit down. Where's Hokey? Ha! <gasps> the house elf had come dashing back into the room, carrying a tray of little cakes, which he set at her mistress's elbow. Help yourself, Tom said Hepzibah. I know how you love my cakes. Now, how are you? You look pale. They overwork you at that shop. I've said it a hundred times. Voldemort smiled mechanically, and Hepzibah simpered. Well, what's your excuse for visiting this time? She asked, batting her lashes. Mr. Burke would like to make an improved offer for the goblin-made armor, said Voldemort. Five hundred galleons. He feels it is a more than fair. Now, now, not so fast, or I think you're only here for my trinkets, pouted Hepzibah. I am ordered here because of them, said Voldemort quietly. I am only a poor assistant, madam, who must do as he is told. Mr. Burke wishes me to inquire. Oh, Mr. Burke, phooey said Hepzibah, waving a little hand. I've something to show you that I've never shown Mr. Burke. Can you keep a secret, Tom? Will you promise you won't tell Mr. Burke I've got it? He'd never let me rest if he knew I'd shown it to you, and I'm not selling, not to Burke, not to anyone. But you, Tom, you'll appreciate it for its history, not how many galleons you can get for it. I'd be glad to see anything Miss Hepzibah shows me, said Voldemort quietly, and Hepzibah gave another girlish giggle. I had Hokey bring it out for me. Hokey, where are you? I want to show Mr. Riddle our finest treasure. In fact, bring both while you're at it. Hey, uh, madam, squeaked the house elf and Harry saw two leather boxes, one on top of the other, moving across the room as if of their own volition, though he knew the tiny elf was holding them over her head as she wended her way between tables, poofs, and footstools. 
Now, said Hepzibah happily, taking the boxes from the elf, laying them in her lap, and preparing to open the topmost one. I think you'll like this, Tom. Oh, if my family knew I was showing you, they can't wait to get their hands on this. She opened the lid. Harry edged forward a little to get a better view, and saw what looked like a small golden cup with two finely wrought handles. I wonder whether you know what this is, Tom. Pick it up. Have a good look, whispered Hepzibah, and Voldemort stretched out a long-fingered hand and lifted the cup by one handle out of its snug silken wrappings. Harry thought he saw a red gleam in his dark eyes. His greedy expression was curiously mirrored on Hepzibah's face, except that her tiny eyes were fixed upon Voldemort's handsome features. A badger, murmured Voldemort, examining the engraving upon the cup. Then this was Helga Hufflepuff's, as you very well know, you clever boy, said Hepzibah, leaning forward with a loud creaking of corsets and actually pinching his hollow cheek. Didn't I tell you I was distantly descended? This has been handed down in the family for years and years. Lovely, isn't it? And all sorts of powers it's supposed to possess, too. But I haven't tested them thoroughly. I just keep it nice and safe in here. She hooked the cup back off Voldemort's long forefinger and restored it gently to its box, too intent upon settling it carefully back into position to notice the shadow that crossed Voldemort's face as the cup was taken away. Now then, said Hepzibah happily. Bit hokey. Oh, yes, there you are. Take that away now, hokey. The elf obediently took the boxed cup, and Hepzibah turned her attention to the much flatter box in her lap. I think you'll like this even more, Tom, she whispered. Lean in a little, dear boy, so you can see. Of course, Burke knows I've got this one. I bought it from him, and I dare say he'd love to get it back when I'm gone. She slid back the fine filigree clasp and flipped open the box. There upon the smooth crimson velvet lay a heavy golden locket. Voldemort reached out his hand without invitation this time and held it up to the light, staring at it. Slytherin's mark, he said quietly, as the light played upon an ornate serpentine S. That's right, said Hepzibah, delighted, apparently at the sight of Voldemort gazing at her locket transfixed. I had to pay an arm and a leg for it, but I couldn't let it pass. Not a real treasure like that. Had to have it for my collection. Burke bought it, apparently, from a ragged-looking woman who seemed to have stolen it but had no idea of its true value. There was no mistaking it this time. Voldemort's eyes flashed scarlet at the words, and Harry saw his knuckles whiten on the locket's chain. I dare say Burke paid her a pittance, but there you are. Pretty, isn't it? And again, all kinds of powers attributed to it, though I just keep it nice and safe. She reached out to take the locket back. For a moment, Harry thought Voldemort was not going to let go of it, but then it had slid through his fingers and was back in its red velvet cushion. 
So there you are, Tom, dear, and I hope you enjoyed that. She looked him full in the face, and for the first time, Harry saw her foolish smile falter. Are you all right, dear? Oh, yes, said Voldemort quietly. Yes, I'm very well. I thought, but a trick of the light, I suppose, said Hepzibah, looking unnerved. And Harry guessed that she, too, had seen the momentary red gleam in Voldemort's eyes. Here, Hokey, take these away and lock them up again. The usual enchantments. Time to leave, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. And as the little elf bobbed away bearing the boxes, Dumbledore grasped Harry once again above the elbow, and together they rose up through oblivion and back to Dumbledore's office. Hepzibah Smith died two days after that little scene, said Dumbledore, resuming his seat and indicating that Harry should do the same. Hokey, the house elf, was convicted by the Ministry of poisoning her mistress's evening cocoa by accident. No way, said Harry angrily. I see we are of one mind, said Dumbledore. Certainly there are many similarities between this death and that of the riddles. In both cases, somebody else took the blame. Someone who had a clear memory of having caused the death. Hokey confessed. She remembered putting something in her mistress's cocoa that turned out not to be sugar, but a lethal and little-known poison, said Dumbledore. It was concluded that she had not meant to do it, but being old and confused. Voldemort modified her memory, just like he did with Morphin. Yes, that is my conclusion, too, said Dumbledore. And just as with Morphin, the Ministry was predisposed to suspect Hokey. Because she was a house elf, said Harry. He had rarely felt more in sympathy with the society Hermione has set up, S-P-E-W. Precisely said Dumbledore. She was old, she admitted to having tampered with the drink, and nobody at the Ministry bothered to inquire further. As in the case of Morphine, by the time I traced her and managed to extract this memory, her life was almost over. But her memory, of course, proves nothing except that Voldemort knew of the existence of the cup and the locket. By the time Hokey was convicted, Hepzibah's family had realized that two of her greatest treasures were missing. It took them a while to be sure of this, for she had many hiding places, having always guarded her collection most jealously. But before they were sure beyond doubt that the cup and the locket were both gone, the assistant who had worked at Borgin and Burks, the young man who had visited Hepzibah so regularly and charmed her so well, had resigned his post and vanished. His superiors had no idea where he had gone. They were as surprised as anyone at his disappearance. And that was the last that was seen or heard of Tom Riddle for a very long time. Now, said Dumbledore, if you don't mind, Harry, I want to pause once more to draw your attention to certain points of our story. Voldemort had committed another murder. Whether it was his first since he killed the Riddles, I do not know, but I think it was. This time, as you will have seen, he killed not for revenge, but for gain. 
He wanted the two fabulous trophies that poor, besotted old woman showed him, just as he had once robbed the other children at his orphanage, just as he had stolen his Uncle Morphin's ring. So he ran off now with Hepzibah's cup and locket. But, said Harry, frowning, it seems mad, risking everything, throwing away his job, just for those... Mad to you, perhaps, but not to Voldemort, said Dumbledore. I hope you will understand in due course exactly what those objects meant to him, Harry. But you must admit that it is not difficult to imagine that he saw the locket at least as rightfully his. The locket may be, said Harry, but why take the cup as well? It had belonged to another of Hogwarts' founders, said Dumbledore. I think he still felt a great pull toward the school, and that he could not resist an object so steeped in Hogwarts' history. There were other reasons, I think. I hope to be able to demonstrate them to you in due course. And now, for the very last recollection I have to show you, at least until you manage to retrieve Professor Slughorn's memory for us. Ten years separates Hokey's memory and this one. Ten years during which we can only guess at what Lord Voldemort was doing. Harry got to his feet once more as Dumbledore emptied the last memory into the pensive. Whose memory is it? he asked. Mine, said Dumbledore. And Harry dived after Dumbledore through the shifting silver mass, landing in the very office he had just left. There was Fawkes slumbering happily on his perch, and there behind the desk was Dumbledore, who looked very similar to the Dumbledore standing beside Harry, though both hands were whole and undamaged, and his face was, perhaps, a little less lined. The one difference between the present-day office and this one was that it was snowing in the past. Bluish flecks were drifting past the window in the dark and building up on the outside ledge. The younger Dumbledore seemed to be waiting for something, and sure enough, moments after their arrival, there was a knock on the door, and he said, Enter! Harry let out a hastily stifled gasp. Voldemort had entered the room. His features were not those Harry had seen emerge from the great stone cauldron almost two years ago. They were not as snake-like, the eyes were not yet scarlet, the face not yet mask-like, and yet he was no longer handsome Tom Riddle. It was as though his features had been burned and blurred. They were waxy and oddly distorted, and the whites of the eyes now had a permanently bloody look, though the pupils were not yet the slits that Harry knew they would become. He was wearing a long black cloak, and his face was as pale as the snow glistening on his shoulders. The Dumbledore behind the desk showed no sign of surprise. Evidently, this visit had been made by appointment. Good evening, Tom, said Dumbledore easily. Won't you sit down? Thank you, said Voldemort, and he took the seat to which Dumbledore had gestured, the very seat by the looks of it that Harry had just vacated in the present. I heard that you had become headmaster, he said, and his voice was slightly higher and colder than it had been. A worthy choice. I am glad you approve, said Dumbledore, smiling. May I offer you a drink? That would be welcome, said Voldemort. I have come a long way. Dumbledore stood and swept over to the cabinet where he now kept the pensive, but which then was full of bottles. Having handed Voldemort a goblet of wine and poured one for himself, he returned to the seat behind his desk. So, Tom, to what do I owe the pleasure? Voldemort did not answer at once, but merely sipped his wine. 
They do not call me Tom anymore, he said. These days, I am known as... I know what you are known as, said Dumbledore, smiling pleasantly. But to me, I'm afraid, you will always be Tom Riddle. It is one of the irritating things about old teachers. I'm afraid that they never quite forget their charge's youthful beginnings. He raised his glass as though toasting Voldemort, whose face remained expressionless. Nevertheless, Harry felt the atmosphere in the room change subtly. Dumbledore's refusal to use Voldemort's chosen name was a refusal to allow Voldemort to dictate the terms of the meeting, and Harry could tell that Voldemort took it as such. I am surprised you have remained here so long, said Voldemort after a short pause. I always wondered why a wizard such as yourself never wished to leave school. Well, said Dumbledore, still smiling, to a wizard such as myself, there can be nothing more important than passing on ancient skills, helping hone young minds. If I remember correctly, you once saw the attraction of teaching, too. I see it still, said Voldemort. I merely wondered why you, who are so often asked for advice by the Ministry, and who have twice, I think, been offered the post of Minister. Three times at the last count, actually said Dumbledore. But the ministry never attracted me as a career. Again, something we have in common, I think. Voldemort inclined his head, unsmiling, and took another sip of wine. Dumbledore did not break the silence that stretched between them now, but waited with a look of pleasant expectancy for Voldemort to talk first. I have returned, he said after a little while, later, perhaps, than Professor Dippet expected. But I have returned, nevertheless, to request again what he once told me I was too young to have. I have come to you to ask that you permit me to return to this castle to teach. I think you must know that I have seen and done much since I left this place. I could show and tell your students things they can gain from no other wizard. Dumbledore considered Voldemort over the top of his own goblet for a while before speaking. Yes, I certainly do know that you have seen and done much since leaving us, he said quietly. Rumors of your doings have reached your old school, Tom. I should be sorry to believe half of them. Voldemort's expression remained impassive as he said, Greatness inspires envy, envy engenders spite, spite spawns lies. You must know this, Dumbledore. You call it? Greatness, what you have been doing, do you? asked Dumbledore delicately. Certainly, said Voldemort, and his eyes seemed to burn red. I have experimented. I have pushed the boundaries of magic further, perhaps, than they have ever been pushed. Of some kinds of magic, Dumbledore corrected him quietly. Of some. Of others, you remain, forgive me, woefully ignorant. For the first time, Voldemort smiled. It was a taut leer, an evil thing, more threatening than a look of rage. The old argument, he said softly. But nothing I have seen in the world has supported your famous pronouncements that love is more powerful than my kind of magic, Dumbledore. Perhaps you have been looking in the wrong places, suggested Dumbledore. Well, then. 
What better place to start my fresh researches than here at Hogwarts, said Voldemort. Will you let me return? Will you let me share my knowledge with your students? I place myself and my talents at your disposal. I am yours to command. Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. And what will become of those whom you command? What will happen to those who call themselves, or so rumor has it, the Death Eaters? Harry could tell that Voldemort had not expected Dumbledore to know this name. He saw Voldemort's eyes flash red again, and the slit-like nostrils flare. My friends, he said after a moment's pause, will carry on without me, I am sure. I am glad to hear that you considered them friends, said Dumbledore. I was under the impression that they are more in the order of servants. You are mistaken, said Voldemort. Then if I were to go to the hog's head tonight, I would not find a group of them, not Rosier, Mulciber, Dolohoff, awaiting your return. Devoted friends indeed to travel this far with you on a snowy night, merely to wish you luck as you attempted to secure a teaching post. There could be no doubt that Dumbledore's detailed knowledge of those with whom he was traveling was even less welcome to Voldemort. However, he rallied almost at once. You are omniscient as ever, Dumbledore. Oh, no, merely friendly with the local barmen, said Dumbledore lightly. Now, Tom. Dumbledore set down his empty glass and drew himself up in his seat, the tips of his fingers together in a very characteristic gesture. Let us speak openly. Why have you come here tonight, surrounded by henchmen, to request a job we both know you do not want? Voldemort looked coldly surprised. A job I do not want? On the contrary, Dumbledore, I want it very much. Oh, you want to come back to Hogwarts, but you do not want to teach any more than you wanted to when you were eighteen. What is it you're after, Tom? Why not try an open request for once? Voldemort sneered. If you do not want to give me a job, of course I don't, said Dumbledore, and I don't think for a moment you expected me to. Nevertheless, you came here. You asked. You must have had a purpose. Voldemort stood up. He looked less like Tom Riddle than ever, his features thick with rage. This is your final word. It is, said Dumbledore, also standing. Then we have nothing more to say to each other. No, nothing, said Dumbledore, and a great sadness filled his face. The time is long gone when I could frighten you with a burning wardrobe and force you to make repayment for your crimes. But I wish I could, Tom, I wish I could. For a second, Harry was on the verge of shouting a pointless warning. He was sure that Voldemort's hand had twitched toward his pocket and his wand. But then the moment had passed. Voldemort had turned away. The door was closing, and he was gone. Harry felt Dumbledore's hand close over his arm again, and moments later they were standing together on almost the same spot. But there was no snow building on the window ledge, and Dumbledore's hand was blackened and dead-looking once more. Why? said Harry at once, looking up into Dumbledore's face. Why did he come back? Did you ever find out? I have ideas 
said Dumbledore, but no more than that. What ideas, sir? I shall tell you, Harry, when you have retrieved that memory from Professor Slughorn, said Dumbledore. When you have that last piece of the jigsaw, everything will, I hope, be clear to both of us. Harry was still burning with curiosity, and even though Dumbledore had walked to the door and was holding it open for him, he did not move at once. Was he after the defense against the dark arts job again, sir? He didn't say. Oh, he definitely wanted the defense against the dark arts job, said Dumbledore. The aftermath of our little meeting proved that. You see, we have never been able to keep a defense against the dark arts teacher for longer than a year since I refused the post to Lord Voldemort. Chapter 21 the Unknowable Room Harry racked his brains over the next week as to how he was to persuade Slughorn to hand over the true memory, but nothing in the nature of a brainwave occurred, and he was reduced to doing what he did increasingly these days when at a loss, poring over his potions book, hoping that the prince would have scribbled something useful in a margin, as he had done so many times before. You won't find anything in there! said Hermione firmly, late on Sunday evening. Don't start, Hermione, said Harry. If it hadn't been for the prince, Ron wouldn't be sitting here now. He would if you'd just listened to Snape in our first year, said Hermione dismissively. Harry ignored her. He had just found an incantation, Sectum Sempra, scrawled in a margin, above the intriguing words, For Enemies, and was itching to try it out, but thought it best not to in front of Hermione. Instead, he surreptitiously folded down the corner of the page. They were sitting beside the fire in the common room. The only other people awake were fellow sixth years. There had been a certain amount of excitement earlier when they had come back from dinner to find a new sign on the notice board that announced the date for their apparition test. Those who would be seventeen on or before the first test date, the 21st of April, had the option of signing up for additional practice sessions, which would take place, heavily supervised, in Hogsmeade. Ron had panicked on reading this notice. He had still not managed to apparate and feared he would not be ready for the test. Hermione, who had now achieved apparition twice, was a little more confident. But Harry, who would not be seventeen for another four months, could not take the test whether ready or not. At least you can apparate, though, said Ron tensely. You'll have no trouble come July. I've only done it once, Harry reminded him. He had finally managed to disappear and rematerialize inside his hoop during their previous lesson. Having wasted a lot of time worrying aloud about apparition, Ron was now struggling to finish a viciously difficult essay for Snape that Harry and Hermione had already completed. Harry fully expected to receive low marks on his because he had disagreed with Snape on the best way to tackle Dementors. But he did not care. Slughorn's memory was the most important thing to him now. I'm telling you, the stupid prince isn't going to be able to help you with this, Harry, said Hermione more loudly. There's only one way to force someone to do what you want, and that's the Imperious Curse, which is illegal. Yeah, I know that. Thanks, said Harry, not looking up from the book. That's why I'm looking for something different. Dumbledore says Veritas Serum won't do it, but there might be something else, a potion or a spell. You're going about it the wrong way, said Hermione. 
Only you can get the memory, Dumbledore says. That must mean you can persuade Slughorn where other people can't. It's not a question of slipping him a potion. Anyone could do that. How do you spell belligerent? said Ron, shaking his quill very hard while staring at his parchment. It can't be B-U-M. No, it isn't, said Hermione, pulling Ron's essay toward her. And augury doesn't begin O-R-G, either. What kind of quill are you using? It's one of Fred and George's spell-check ones, but I think the charm must be wearing off. Yes, it must, said Hermione, pointing at the title of his essay. Because we were asked how we'd deal with Dementors, not Dugbods. And I don't remember you changing your name to Runil Woslib, either. Ah, oh, no, said Ron, staring horror-struck at the parchment. Don't say I'll have to write the whole thing out again. It's okay, we can fix it, said Hermione, pulling the essay toward her and taking out her wand. I love you, Hermione, said Ron, sinking back in his chair, rubbing his eyes wearily. Hermione turned faintly pink, but merely said, Don't let Lavender hear you saying that. I won't, said Ron into his hands, or maybe I will, then she'll ditch me. Why don't you ditch her if you want to finish it? asked Harry. You haven't ever chucked anyone, have you? said Ron. You and Cho just sort of fell apart. Yeah, said Harry. Wish that would happen with me and Lavender said Ron gloomily, watching Hermione silently tapping each of his misspelled words with the end of her wand so that they corrected themselves on the page. But the more I hint I want to finish it, the tighter she holds on. It's like going out with the giant squid. There, said Hermione some twenty minutes later, handing back Ron's essay. Thanks a million, said Ron. Can I borrow your quill for the conclusion? Harry, who had found nothing useful in the Half-Blood Prince's notes so far, looked around. The three of them were now the only ones left in the common room, Seamus having just gone up to bed, cursing Snape and his essay. The only sounds were the crackling of the fire and Ron scratching out one last paragraph on Dementors using Hermione's quill. Harry had just closed the Half-Blood Prince's book, yawning, when... Crack! Hermione let out a little shriek. Ron spilled ink all over his freshly completed essay, and Harry said, Creature! The house elf bowed low and addressed his own gnarled toes. Master said he wanted regular reports on what the Malfoy boy is doing, so Creature has come to give... Crack! Dobby appeared alongside Creature, his tea-cozy hat askew. Dobby has been helping too, Harry Potter! He squeaked, casting Creature a resentful look. And Creature ought to tell Dobby when he is coming to see Harry Potter so they can make their reports together. What is this? asked Hermione, still looking shocked by these sudden appearances. What's going on, Harry? Harry hesitated before answering, because he had not told Hermione about setting Creature and Dobby to tail Malfoy. House elves were always such a touchy subject with her. Well, they've been following Malfoy for me, he said. Night and day, croaked Creature. Dobby has not slept for a week, Harry Potter, said Dobby proudly, swaying where he stood. Hermione looked indignant. You haven't slept, Dobby? But surely, Harry, you didn't tell him not to. No, of course I didn't, said Harry quickly. Dobby, you can sleep, all right? But has either of you found out anything? He hastened to ask before Hermione could intervene again. 
Master Malfoy moves with a nobility that befits his pure blood, croaked Creature at once. His features recall the fine bones of my mistress, and his manners are those of... Draco Malfoy is a bad boy, squeaked Dobby angrily. A bad boy, who... who... He shuddered from the tassel of his tea cozy to the toes of his socks, and then ran at the fire as though about to dive into it. Harry, to whom this was not entirely unexpected, caught him around the middle and held him fast. For a few seconds, Dobby struggled, then went limp. Thank you, Harry Potter, he panted. Dobby still finds it difficult to speak ill of his old masters. Harry released him. Dobby straightened his tea cozy and said defiantly to Creature, But Creature should know that Draco Malfoy is not a good master to a house elf. Yeah, we don't need to hear about you being in love with Malfoy, Harry told Creature. Let's fast forward to where he's actually been going. Creature bowed again, looking furious, and then said, Master Malfoy eats in the Great Hall, he sleeps in a dormitory in the dungeons, he attends his classes in a variety of... Dobby, you tell me, said Harry, cutting across Creature. Has he been going anywhere he shouldn't have? Harry Potter, sir, squeaked Dobby, his great orb-like eyes shining in the firelight. The Malfoy boy is breaking no rules that Dobby can discover, but he is still keen to avoid detection. He has been making regular visits to the seventh floor with a variety of other students who keep watch for him while he enters. The room of requirement, said Harry, smacking himself hard on the forehead with advanced potion-making. Hermione and Ron stared at him. That's where he's been sneaking off to. That's where he's doing whatever he's doing. And I bet that's why he's been disappearing off the map. Come to think of it, I've never seen the room of requirement on there. Maybe the marauders never knew the room was there, said Ron. I think it'll be part of the magic of the room, said Hermione. If you need it to be unplottable, it will be. Dobby, have you managed to get in to have a look at what Malfoy's doing? said Harry eagerly. No, Harry Potter, that is impossible, said Dobby. No, it's not, said Harry at once. Malfoy got into our headquarters there last year, so I'll be able to get in and spy on him, no problem. But I don't think you will, Harry, said Hermione slowly. Malfoy already knew exactly how we were using the room, didn't he? Because that stupid Marietta had blabbed. He needed the room to become the headquarters of the DA, so it did. But you don't know what the room becomes when Malfoy goes in there, so you don't know what to ask it to transform into. There'll be a way around that, said Harry dismissively. You've done brilliantly, Dobby. Creature's done well too, said Hermione kindly, but far from looking grateful, Creature averted his huge bloodshot eyes and croaked at the ceiling. The mud blood is speaking to Creature. Creature will pretend he cannot hear. Get out of it. Harry snapped at him, and Creature made one last deep bow and disapparated. You'd better go and get some sleep too, Dobby. Thank you, Harry Potter, sir, squeaked Dobby happily, and he too vanished. How good's this, said Harry enthusiastically, turning to Ron and Hermione the moment the room was elf-free again. We know where Malfoy's going. We got him cornered now. Yeah, it's great.
said Ron glumly, who was attempting to mop up the sodden mass of ink that had recently been an almost completed essay. Hermione pulled it toward her and began siphoning the ink off with her wand. But what's all this about him going up there with a variety of students, said Hermione. How many people are in on it? You wouldn't think he'd trust lots of them to know what he's doing. Yeah, that is weird, said Harry, frowning. I heard him telling Crab it wasn't Crab's business what he was doing. So what's he telling all these... all these... Harry's voice tailed away. He was staring at the fire. God, I've been stupid, he said quietly. It's obvious, isn't it? There was a great vat of it down in the dungeon. He could have nicked some any time during that lesson. Nicked what? said Ron. Polyjuice potion. He stole some of the polyjuice potions Slughorn showed us in our first potions lesson. There aren't a whole variety of students standing guard for Malfoy. It's just Crab and Goyle, as usual. Yeah, it all fits, said Harry, jumping up and starting to pace in front of the fire. They're stupid enough to do what they're told, even if he won't tell them what he's up to. But he doesn't want them to be seen lurking around outside the room of requirement, so he's got them taking polyjuice to make them look like other people. Those two girls I saw him with when he missed Quidditch. Ha! Crab and Goyle. Do you mean to say, said Hermione in a hushed voice, that that little girl whose scales I repaired? Yeah, of course, said Harry loudly, staring at her. Of course. Malfoy must have been inside the room at the time. So she... What am I talking about? He dropped the scales to tell Malfoy not to come out, because there was someone there. And there was that girl who dropped the toadspawn, too. We've been walking past him all the time and not realizing it. He's got Crab and Goyle transforming into girls, guffawed Ron. Blimey, no wonder they don't look too happy these days. I'm surprised they don't tell him to stuff it. Well, they wouldn't, would they, if he's shown them his dark mark, said Harry. Hmm, the dark mark we don't know exists, said Hermione skeptically, rolling up Ron's dried essay before it could come to any more harm and handing it to him. We'll see, said Harry confidently. Yes, we will. Hermione said, getting to her feet and stretching. But Harry, before you get all excited, I still don't think you'll be able to get into the room of requirement without knowing what's there first. And I don't think you should forget. She heaved her bag onto her shoulder and gave him a very serious look. That what you're supposed to be concentrating on is getting that memory from Slughorn. Good night. Harry watched her go, feeling slightly disgruntled. Once the door to the girls' dormitories had closed behind her, he rounded on Ron. What do you think? Wish I could disapparate like a house elf, said Ron, staring at the spot where Dobby had vanished. I'd have that apparition test in the bag. Harry did not sleep well that night. He lay awake for what felt like hours, wondering how Malfoy was using the room of requirement, and what he, Harry, would see when he went in there the following day. For whatever Hermione said, Harry was sure that if Malfoy had been able to see the headquarters of the DA, he would be able to see Malfoy's. What could it be? A meeting place? A hideout? A storeroom? A workshop? Harry's mind worked feverishly, and his dreams, when he finally fell asleep, were broken and disturbed by images of Malfoy, who turned into Slughorn, who turned into Snape. 
Harry was in a state of great anticipation over breakfast the following morning. He had a free period before defense against the dark arts and was determined to spend it trying to get into the room of requirement. Hermione was rather ostentatiously showing no interest in his whispered plans for forcing entry into the room, which irritated Harry because he thought she might be a lot of help if she wanted to. Look, he said quietly, leaning forward and putting a hand on the Daily Prophet, which she had just removed from a post-owl, to stop her from opening it and vanishing behind it. I haven't forgotten about Slughorn, but I haven't got a clue how to get that memory off him. And until I get a brainwave, why shouldn't I find out what Malfoy's doing? I've already told you, you need to persuade Slughorn, said Hermione. It's not a question of tricking him or bewitching him, or Dumbledore could have done it in a second. Instead of messing around outside the room of requirement, she jerked the prophet out from under Harry's hand and unfolded it to look at the front page. You should go and find Slughorn and start appealing to his better nature. Anyone we know? asked Ron as Hermione scanned the headlines. Yes, said Hermione, causing both Harry and Ron to gag on their breakfast. But it's all right, he's not dead. It's Mundungus. He's been arrested and sent to Azkaban. Something to do with impersonating an inferior during an attempted burglary. And someone called Octavius Pepper has vanished. Oh, and how horrible. A nine-year-old boy has been arrested for trying to kill his grandparents. They think he was under the imperious curse. They finished their breakfast in silence. Hermione set off immediately for ancient runes. Ron for the common room, where he still had to finish his conclusion on Snape's Dementor essay, and Harry for the corridor on the seventh floor and the stretch of wall opposite the tapestry of Barnabas the Barmy teaching trolls to do ballet. Harry slipped on his invisibility cloak once he had found an empty passage, but he need not have bothered. When he reached his destination, he found it deserted. Harry was not sure whether his chances of getting inside the room were better, with Malfoy inside it, or out. But at least his first attempt was not going to be complicated by the presence of Crab, or Goyle, pretending to be an eleven-year-old girl. He closed his eyes as he approached the place where the room of requirements door was concealed. He knew what he had to do. He had become most accomplished at it last year. Concentrating with all his might, he thought, I need to see what Malfoy's doing in here. I need to see what Malfoy's doing in here. I need to see what Malfoy's doing in here. Three times he walked past the door. Then, his heart pounding with excitement, he opened his eyes and faced it. But he was still looking at a stretch of mundanely blank wall. He moved forward and gave it an experimental push. The stone remained solid and unyielding. Okay said Harry aloud. Okay, I thought the wrong thing. He pondered for a moment, then set off again, eyes closed, concentrating as hard as he could. I need to see the place where Malfoy keeps coming secretly. I need to see the place where Malfoy keeps coming secretly. After three walks passed, he opened his eyes expectantly. There was no door. Oh, come off it, he told the wall irritably. That was a clear instruction. Fine. He thought hard for several minutes before striding off once more. I need you to become the place you become for Draco Malfoy. 
He did not immediately open his eyes when he had finished his patrolling. He was listening hard, as though he might hear the door pop into existence. He heard nothing, however, except the distant twittering of birds outside. He opened his eyes. There was still no door. Harry swore. Someone screamed. He looked around to see a gaggle of first years running back around the corner, apparently under the impression that they had just encountered a particularly foul-mouthed ghost. Harry tried every variation of, I need to see what Draco Malfoy is doing inside you, that he could think of for a whole hour, at the end of which he was forced to concede that Hermione might have had a point. The room simply did not want to open for him. Frustrated and annoyed, he set off for defense against the dark arts, pulling off his invisibility cloak and stuffing it into his bag as he went. Late again, Potter, said Snape coldly, as Harry hurried into the candlelit classroom. Ten points from Gryffindor. Harry scowled at Snape as he flung himself into the seat beside Ron. Half the class was still on its feet, taking out books and organizing their things. He could not be much later than any of them. Before we start, I want your Dementor essays, said Snape, waving his wand carelessly, so that twenty-five scrolls of parchment soared into the air and landed in a neat pile on his desk. And I hope for your sakes they are better than the tripe I had to endure on resisting the imperious curse. Now, if you will all open your books to page... What is it, Mr. Finnegan? Sir, said Seamus, I've been wondering, how do you tell the difference between an inferior and a ghost? Because there was something in the paper about an inferior. No, there wasn't, said Snape in a bored voice. But sir, I heard people talking. If you had actually read the article in question, Mr. Finnegan, you would have known that the so-called Inferius was nothing but a smelly sneak thief by the name of Mundungus Fletcher. I thought Snape and Mundungus were on the same side, muttered Harry to Ron and Hermione. Shouldn't he be upset? Mundungus has been arrested. But Potter seems to have a lot to say on the subject said Snape, pointing suddenly at the back of the room, his black eyes fixed on Harry. Let us ask Potter how we would tell the difference between an inferior and a ghost. The whole class looked around at Harry, who hastily tried to recall what Dumbledore had told him the night that they had gone to visit Slughorn. Uh, well, ghosts are transparent, he said. Oh, very good interrupted Snape, his lip curling. Yes, it is easy to see that nearly six years of magical education have not been wasted on you, Potter. Ghosts are transparent. Pansy Parkinson let out a high-pitched giggle. Several other people were smirking. Harry took a deep breath and continued calmly, though his insides were boiling. Yeah, ghosts are transparent, but in theory are dead bodies, aren't they? so they'd be solid. A five-year-old could have told us as much, sneered Snape. The Inferius is a corpse that has been reanimated by a dark wizard's spells. It is not alive. It is merely used like a puppet to do the wizard's bidding. A ghost, as I trust that you are all aware by now, is the imprint of a departed soul left upon the earth. 
And of course, as Potter so wisely tells us, transparent. Well, what Harry said is the most useful if we're trying to tell them apart, said Ron. When we come face to face with one down a dark alley, we're going to be having a shufty to see if it's solid, aren't we? We're not going to be asking, excuse me, are you the imprint of a departed soul? There was a ripple of laughter, instantly quelled by the look Snape gave the class. Another ten points from Gryffindor, said Snape. I would expect nothing more sophisticated from you, Ronald Weasley. The boy, so solid, he cannot apparate half an inch across a room. No, whispered Hermione, grabbing Harry's arm as he opened his mouth furiously. That's no point. You'll just end up in detention again. Leave it. Now, open your books to page 213, said Snape, smirking a little. And read the first two paragraphs on the Cruciatus Curse. Ron was very subdued all through the class. When the bell sounded at the end of the lesson, Lavender caught up with Ron and Harry. Hermione mysteriously melted out of sight as she approached, and abused Snape hotly for his jibe about Ron's apparition. But this seemed to merely irritate Ron, and he shook her off by making a detour into the boys' bathroom with Harry. Snape's right, though, isn't he? said Ron, after staring into a cracked mirror for a minute or two. I don't know whether it's worth me taking the test. I just can't get the hang of apparition. You might as well do the extra practice sessions in Hogsmeade and see where they get you, said Harry reasonably. It'll be more interesting than trying to get into a stupid hoop anyway. Then, if you're still not, you know, as good as you'd like to be, you can postpone the test. Do it with me over the sum. Myrtle! This is the boys' bathroom. The ghost of a girl had risen out of the toilet in a cubicle behind them and was now floating in midair, staring at them through thick, white, round glasses. Oh, she said glumly, it's you two. Who were you expecting? said Ron, looking at her in the mirror. Nobody, said Myrtle, picking moodily at a spot on her chin. He said he'd come back and see me. But then you said you'd pop in and visit me, too. She gave Harry a reproachful look. And I haven't seen you for months and months. I've learned not to expect too much from boys. I thought you lived in that girl's bathroom, said Harry, who'd been careful to give the place a wide berth for some years now. I do, she said with a sulky little shrug. But that doesn't mean I can't visit other places. I came and saw you in your bath once, remember? Vividly, said Harry. But I thought he liked me, she said plaintively. Maybe if you two left, he'd come back again. We had lots in common. I'm sure he felt it. And she looked hopefully toward the door. When you say you had lots in common, said Ron, sounding rather amused now, do you mean he lives in an S-Pen, too? No, said Myrtle defiantly, her voice echoing loudly around the old tiled bathroom. I mean he's sensitive. People bully him, too, and he feels lonely and hasn't got anybody to talk to, and he's not afraid to show his feelings and cry. There's been a boy in here crying, said Harry curiously. A young boy? Never you mind, 
said Myrtle, her small, leaky eyes fixed on Ron, who was now definitely grinning. I promised I wouldn't tell anyone, and I'll take his secret to the... Not the grave, surely, said Ron with a snort. The sewers, maybe. Myrtle gave a howl of rage and dived back into the toilet, causing water to slop over the sides and onto the floor. Goading Myrtle seemed to have put fresh heart into Ron. You're right, he said, swinging his school bag back over his shoulder. I'll do the practice sessions in Hogsmeade before I decide about taking the test. And so the following weekend, Ron joined Hermione and the rest of the sixth years, who would turn seventeen in time to take the test in a fortnight. Harry felt rather jealous watching them all get ready to go into the village. He missed making trips there, and it was a particularly fine spring day, one of the first clear skies they had seen in a long time. However, he had decided to use the time to attempt another assault on the Room of Requirement. You'd do better, said Hermione when he confided this plan to Ron and her in the entrance hall, to go straight to Slughorn's office and try and get that memory from him. I've been trying, said Harry crossly, which was perfectly true. He had lagged behind after every potions lesson that week in an attempt to corner Slughorn, but the potions master always left the dungeon so fast that Harry had not been able to catch him. Twice Harry had gone to his office and knocked, but received no reply, though on the second occasion he was sure he had heard the quickly stifled sounds of an old gramophone. He doesn't want to talk to me, Hermione. He can tell I've been trying to get him on his own again, and he's not going to let it happen. Well, you've just got to keep at it, haven't you? The short queue of people waiting to file past Filch, who was doing his usual prodding act with the secrecy sensor, moved forward a few steps, and Harry did not answer in case he was overheard by the caretaker. He wished Ron and Hermione both luck, then turned and climbed the marble staircase again, determined, whatever Hermione said, to devote an hour or two to the room of requirement. Once out of sight of the entrance hall, Harry pulled the marauder's map and his invisibility cloak from his bag. Having concealed himself, he tapped the map, murmured, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good, and scanned it carefully. As it was Sunday morning, nearly all the students were inside their various common rooms, the Gryffindors in one tower, the Ravenclaws in another, the Slytherins in the dungeons, and the Hufflepuffs in the basement near the kitchens. Here and there a stray person meandered around the library or up a corridor. There were a few people out in the grounds, and there, alone in the seventh-floor corridor, was Gregory Goyle. There was no sign of the room of requirement, but Harry was not worried about that. If Goyle was standing guard outside it, the room was open whether the map was aware of it or not. He therefore sprinted up the stairs, slowing down only when he reached the corner into the corridor when he began to creep, very slowly, toward the very same little girl clutching her heavy brass scales that Hermione had so kindly helped a fortnight before. He waited until he was right behind her before bending very low and whispering, Hello, you're very pretty, aren't you? Goyle gave a high-pitched scream of terror, threw the scales up into the air, and sprinted away, vanishing from sight long before the sound of the scales smashing had stopped echoing around the corridor. Laughing, Harry turned to contemplate the blank wall behind which he was sure Draco Malfoy was now standing, frozen, aware that someone unwelcome was out there, but not daring to make an appearance. 
It gave Harry a most agreeable feeling of power as he tried to remember what form of words he had not yet tried. Yet this hopeful mood did not last long. Half an hour later, having tried many more variations of his request to see what Malfoy was up to, the wall was just as doorless as ever. Harry felt frustrated beyond belief. Malfoy might be just feet away from him, and there was still not the tiniest shred of evidence as to what he was doing in there. Losing his patience completely, Harry ran at the wall and kicked it. Ouch! He thought he might have broken his toe. As he clutched it and hopped on one foot, the invisibility cloak slipped off him. Harry? He spun around, one-legged, and toppled over. There, to his utter astonishment, was Tonks, walking toward him as though she frequently strolled up this corridor. What are you doing here? he said, scrambling to his feet again. Why did she always have to find him lying on the floor? I came to see Dumbledore, said Tonks. Harry thought she looked terrible, thinner than usual, her mouse-colored hair lank. His office isn't here, said Harry. It's round the other side of the castle, behind the gargoyle. I know, said Tonks. He's not there. Apparently he's gone away again. Has he? said Harry, putting his bruised foot gingerly back on the floor. Hey, you don't know where he goes, I suppose. No, said Tonks. What did you want to see him about? Nothing in particular, said Tonks, picking apparently unconsciously at the sleeve of her robe. I just thought he might know what's going on. I've heard rumors. People getting hurt. Yeah, I know. It's all been in the papers, said Harry. That little kid trying to kill his... The prophet's often behind the times said Tonks, who didn't seem to be listening to him. You haven't had any letters from anyone in the Order recently? No one from the Order writes to me anymore, said Harry. Not since Sirius. He saw that her eyes had filled with tears. I'm sorry, he muttered awkwardly. I mean, I miss him as well. What? said Tonks blankly, as though she had not heard him. Well, I'll see you around, Harry and she turned abruptly and walked back down the corridor, leaving Harry to stare after her. After a minute or so, he pulled the invisibility cloak on again and resumed his efforts to get into the room of requirement, but his heart was not in it. Finally, a hollow feeling in his stomach and the knowledge that Ron and Hermione would soon be back for lunch made him abandon the attempt and leave the corridor to Malfoy, who, hopefully, would be too afraid to leave for some hours to come. He found Ron and Hermione in the Great Hall, already halfway through an early lunch. I did it! Well, kind of, Ron told Harry enthusiastically when he caught sight of him. I was supposed to be apparating to outside Madame Puddyfoot's tea shop, and I overshot it a bit, ended up near Scrivenshafts. But at least I moved. Good one, said Harry. How'd you do, Hermione? Oh, she was perfect, obviously, said Ron before Hermione could answer. Perfect deliberation, divination, and desperation, or whatever the hell it is. We all went for a quick drink in the three broomsticks after, and you should have heard Twycross going on about her. I'll be surprised if he doesn't pop the question soon. And what about you? asked Hermione, ignoring Ron. Have you been up at the Room of Requirement all this time? Yep, said Harry. Guess who I ran into up there? Tonks. Tonks? repeated Ron and Hermione together, looking surprised. Yeah, she said she'd come to visit Dumbledore.
If you ask me, said Ron, once Harry had finished describing his conversation with Tonks, she's cracking up a bit, losing her nerve after what happened at the Ministry. It's a bit hard, said Hermione, who for some reason looked very concerned. She's supposed to be guarding the school. Why is she suddenly abandoning her post to come and see Dumbledore when he's not even here? I had a thought, said Harry tentatively. He felt strange about voicing it. This was much more Hermione's territory than his. You don't think she can have been, you know, in love with Sirius? Hermione stared at him. What on earth makes you say that? I don't know, said Harry, shrugging. But she was nearly crying when I mentioned his name. And her Patronus is a big four-legged thing now. I wondered whether it hadn't become, you know, him. It's a thought said Hermione slowly, but I still don't know why she'd be bursting into the castle to see Dumbledore if that's really why she was here. Goes back to what I said, doesn't it? said Ron, who was now shoveling mashed potato into his mouth. She's gone a bit funny, lost her nerve. Women, he said wisely to Harry, they're easily upset. And yet, said Hermione, coming out of her reverie. I doubt you'd find a woman who sulked for half an hour because Madame Rosmerta didn't laugh at their joke about the hag, the healer, and the mimbulous Mimbletonia. Ron scowled. Chapter 22 After the Burial Patches of bright blue sky were beginning to appear over the castle turrets, but these signs of approaching summer did not lift Harry's mood. He had been thwarted, both in his attempts to find out what Malfoy was doing and in his efforts to start a conversation with Slughorn that might lead, somehow, to Slughorn handing over the memory he had apparently suppressed for decades. For the last time, just forget about Malfoy, Hermione told Harry firmly. They were sitting with Ron in a sunny corner of the courtyard after lunch. Hermione and Ron were both clutching a Ministry of Magic leaflet, Common apparition mistakes and how to avoid them. For they were taking their tests that very afternoon. But by and large, the leaflets had not proved soothing to the nerves. Ron gave a start and tried to hide behind Hermione as a girl came around the corner. It isn't lavender, said Hermione wearily. Oh, good, said Ron, relaxing. Harry Potter, said the girl. I was asked to give you this. Thanks. Harry's heart sank as he took the small scroll of parchment. Once the girl was out of earshot, he said, Dumbledore said we wouldn't be having any more lessons until I got the memory. Maybe he wants to check on how you're doing, suggested Hermione as Harry unrolled the parchment. But rather than finding Dumbledore's long, narrow, slanted writing, he saw an untidy sprawl, very difficult to read due to the presence of large blotches on the parchment where the ink had run. Dear Harry, Ron, and Hermione, Aragog died last night. Harry and Ron, you met him, and you know how special he was. Hermione, I know you'd have liked him. It would mean a lot to me if you'd nip down for the burial later this evening. I'm planning on doing it around dusk. That was his favorite time of day. I know you're not supposed to be out that late, but you can use the cloak. Wouldn't ask, but I can't face it alone. Hagrid. Look at this, said Harry, handing the note to Hermione. 
Oh, for heaven's sake, she said, scanning it quickly and passing it to Ron, who read it through, looking increasingly incredulous. He's mental, he said furiously. That thing told its mates to eat Harry and me, told them to help themselves, and now Hagrid expects us to go down there and cry over its horrible hairy body. It's not just that, said Hermione. He's asking us to leave the castle at night, and he knows security's a million times tighter and how much trouble we'd be in if we were caught. We've been down to see him by night before, said Harry. Yes, but for something like this, said Hermione. We've risked a lot to help Hagrid out, but after all, Aragog's dead. If it were a question of saving him, I'd want to go even less, said Ron firmly. You didn't meet him, Hermione. Believe me, being dead will have improved him a lot. Harry took the note back and stared down at all the inky blotches all over it. Tears had clearly fallen thick and fast upon the parchment. Harry, you can't be thinking of going said Hermione. It's such a pointless thing to get detention for. Harry sighed. Yeah, I know, he said. I suppose Hagrid'll have to bury Aragog without us. Yes, he will, said Hermione, looking relieved. Look, potions will be almost empty this afternoon with all of us doing our tests. Try and soften Slughorn up a bit then. Fifty-seventh time lucky, you think, said Harry bitterly. Lucky? said Ron suddenly. Harry, that's it. Get lucky. What do you mean? Use your lucky potion. Ron, that's, that's it, said Hermione, sounding stunned. Of course. Why didn't I think of it? Harry stared at both of them. Felix Felicis, he said. I don't know. I was sort of saving it. What for? demanded Ron incredulously. What on earth is more important than this memory, Harry? asked Hermione. Harry did not answer. The thought of that little golden bottle had hovered on the edges of his imagination for some time. Vague and unformulated plans that involved Ginny splitting up with Dean and Ron somehow being happy to see her with a new boyfriend had been fermenting in the depths of his brain, unacknowledged except during dreams or the twilight time between sleeping and waking. Harry, are you still with us? asked Hermione. What? Yeah, of course, he said, pulling himself together. Well, okay, if I can't get Slughorn to talk this afternoon, I'll take some Felix and have another go this evening. That's decided then, said Hermione briskly, getting to her feet and performing a graceful pirouette. Destination, determination, deliberation, she murmured. Oh, stop that, Ron begged her. I feel sick enough as it is. Quick, hide me. It isn't lavender, said Hermione impatiently as another couple of girls appeared in the courtyard and Ron dived behind her. Cool, said Ron, peering over Hermione's shoulder to check. Blimey, they don't look happy, do they? They're the Montgomery sisters and of course they don't look happy. Didn't you hear what happened to their little brother, said Hermione. I'm losing track of what's happening to everyone's relatives, to be honest, said Ron. Well, their brother was attacked by a werewolf. The rumor is that their mother refused to help the Death Eaters. Anyway, the boy was only five, and he died in St. Mungo's. They couldn't save him. He died, repeated Harry, shocked. But surely werewolves don't kill. They just turn you into one of them.
They sometimes kill, said Ron, who looked unusually grave now. I've heard of it happening when the werewolf gets carried away. What was the werewolf's name? said Harry quickly. Well, the rumor is that it was that Fenrir Greyback, said Hermione. I knew it! The maniac who likes attacking kids, the one Lupin told me about, said Harry angrily. Hermione looked at him bleakly. Harry, you've got to get that memory, she said. It's all about stopping Voldemort, isn't it? These dreadful things that are happening are all down to him. The bell rang overhead in the castle, and both Hermione and Ron jumped to their feet, looking terrified. You'll do fine, Harry told them both, as they headed toward the entrance hall to meet the rest of the people taking their apparition test. Good luck. And you, too, said Hermione with a significant look as Harry headed off to the dungeons. There were only three of them in potions that afternoon, Harry, Ernie, and Draco Malfoy. All too young to apparate just yet, said Slughorn genially. Not turned seventeen yet. They shook their heads. Ah, well, said Slughorn cheerily. As we are so few, we'll do something fun. I want you all to brew me up something amusing. That sounds good, sir, said Ernie sycophantically, rubbing his hands together. Malfoy, on the other hand, did not crack a smile. What do you mean, something amusing? He said irritably. Oh, surprise me, said Slughorn airily. Malfoy opened his copy of Advanced Potion Making with a sulky expression. It could not have been plainer that he thought this lesson was a waste of time. Undoubtedly, Harry thought, watching him over the top of his own book, Malfoy was begrudging the time he could otherwise be spending in the Room of Requirement. Was it his imagination, or did Malfoy, like Tonks, look thinner? Certainly he looked paler. His skin still had that grayish tinge, probably because he so rarely saw daylight these days. But there was no air of smugness, excitement, or superiority. None of the swagger that he had had on the Hogwarts Express when he had boasted openly of the mission he had been given by Voldemort. There could be only one conclusion in Harry's opinion. The mission, whatever it was, was going badly. Cheered by this thought, Harry skimmed through his copy of Advanced Potion Making and found a heavily corrected Half-Blood Prince's version of An Elixir to Induce Euphoria, which seemed not only to meet Slughorn's instructions, but which might, Harry's heart leapt as the thought struck him, put Slughorn into such a good mood that he would be prepared to hand over that memory if Harry could persuade him to taste some. Now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn an hour and a half later, clapping his hands together as he stared down into the sunshine-yellow contents of Harry's cauldron. Euphoria, I take it. And what's that I smell? Mmm, you've added just a sprig of peppermint, haven't you? Oh, unorthodox, but what a stroke of inspiration, Harry. Of course, that would tend to counterbalance the occasional side effects of excessive singing and nose-tweaking. I really don't know where you get these brainwaves, my boy, unless... Harry pushed the Half-Blood Prince's book deeper into his bag with his foot. It's just your mother's genes coming out in you. Oh, yeah, maybe, said Harry, relieved. 
Ernie was looking rather grumpy. Determined to outshine Harry for once, he had most rashly invented his own potion, which had curdled and formed a kind of purple dumpling at the bottom of his cauldron. Malfoy was already packing up, sour-faced. Slughorn had pronounced his hiccuping solution merely passable. The bell rang, and both Ernie and Malfoy left at once. Sir, Harry began, but Slughorn immediately glanced over his shoulder. When he saw that the room was empty but for himself and Harry, he hurried away as fast as he could. Professor, Professor, don't you want to taste my po- called Harry desperately, but Slughorn had gone. Disappointed, Harry emptied the cauldron, packed up his things, left the dungeon, and walked slowly back upstairs to the common room. Ron and Hermione returned in the late afternoon. Harry, cried Hermione as she climbed through the portrait hole. Harry, I passed. Well done, he said. And Ron? He, he just failed, whispered Hermione as Ron came slouching into the room looking most morose. It was really unlucky, a tiny thing. The examiner just spotted that he'd left half an eyebrow behind. How did it go with Slughorn? No joy, said Harry as Ron joined them. Bad luck, mate. But you'll pass next time. We can take it together. Yeah, I suppose, said Ron grumpily. But half an eyebrow, like that matters. I know, said Hermione soothingly. It does seem really harsh. They spent most of their dinner roundly abusing the apparition examiner, and Ron looked fractionally more cheerful by the time they set off back to the common room, now discussing the continuing problem of Slughorn and the memory. So, Harry, you going to use the Felix Felicis, or what? Ron demanded. Yeah, I suppose I'd better, said Harry. I don't reckon I'll need all of it. Not twenty-four hours' worth. It can't take all night. I'll just take a mouthful. Two or three hours should do it. It's a great feeling when you take it, said Ron reminiscently, like you can't do anything wrong. What are you talking about, said Hermione, laughing. You've never taken any. Yeah, but I thought I had, didn't I, said Ron, as though explaining the obvious. Same difference, really. As they had only just seen Slughorn enter the great hall and knew that he liked to take time over meals, they lingered for a while in the common room. The plan being that Harry should go to Slughorn's office once the teacher had had time to get back there. When the sun had sunk to the level of the treetops in the forbidden forest, they decided the moment had come. And after checking carefully that Neville, Dean, and Seamus were all in the common room, sneaked up to the boys' dormitory. Harry took out the rolled-up socks at the bottom of his trunk and extracted the tiny gleaming bottle. Well, here goes, said Harry and he raised the little bottle and took a carefully measured gulp. What does it feel like? whispered Hermione. Harry did not answer for a moment. Then, slowly but surely, an exhilarating sense of infinite opportunity stole through him. He felt as though he could have done anything, anything at all, and getting the memory from Slughorn seemed suddenly not only possible, but positively easy. He got to his feet, smiling, brimming with confidence. Excellent, he said. Really excellent. Right. I'm going down to Hagrid's. What? said Ron and Hermione together, looking aghast. No, Harry, you've got to go and see Slughorn, remember? said Hermione. No, said Harry confidently.
I'm going to Hagrid's. I've got a good feeling about going to Hagrid's. You've got a good feeling about burying a giant spider? Asked Ron, looking stunned. Yeah, said Harry, pulling his invisibility cloak out of his bag. I feel like it's the place to be tonight. You know what I mean? No, said Ron and Hermione together, both looking positively alarmed now. This is Felix Felicis, I suppose, said Hermione anxiously, holding up the bottle to the light. You haven't got another little bottle full of, I don't know, essence of insanity, suggested Ron as Harry swung his cloak over his shoulders. Harry laughed, and Ron and Hermione looked even more alarmed. Trust me, he said. I know what I'm doing. Or at least, he strolled confidently to the door. Felix does. He pulled the invisibility cloak over his head and set off down the stairs, Ron and Hermione hurrying along behind him. At the foot of the stairs, Harry slid through the open door. What were you doing up there with her? shrieked Lavender Brown, staring right through Harry at Ron and Hermione, emerging together from the boys' dormitories. Harry heard Ron spluttering behind him as he darted across the room away from them. Getting through the portrait hall was simple. As he approached it, Ginny and Dean came through it, and Harry was able to slip between them. As he did so, he brushed accidentally against Ginny. Don't push me, please, Dean, she said, sounding annoyed. You're always doing that. I can get through perfectly well on my own. The portrait swung closed behind Harry, but not before he had heard Dean make an angry retort. His feeling of elation increasing, Harry strode off through the castle. He did not have to creep along, for he met nobody on his way, but this did not surprise him in the slightest. This evening, he was the luckiest person at Hogwarts. Why he knew that going to Hagrid's was the right thing to do, he had no idea. It was as though the potion was illuminating a few steps of the path at a time. He could not see the final destination. He could not see where Slughorn came in, but he knew that he was going the right way to get that memory. When he reached the entrance hall, he saw that Filch had forgotten to lock the front door. Beaming, Harry threw it open and breathed in the smell of clean air and grass for a moment before walking down the steps into the dusk. It was when he reached the bottom step that it occurred to him how very pleasant it would be to pass the vegetable patch on his walk to Hagrid's. It was not strictly on the way, but it seemed clear to Harry that this was a whim on which he should act. So he directed his feet immediately toward the vegetable patch, where he was pleased, but not altogether surprised, to find Professor Slughorn in conversation with Professor Sprout. Harry lurked behind a low stone wall, feeling at peace with the world and listening to their conversation. I do thank you for taking the time, Pomona, Slughorn was saying courteously. Most authorities agree that they are at their most efficacious if picked at twilight. Oh, I quite agree, said Professor Sprout warmly. That enough for you? Plenty, plenty, said Slughorn, who, Harry saw, was carrying an armful of leafy plants. This should allow for a few leaves for each of my third years, and some to spare if anybody overstews them. Well, good evening to you, and many thanks again. Professor Sprout headed off into the gathering darkness in the direction of her greenhouses, and Slughorn directed his steps to the spot where Harry stood, invisible. Seized with an immediate desire to reveal himself, 
Harry pulled off the cloak with a flourish. Good evening, Professor. Merlin's beard, Harry, you made me jump, said Slughorn, stopping dead in his tracks and looking wary. How did you get out of the castle? I think Filch must have forgotten to lock the doors, said Harry cheerfully, and was delighted to see Slughorn scowl. I'll be reporting that man. He's more concerned about litter than proper security, if you ask me. But why are you out here, Harry? Well, sir, it's Hagrid, said Harry, who knew that the right thing to do just now was to tell the truth. He's pretty upset. But you won't tell anyone, Professor. I don't want trouble for him. Slughorn's curiosity was evidently aroused. Well, I can't promise that he said gruffly, but I know that Dumbledore trusts Hagrid to the hilt, so I'm sure he can't be up to anything very dreadful. Well, it's this giant spider. He's had it for years. It lived in the forest. It could talk and everything. I heard rumors there were acromantulas in the forest, said Slughorn softly, looking over at the mass of black trees. It's true, then. Yes, said Harry, but this one... Aragog, the first one Hagrid ever got, it died last night. He's devastated. He wants company while he buries it, and I said I'd go. Touching, touching, said Slughorn absent-mindedly, his large droopy eyes fixed upon the distant lights of Hagrid's cabin. But acromantula venom is very valuable. If the beast only just died, it might not yet have dried out. Of course, I wouldn't want to do anything insensitive if Hagrid is upset. But if there was any way to procure some... I mean, it's almost impossible to get venom from an acromantula while it's alive. Slughorn seemed to be talking more to himself than Harry now. Seems an awful waste not to collect it. Might get a hundred galleons a pint. To be frank... My salary is not large. And now Harry saw clearly what was to be done. Well, he said with a most convincing hesitancy. Well, if you wanted to come, Professor, Hagrid would probably be really pleased. Give Aragog a better send-off, you know. Yes, of course, said Slughorn, his eyes now gleaming with enthusiasm. I tell you what, Harry, I'll meet you down there with a bottle or two. We'll drink the poor beast's, well, not health, but we'll send it off in style anyway once it's buried. And I'll change my tie. This one is a little exuberant for the occasion. He bustled back into the castle, and Harry sped off to Hagrid's, delighted with himself. You came, croaked Hagrid, when he opened the door and saw Harry emerging from the invisibility cloak in front of him. Yeah. Ron and Hermione couldn't, though, said Harry. They're really sorry. Don't, don't matter. He'd have been touched your ear, though, Harry. Hagrid gave a great sob. He had made himself a black armband out of what looked like a rag dipped in boot polish, and his eyes were puffy, red, and swollen. Harry patted him consolingly on the elbow, which was the highest point of Hagrid he could easily reach. Where are we burying him? he asked. The forest? Blimey, no, said Hagrid, wiping his streaming eyes on the bottom of his shirt. The other spiders won't let me anywhere near their webs now Aragog's gone. 
Turns out it was only on his orders they didn't eat me. Can you believe that, Harry? The honest answer was yes. Harry recalled with painful ease the scene when he and Ron had come face to face with the Acromantulas. They had been quite clear that Aragog was the only thing that stopped them from eating Hagrid. Never been an area of the forest so I couldn't go before, said Hagrid, shaking his head. It wasn't easy getting Aragog's body out of there. I can tell you they usually eat their dead, see? But I wanted to give him a nice burial, a proper send-off. He broke into sobs again, and Harry resumed the patting of his elbow, saying as he did so, for the potion seemed to indicate that it was the right thing to do, Professor Slughorn met me coming down here, Hagrid. Not in trouble, are you? said Hagrid, looking up alarmed. You shouldn't be out of the castle in the evening, I know it. It's my fault. No, no, when he heard what I was doing, he said he'd like to come and pay his last respects to Aragog, too, said Harry. He's gone to change into something more suitable, I think. And he said he'd bring some bottles so we can drink to Aragog's memory. Did he? said Hagrid, looking both astonished and touched. That's, that's right nice of him, that is. And not turning you in either. I've never really had a lot to do with Iris Slogorn before. Coming to see old Aragog off, though, eh? Well, he'd like that, Aragog would. Harry thought privately that what Aragog would have liked most about Slughorn was the ample amount of edible flesh he provided. But he merely moved to the rear window of Hagrid's hut, where he saw the rather horrible sight of the enormous dead spider lying on its back outside, its legs curled and tangled. Are we going to bury him here, Hagrid? In your garden? Just beyond the pumpkin patch, I thought, said Hagrid in a choked voice. I've already dug the, you know, grave. Just thought we'd say a few nice things over him. Happy memories, you know. His voice quivered and broke. There was a knock on the door, and he turned to answer it, blowing his nose on his great spotted handkerchief as he did so. Slughorn hurried over the threshold, several bottles in his arms, and wearing a somber black cravat. Hagrid, he said in a deep, grave voice, so very sorry to hear of your loss. That's very nice of you said Hagrid. Thanks a lot, and thanks for not giving Harry detention neither. Wouldn't have dreamed of it, said Slughorn. Sad night, sad night. Where is the poor creature? Out here, said Hagrid in a shaking voice. Shall we, shall we do it then? The three of them stepped out into the back garden. The moon was glistening palely through the trees now, and its rays mingled with the light spilling from Hagrid's window to illuminate Aragog's body lying on the edge of a massive pit beside a ten-foot-high mound of freshly dug earth. Magnificent, said Slughorn, approaching the spider's head, where eight milky eyes stared blankly at the sky, and two huge curved pincers shone motionless in the moonlight. Harry thought he heard the tinkle of bottles as Slughorn bent over the pincers, apparently examining the enormous hairy head. It's not everyone appreciate how beautiful they are, said Hagrid to Slughorn's back, tears leaking from the corners of his crinkled eyes. 
I didn't know you were interested in creatures like Aragog, Horace. Interested? My dear Hagrid, I revere them, said Slughorn, stepping back from the body. Harry saw the glint of a bottle disappear beneath his cloak, though Hagrid, mopping his eyes once more, noticed nothing. Now, shall we proceed to the burial? Hagrid nodded and moved forward. He heaved the gigantic spider into his arms and, with an enormous grunt, rolled it into the dark pit. It hit the bottom with a rather horrible, crunchy thud. Hagrid started to cry again. Of course, it's difficult for you who knew him best, said Slughorn, who, like Harry, could reach no higher than Hagrid's elbow, but patted it all the same. Why don't I say a few words? He must have got a lot of good quality venom from Aragog, Harry thought, for Slughorn wore a satisfied smirk as he stepped up to the rim of the pit and said, in a slow, impressive voice, Farewell, Aragog, king of arachnids, whose long and faithful friendship those who knew you won't forget. Though your body will decay, your spirit lingers on in the quiet, web-spun places of your forest home. May your many-eyed descendants ever flourish, and your human friends find solace for the loss they have sustained. That was... that was... beautiful, howled Hagrid, and he collapsed onto the compost heap, crying harder than ever. There, there, said Slughorn, waving his wand so that the huge pile of earth rose up and then fell, with a muffled sort of crash, onto the dead spider, forming a smooth mound. Let's get inside and have a drink. Get on his other side, Harry, that's it. Up you come, Hagrid. Well done. They deposited Hagrid in a chair at the table. Fang, who had been skulking in his basket during the burial, now came padding softly across to them and put his heavy head into Harry's lap as usual. Slughorn uncorked one of the bottles of wine he had brought. I have had it all tested for poison, he assured Harry, pouring most of the first bottle into one of Hagrid's bucket-sized mugs and handing it to Hagrid. Had a house elf taste every bottle after what happened to your poor friend Rupert. Harry saw in his mind's eye the expression on Hermione's face if she ever heard about this abuse of house elves and decided never to mention it to her. One for Harry, said Slughorn, dividing a second bottle between two mugs, and one for me. Well, he raised his mug high. To Aragog. Aragog said Harry and Hagrid together. Both Slughorn and Hagrid drank deeply. Harry, however, with the way ahead illuminated for him by Felix Felicis, knew that he must not drink, so he merely pretended to take a gulp and then set the mug back on the table before him. I had him from an egg, you know, said Hagrid morosely. Tiny little thing he was when he hatched, about the size of a Pekingese. Sweet, said Slughorn. Used to keep him in a cupboard up at the school until, well... Hagrid's face darkened, and Harry knew why. Tom Riddle had contrived to have Hagrid thrown out of school, blamed for opening the Chamber of Secrets. Slughorn, however, did not seem to be listening. 
He was looking up at the ceiling from which a number of brass pots hung, and also a long, silky skein of bright white hair. That's never unicorn hair, Hagrid. Oh, yeah, said Hagrid indifferently. Gets pulled out of their tails. They cash it on branches and stuff in the forest, you know. But my dear chap, do you know how much that's worth? I use it for binding on bandages and stuff if a creature gets injured, said Hagrid, shrugging. It's dead useful, very strong, see? Slughorn took another deep draught from his mug, his eyes moving carefully around the cabin now, looking, Harry knew, for more treasures that he might be able to convert into a plentiful supply of oak-matured mead, crystallized pineapple, and velvet smoking jackets. He refilled Hagrid's mug and his own, and questioned him about the creatures that lived in the forest these days, and how Hagrid was able to look after them all. Hagrid becoming expansive under the influence of the drink, and Slughorn's flattering interest, stopped mopping his eyes and entered happily into a long explanation of Bowtruckle husbandry. The Felix Felicis gave Harry a little nudge at this point, and he noticed that the supply of drink that Slughorn had brought was running out fast. Harry had not yet managed to bring off the refilling charm without saying the incantation aloud, but the idea that he might not be able to do it tonight was laughable. Indeed, Harry grinned to himself as, unnoticed by either Hagrid or Slughorn, now swapping tales of the illegal trade in dragon eggs. He pointed his wand under the table at the emptying bottles, and they immediately began to refill. After an hour or so, Hagrid and Slughorn began making extravagant toasts to Hogwarts, to Dumbledore, to elf-made wine, and to... Harry Potter, bellowed Hagrid, slopping some of his fourteenth bucket of wine down his chin as he drained it. Yes, indeed, cried Slughorn a little thickly. Perry Otter, the chosen boy who will... Something of that sort, he mumbled and drained his mug, too. Not long after this, Hagrid became tearful again and pressed the whole unicorn tail upon Slughorn, who pocketed it with cries of, To friendship, to generosity, to ten galleons a hare. And for a while, after that, Hagrid and Slughorn were sitting side by side, arms around each other, singing a slow, sad song about a dying wizard called Odo. Ah, the good die young muttered Hagrid, slumping low onto the table, a little cross-eyed, while Slughorn continued to warble the refrain. Me dad was no age to go, nor were your mum and dad, Harry. Great fat tears oozed out of the corners of Hagrid's crinkled eyes again. He grasped Harry's arm and shook it. Best whiz and witched of their age I never knew. Terrible thing. Terrible thing. And who to the hero they bore him back home? To the place that he'd known as a lad, sang Slughorn plaintively. They laid him to rest with his hat inside out, and his wand snapped in two, which was sad. Terrible, Hagrid grunted, and his great shaggy head rolled sideways onto his arms, and he fell asleep, snoring deeply. 
Sorry, said Slughorn with a hiccup. Can't carry a tune to save my life. Hagrid wasn't talking about your singing, said Harry quietly. He was talking about my mum and dad dying. Oh, said Slughorn, repressing a large belch. Oh, dear, yes, that was, was terrible indeed, terrible, terrible. He looked quite at a loss for what to say and resorted to refilling their mugs. I don't, don't suppose you remember it, Harry? he asked awkwardly. No, well, I was only one when they died, said Harry, his eyes on the flame of the candle flickering in Hagrid's heavy snores. But I found out pretty much what happened since. My dad died first. Did you know that? I... I didn't, said Slughorn in a hushed voice. Yeah, Voldemort murdered him and then stepped over his body toward my mum, said Harry. Slughorn gave a great shudder, but he did not seem able to tear his horrified gaze away from Harry's face. He told her to get out of the way, said Harry remorselessly. He told me she needn't have died. He only wanted me. She could have run. Oh, dear, breathed Slughorn. She could have. She needn't. That's awful. It is, isn't it? Said Harry in a voice barely more than a whisper. But she didn't move. Dad was already dead, but she didn't want me to go too. She tried to plead with Voldemort, but he just laughed. That's enough! said Slughorn suddenly, raising a shaking hand. Really, my dear boy, enough. I'm an old man. I don't need to hear. I don't want to hear. I forgot, lied Harry, Felix Felicis leading him on. You liked her, didn't you? Liked her? said Slughorn, his eyes brimming with tears once more. I don't imagine anyone who met her wouldn't have liked her. Very brave, very funny. It was the most horrible thing. But you won't help her son, said Harry. She gave me her life, but you won't give me a memory. Hagrid's rumbling snores filled the cabin. Harry looked steadily into Slughorn's tear-filled eyes. The potion's master seemed unable to look away. Don't say that, he whispered. It isn't a question. If it were to help you, of course, but no purpose can be served. It can, said Harry clearly. Dumbledore needs information. I need information. He knew he was safe. Felix was telling him that Slughorn would remember nothing of this in the morning. Looking Slughorn straight in the eye, Harry leaned forward a little. I am the chosen one. I have to kill him. I need that memory. Slughorn turned paler than ever. His shiny forehead gleamed with sweat. You are the chosen one? Of course I am, said Harry calmly. But then, my dear boy, you're asking a great deal. You're asking me, in fact, to aid you in your attempt to destroy. You don't want to get rid of the wizard who killed Lily Evans? Harry, Harry, of course I do, but... You're scared he'll find out you helped me? Slughorn said nothing. He looked terrified. Be brave like my mother, Professor. Slughorn raised a pudgy hand and pressed his shaking fingers to his mouth. 
He looked for a moment like an enormously overgrown baby. I am not proud, he whispered through his fingers. I am ashamed of what, of what that memory shows. I think I may have done great damage that day. You'd cancel out anything you did by giving me the memory, said Harry. It would be a very brave and noble thing to do. Hagrid twitched in his sleep and snored on. Slughorn and Harry stared at each other over the guttering candle. There was a long, long silence. But Felix Felicis told Harry not to break it, to wait. Then, very slowly, Slughorn put his hand in his pocket and pulled out his wand. He put his other hand inside his cloak and took out a small, empty bottle. Still looking into Harry's eyes, Slughorn touched the tip of his wand to his temple and withdrew it so that a long silver thread of memory came away too, clinging to the wand tip. Longer and longer the memory stretched until it broke and swung silvery bright from the wand. Slughorn lowered it into the bottle where it coiled, then spread, swirling like gas. He corked the bottle with a trembling hand and then passed it across the table to Harry. Thank you very much, Professor. You're a good boy, said Professor Slughorn, tears trickling down his fat cheeks into his walrus mustache. And you've got her eyes. Just don't think too badly of me once you've seen it. And he too put his head on his arms, gave a deep sigh, and fell asleep. Chapter 23 Horcruxes Harry could feel the Felix Felicis wearing off as he crept back into the castle. The front door had remained unlocked for him, but on the third floor he met Peeves and only narrowly avoided detection by diving sideways through one of his shortcuts. By the time he got up to the portrait of the fat lady and pulled off his invisibility cloak, he was not surprised to find her in a most unhelpful mood. What sort of time do you call this? I'm really sorry. I had to go out for something important. Well, the password changed at midnight, so you'll just have to sleep in the corridor, won't you? You're joking, said Harry. Why did it have to change at midnight? That's the way it is, said the fat lady. If you're angry, go and take it up with the headmaster. He's the one who's tightened security. Fantastic, said Harry bitterly, looking around at the hard floor. Really brilliant, yeah. I would go and take it up with Dumbledore if he was here, because he's the one who wanted me to- He is here, said a voice behind Harry. Professor Dumbledore returned to the school an hour ago. Nearly headless Nick was gliding toward Harry, his head wobbling as usual upon his ruff. I had it from the bloody Baron who saw him arrive, said Nick. He appeared, according to the Baron, to be in good spirits, though a little tired, of course. Where is he? said Harry, his heart leaping. Oh, groaning and clanking up on the astronomy tower is a favorite pastime of his. Not the bloody Baron, Dumbledore. Oh, in his office, said Nick. I believe from what the Baron said that he had business to attend to before turning in. Yeah, he has, said Harry, excitement blazing in his chest at the prospect of telling Dumbledore he has secured the memory. He wheeled about and sprinted off again, ignoring the fat lady who was calling after him. Come back, all right, I lied. I was annoyed you woke me up. The password's still tapeworm. 
But Harry was already hurtling back along the corridor, and within minutes he was saying toffee eclairs to Dumbledore's gargoyle, which leapt aside, permitting Harry entrance onto the spiral staircase. Enter, said Dumbledore when Harry knocked. He sounded exhausted. Harry pushed open the door. There was Dumbledore's office, looking the same as ever, but with black star-strewn skies beyond the windows. Good gracious, Harry, said Dumbledore in surprise. To what do I owe this very late pleasure? So, I've got it. I've got the memory from Slughorn. Harry pulled out the tiny glass bottle and showed it to Dumbledore. For a moment or two, the headmaster looked stunned. Then his face split in a wide smile. Harry, this is spectacular news. Very well done indeed. I knew you could do it. All thought of the lateness of the hour, apparently forgotten, he hurried around his desk, took the bottle with Slughorn's memory in his uninjured hand, and strode over to the cabinet where he kept the pensive. And now, said Dumbledore, placing the stone basin upon his desk and emptying the contents of the bottle into it. Now, at last, we shall see. Harry, quickly. Harry bowed obediently over the pensive and felt his feet leave the office floor. Once again, he fell through darkness and landed in Horace Slughorn's office many years before. There was the much younger Slughorn with his thick, shiny, straw-colored hair and his gingery blonde mustache, sitting again in the comfortable winged armchair in his office, his feet resting upon a velvet poof, a small glass of wine in one hand, the other rummaging in a box of crystallized pineapple. And there were the half-dozen teenage boys sitting around Slughorn with Tom Riddle in the midst of them. Marvolo's golden black ring gleaming on his finger. Dumbledore landed beside Harry, just as Riddle asked, Sir, is it true that Professor Merrythought is retiring? Tom, Tom, if I knew I couldn't tell you, said Slughorn, wagging his finger reprovingly at Riddle, though winking at the same time. I must say, I'd like to know where you get your information, boy. More knowledgeable than half the staff you are. Riddle smiled. The other boys laughed and cast him admiring looks. What with your uncanny ability to know things you shouldn't, and your careful flattery of the people who matter. Thank you for the pineapple, by the way. You're quite right. It is my favorite. Several of the boys tittered again. I confidently expect you to rise to Minister of Magic within twenty years. Fifteen if you keep sending me pineapple. I have excellent contacts at the Ministry. Tom Riddle merely smiled as the others laughed again. Harry noticed that he was by no means the eldest of the group of boys, but that they all seemed to look to him as their leader. I don't know that politics would suit me, sir, he said when the laughter had died away. I don't have the right kind of background, for one thing. A couple of the boys around him smirked at each other. Harry was sure they were enjoying a private joke, undoubtedly about what they knew or suspected regarding their gang leader's famous ancestor. Nonsense, said Slughorn briskly. Couldn't be plainer you come from decent wizarding stock, abilities like yours. No, you'll go far, Tom. I've never been wrong about a student yet. The small golden clock standing upon Slughorn's desk chimed eleven o'clock behind him, and he looked around. Good gracious, is it that time already? You'd better get going, boys, or we'll all be in trouble. Lestrange, I want your essay by tomorrow or its detention. Same goes for you, Avery. One by one, the boys filed out of the room. 
Slughorn heaved himself out of his armchair and carried his empty glass over to his desk. A movement behind him made him look around. Riddle was still standing there. Look sharp, Tom. You don't want to be caught out of bed out of hours? And you, a prefect? Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away then, my boy. Ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about... about horcruxes. Slughorn stared at him, his thick fingers absent-mindedly caressing the stem of his wine glass. Project for defense against the dark arts, is it? But Harry could tell that Slughorn knew perfectly well that this was not schoolwork. Not exactly, sir, said Riddle. I came across the term while reading, and I didn't fully understand it. No. Well, you'd be hard pushed to find a book at Hogwarts that'll give you details on Horcruxes, Tom. That's very dark stuff. Very dark indeed, said Slughorn. But you obviously know all about them, sir. I mean, a wizard like you. Sorry, I mean, if you can't tell me, obviously. I just knew if anyone could tell me, you could. So I just thought I'd ask. It was very well done, thought Harry. The hesitancy, the casual tone, the careful flattery, none of it overdone. He, Harry, had had too much experience of trying to wheedle information out of reluctant people not to recognize a master at work. He could tell that Riddle wanted the information very, very much, perhaps had been working toward this moment for weeks. Well, said Slughorn, not looking at Riddle, but fiddling with the ribbon on top of his box of crystallized pineapple. Well, it can't hurt to give you an overview, of course, just so that you understand the term. A horcrux is the word used for an object in which a person has concealed part of their soul. Don't quite understand how that works, though, sir, said Riddle. His voice was carefully controlled, but Harry could sense his excitement. Well, you split your soul, you see, said Slughorn, and hide part of it in an object outside the body. Then, even if one's body is attacked or destroyed, one cannot die, for part of the soul remains earthbound and undamaged. But of course, Existence in such a form? Slughorn's face crumpled, and Harry found himself remembering words he had heard nearly two years before. I was ripped from my body. I was less than spirit, less than the meanest ghost, but still I was alive. Few would want it, Tom, very few. Death would be preferable. But Riddle's hunger was now apparent. His expression was greedy. He could no longer hide his longing. How do you split your soul? Well, said Slughorn uncomfortably, you must understand that the soul is supposed to remain intact and whole. Splitting it is an act of violation. It is against nature. But how do you do it? By an act of evil. The supreme act of evil. By committing murder. Killing rips the soul apart. The wizard, intent upon creating a horcrux, would use the damage to his advantage. He would encase the torn portion. Encase? But how? There is a spell. Do not ask me, I don't know, said Slughorn, shaking his head like an old elephant bothered by mosquitoes. Do I look as though I have tried it? Do I look like a killer? No, sir, of course not, 
said Riddle quickly. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend. Not at all, not at all, not offended, said Slughorn gruffly. It's natural to feel some curiosity about these things. Wizards of a certain caliber have always been drawn to that aspect of magic. Yes, sir, said Riddle. What I don't understand, though, just out of curiosity, I mean, would one Horcrux be much use? Can you only split your soul once? Wouldn't it be better, make you stronger, to have your soul in more pieces? I mean, for instance, isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Wouldn't seven... Merlin's beard, Tom, yelped Slughorn. Seven? Isn't it bad enough to think of killing one person? And in any case, bad enough to divide the soul? But to rip it into seven pieces? Slughorn looked deeply troubled now. He was gazing at Riddle as though he had never seen him plainly before, and Harry could tell that he was regretting entering into the conversation at all. Of course, he muttered, this is all hypothetical. What we're discussing, isn't it? All academic. Yes, sir, of course, said Riddle quickly. But all the same, Tom, keep it quiet, what I've told. That's to say, what we've discussed. People wouldn't like to think we've been chatting about Horcruxes. It's a banned subject at Hogwarts, you know. Dumbledore's particularly fierce about it. I won't say a word, sir, said Riddle, and he left, but not before Harry had glimpsed his face, which was full of that same wild happiness it had worn when he had first found out that he was a wizard, the sort of happiness that did not enhance his handsome features, but made them somehow less human. Thank you, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. Let us go. When Harry landed back on the office floor, Dumbledore was already sitting down behind his desk. Harry sat too and waited for Dumbledore to speak. I have been hoping for this piece of evidence for a very long time, said Dumbledore at last. It confirms the theory on which I have been working. It tells me that I am right, and also how very far there is still to go. Harry suddenly noticed that every single one of the old headmasters and headmistresses in the portraits around the walls was awake and listening in on their conversation. A corpulent red-nosed wizard had actually taken out an ear trumpet. Well, Harry, said Dumbledore, I am sure you understand the significance of what we just heard. At the same age as you are now, give or take a few months, Tom Riddle was doing all he could to find out how to make himself immortal. You think he succeeded then, sir? asked Harry. He made a horcrux, and that's why he didn't die when he attacked me. He had a horcrux hidden somewhere. A bit of his soul was safe. A bit? Or more, said Dumbledore. You heard Voldemort. What he particularly wanted from Horace was an opinion on what would happen to the wizard who created more than one horcrux. What would happen to the wizard so determined to evade death that he would be prepared to murder many times, rip his soul repeatedly so as to store it in many separately concealed horcruxes? No book would have given him that information. As far as I know, as far I am sure as Voldemort knew, no wizard had ever done more than tear his soul in two. Dumbledore paused for a moment, marshalling his thoughts, and then said, Four years ago, 
I received what I considered certain proof that Voldemort had split his soul. Where? asked Harry. How? You handed it to me, Harry, said Dumbledore. The diary, Riddle's diary, the one giving instructions on how to reopen the Chamber of Secrets. I don't understand, sir, said Harry. Well, although I did not see the riddle who came out of the diary, what you described to me was a phenomenon I had never witnessed. A mere memory starting to act and think for itself. A mere memory sapping the life out of the girl into whose hands it had fallen. No, something much more sinister had lived inside that book. A fragment of soul. I was almost sure of it. The diary had been a horcrux, but this raised as many questions as it answered. What intrigued and alarmed me most was that that diary had been intended as a weapon as much as a safeguard. I still don't understand, said Harry. Well, it worked as a horcrux is supposed to work. In other words, the fragment of soul concealed inside it was kept safe and had undoubtedly played its part in preventing the death of its owner. But there could be no doubt that Riddle really wanted that diary read, wanted the piece of his soul to inhabit or possess somebody else, so that Slytherin's monster would be unleashed again. Well, he didn't want his hard work to be wasted said Harry. He wanted people to know he was Slytherin's heir because he couldn't take credit at the time. Quite correct, said Dumbledore, nodding. But don't you see, Harry, that if he intended the diary to be passed to or planted on some future Hogwarts student, he was being remarkably blasé about that precious fragment of his soul concealed within it. The point of a horcrux is, as Professor Slughorn explained, to keep part of the self hidden and safe, not to fling it into somebody else's path and run the risk that they might destroy it, as indeed happened. That particular fragment of soul is no more. You saw to that. The careless way in which Voldemort regarded this horcrux seemed most ominous to me. It suggested that he must have made, or been planning to make, more horcruxes so that the loss of his first would not be so detrimental. I did not wish to believe it, but nothing else seemed to make sense. Then you told me two years later that on the night that Voldemort returned to his body, he made a most illuminating and alarming statement to his Death Eaters. I who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. That was what you told me, he said, further than anybody and I thought I knew what that meant, though the Death Eaters did not. He was referring to his horcruxes, horcruxes in the plural, Harry, which I do not believe any other wizard has ever had. Yet it fitted. Lord Voldemort has seemed to grow less human with the passing years, and the transformation he has undergone seemed to me to be only explicable if his soul was mutilated beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil. So he's made himself impossible to kill by murdering other people, said Harry. Why couldn't he make a sorcerer's stone or steal one if he was so interested in immortality? Well, we know that he tried to do just that five years ago, said Dumbledore. But there are several reasons why I think a sorcerer's stone would appeal less than Horcruxes to Lord Voldemort. 
While the elixir of life does indeed extend life, it must be drunk regularly for all eternity if the drinker is to maintain their immortality. Therefore, Voldemort would be entirely dependent on the elixir, and if it ran out or was contaminated, or if the stone was stolen, he would die just like any other man. Voldemort likes to operate alone, remember? I believe that he would have found the thought of being dependent, even on the elixir, intolerable. Of course, he was prepared to drink it if it would take him out of the horrible part-life to which he was condemned after attacking you, but only to regain a body. Thereafter, I am convinced he intended to continue to rely on his horcruxes. He would need nothing more if only he could regain a human form. He was already immortal, you see, or as close to immortal as any man can be. But now, Harry, armed with this information, the crucial memory you have succeeded in procuring for us, we are closer to the secret of finishing Lord Voldemort than anyone has ever been before. You heard him, Harry. Wouldn't it be better, make you stronger, to have your soul in more pieces? Isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Yes, I think the idea of a seven-part soul would greatly appeal to Lord Voldemort. He made seven horcruxes, said Harry, horror-struck, while several of the portraits on the wall made similar noises of shock and outrage. But they could be anywhere in the world, hidden, buried, or invisible. I am glad to see you appreciate the magnitude of the problem, said Dumbledore calmly. But firstly, no, Harry, not seven horcruxes, six. The seventh part of his soul, however maimed, resides inside his regenerated body. That was the part of him that lived a spectral existence for so many years during his exile. Without that, he has no self at all. That seventh piece of soul will be the last that anybody wishing to kill Voldemort must attack. The piece that lives in his body. But the six Horcruxes, then, said Harry, a little desperately. How are we supposed to find them? You are forgetting. You have already destroyed one of them, and I have destroyed another. You have? said Harry eagerly. Yes, indeed, said Dumbledore, and he raised his blackened, burned-looking hand. The ring, Harry, Marvolo's ring, and a terrible curse there was upon it, too. Had it not been, forgive me the lack of seemly modesty, for my own prodigious skill, and for Professor Snape's timely action when I returned to Hogwarts desperately injured, I might not have lived to tell the tale. However, a withered hand does not seem an unreasonable exchange for a seventh of Voldemort's soul. The ring is no longer a horcrux. But how did you find it? Well, as you know now, for many years I have made it my business to discover as much as I can about Voldemort's past life. I have traveled widely, visited those places he once knew. I stumbled across the ring hidden in the ruin of the Gaunt's house. It seems that once Voldemort had succeeded in sealing a piece of his soul inside it, he did not want to wear it any more. He hid it, protected by many powerful enchantments, in the shack where his ancestors had once lived. Morphin having been carted off to Azkaban, of course, never guessing that I might one day take the trouble to visit the ruin, or that I might be keeping an eye open for traces of magical concealment. However, we should not congratulate ourselves too heartily. 
You destroyed the diary and I the ring. But if we are right in our theory of a seven-part soul, four Horcruxes remain. And they could be anything, said Harry. They could be old tin cans or, I don't know, empty potion bottles. You are thinking of port keys, Harry, which must be ordinary objects, easy to overlook. But would Lord Voldemort use tin cans or old potion bottles to guard his own precious soul? You are forgetting what I have showed you. Lord Voldemort liked to collect trophies, and he preferred objects with a powerful magical history. His pride, his belief in his own superiority, his determination to carve for himself a startling place in magical history. These things suggest to me that Voldemort would have chosen his Horcruxes with some care, favoring objects worthy of the honor. The diary wasn't that special. The diary, as you have said yourself, was proof that he was the heir of Slytherin. I am sure that Voldemort considered it of stupendous importance. So the other Horcruxes, said Harry, do you think you know what they are, sir? I can only guess, said Dumbledore. For the reasons I have already given, I believe that Lord Voldemort would prefer objects that, in themselves, have a certain grandeur. I have therefore trawled back through Voldemort's past to see if I can find evidence that such artifacts have disappeared around him. The locket, said Harry loudly. Hufflepuff's cup. Yes, said Dumbledore, smiling. I would be prepared to bet, perhaps not my other hand but a couple of fingers, that they became Horcruxes three and four. The remaining two, assuming again that he created a total of six, are more of a problem. But I will hazard a guess that, having secured objects from Hufflepuff and Slytherin, he set out to track down objects owned by Gryffindor or Ravenclaw. Four objects from the four founders would, I am sure, have exerted a powerful pull over Voldemort's imagination. I cannot answer for whether he ever managed to find anything of Ravenclaw's, I am confident, however, that the only known relic of Gryffindor remains safe. Dumbledore pointed his blackened fingers to the wall behind him, where a ruby-encrusted sword reposed within a glass case. Do you think that's why he really wanted to come back to Hogwarts, sir? said Harry, to try and find something from one of the other founders? My thoughts precisely, said Dumbledore, but unfortunately that does not advance us much further for he was turned away, or so I believe, without the chance to search the school. I am forced to conclude that he never fulfilled his ambition of collecting four founder's objects. He definitely had two. He may have found three. That is the best we can do for now. Even if he got something of Ravenclaw's or of Gryffindor's, that leaves a sixth Horcrux, said Harry, counting on his fingers, unless he got both. I don't think so, said Dumbledore. I think I know what the sixth Horcrux is. I wonder what you will say when I confess that I have been curious for a while about the behavior of the snake, Nagini. The snake, said Harry, startled. You can use animals as Horcruxes? Well, it is inadvisable to do so, said Dumbledore because to confide a part of your soul to something that can think and move for itself is obviously a very risky business. However, if my calculations are correct, Voldemort was still at least one Horcrux short of his goal of six when he entered your parents' house with the intention of killing you. 
He seems to have reserved the process of making Horcruxes for particularly significant deaths. You would certainly have been that. He believed that in killing you, he was destroying the danger the prophecy had outlined. He believed he was making himself invincible. I am sure that he was intending to make his final Horcrux with your death. As we know, he failed. After an interval of some years, however, he used Nagini to kill an old muggle man, and it might then have occurred to him to turn her into his last Horcrux. She underlines the Slytherin connection, which enhances Lord Voldemort's mystique. I think he is perhaps as fond of her as he can be of anything. He certainly likes to keep her close, and he seems to have an unusual amount of control over her, even for a parcel mouth. So, said Harry, the diary's gone, the ring's gone, the cup, the locket, and the snake are still intact. And you think there might be a Horcrux that was once Ravenclaw's or Gryffindor's? An admirably succinct and accurate summary, yes, said Dumbledore, bowing his head. So, are you still looking for them, sir? Is that where you've been going when you've been leaving the school? Correct, said Dumbledore. I have been looking for a very long time. I think perhaps I may be close to finding another one. There are hopeful signs. And if you do, said Harry quickly, can I come with you and help get rid of it? Dumbledore looked at Harry very intently for a moment before saying, Yes, I think so. I can, said Harry, thoroughly taken aback. Oh, yes, said Dumbledore, smiling slightly. I think you have earned that right. Harry felt his heart lift. It was very good not to hear words of caution and protection for once. The headmasters and headmistresses around the walls seemed less impressed by Dumbledore's decision. Harry saw a few of them shaking their heads, and Phineas Nigellus actually snorted. Does Voldemort know when a Horcrux is destroyed, sir? Can he feel it? Harry asked, ignoring the portraits. A very interesting question, Harry. I believe not. I believe that Voldemort is now so immersed in evil, and these crucial parts of himself have been detached for so long, he does not feel as we do. Perhaps at the point of death he might be aware of his loss, but he was not aware, for instance, that the diary had been destroyed until he forced the truth out of Lucius Malfoy. When Voldemort discovered that the diary had been mutilated and robbed of all its powers, I am told that his anger was terrible to behold. But I thought he meant Lucius Malfoy to smuggle it into Hogwarts. Yes, he did, years ago, when he was sure he would be able to create more Horcruxes. But still, Lucius was supposed to wait for Voldemort's say-so, and he never received it. For Voldemort vanished shortly after giving him the diary. No doubt he thought that Lucius would not dare do anything with the Horcrux other than guard it carefully. But he was counting too much upon Lucius's fear of a master who had been gone for years, and whom Lucius believed dead. Of course, Lucius did not know what the diary really was. I understand that Voldemort had told him the diary would cause the Chamber of Secrets to reopen because it was cleverly enchanted. Had Lucius known he held a portion of his master's soul in his hands, he would undoubtedly have treated it with more reverence. But instead, he went ahead and carried out the old plan for his own ends. By planting the diary upon Arthur Weasley's daughter, 
He hoped to discredit Arthur and get rid of a highly incriminating magical object in one stroke. Ah, poor Lucius. What with Voldemort's fury about the fact that he threw away the Horcrux for his own gain and the fiasco at the Ministry last year, I would not be surprised if he is not secretly glad to be safe in Azkaban at the moment. Harry sat in thought for a moment, then asked, So if all of his Horcruxes are destroyed, Voldemort could be killed? Yes, I think so, said Dumbledore. Without his Horcruxes, Voldemort will be a mortal man with a maimed and diminished soul. Never forget, though, that while his soul may be damaged beyond repair, his brain and his magical powers remain intact. It will take uncommon skill and power to kill a wizard like Voldemort, even without his Horcruxes. But I haven't got uncommon skill and power, said Harry, before he could stop himself. Yes, you have, said Dumbledore firmly. You have a power that Voldemort has never had. You can... I know, said Harry impatiently. I can love. It was only with difficulty that he stopped himself adding, big deal. Yes, Harry, you can love, said Dumbledore, who looked as though he knew perfectly well what Harry had just refrained from saying, which, given everything that has happened to you, is a great and remarkable thing. You are still too young to understand how unusual you are, Harry. So, when the prophecy says that I'll have power the Dark Lord knows not, it just means love? asked Harry, feeling a little let down. Yes, just love, said Dumbledore. But Harry, never forget that what the prophecy says is only significant because Voldemort made it so. I told you this at the end of last year. Voldemort singled you out as the person who would be most dangerous to him, and in doing so, he made you the person who would be most dangerous to him. But it comes to the same. No, it doesn't, said Dumbledore, sounding impatient now. Pointing at Harry with his black withered hand, he said, You are setting too much store by the prophecy. But, spluttered Harry, but you said the prophecy means... If Voldemort had never heard of the prophecy, would it have been fulfilled? Would it have meant anything? Of course not. Do you think every prophecy in the Hall of Prophecy has been fulfilled? But, said Harry, bewildered, but last year you said one of us would have to kill the other. Harry, Harry, only because Voldemort made a grave error and acted on Professor Trelawney's words, if Voldemort had never murdered your father... Would he have imparted in you a furious desire for revenge? Of course not. If he had not forced your mother to die for you, would he have given you a magical protection he could not penetrate? Of course not, Harry, don't you see? Voldemort himself created his worst enemy, just as tyrants everywhere do. Have you any idea how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? All of them realize that one day, amongst their many victims, there is sure to be one who rises against them and strikes back. Voldemort is no different. Always he was on the lookout for the one who would challenge him. He heard the prophecy and he leapt into action, with the result that he not only handpicked the man most likely to finish him, he handed him uniquely deadly weapons. But it is essential that you understand this said Dumbledore, standing up and striding about the room, his glittering robes swooshing in his wake. 
Harry had never seen him so agitated. By attempting to kill you, Voldemort himself singled out the remarkable person who sits here in front of me and gave him the tools for the job. It is Voldemort's fault that you were able to see into his thoughts, his ambitions, that you even understand the snake-like language in which he gives orders. And yet, Harry, despite your privileged insight into Voldemort's world, which incidentally is a gift any Death Eater would kill to have, you have never been seduced by the dark arts. Never, even for a second, shown the slightest desire to become one of Voldemort's followers. Of course I haven't, said Harry indignantly. He killed my mum and dad. You are protected, in short, by your ability to love, said Dumbledore loudly. The only protection that can possibly work against the lure of power like Voldemort's. In spite of all the temptation you have endured, all the suffering, you remain pure of heart. Just as pure as you were at the age of eleven, when you stared into a mirror that reflected your heart's desire, and it showed you only the way to thwart Lord Voldemort, and not immortality or riches. Harry, have you any idea how few wizards could have seen what you saw in that mirror? Voldemort should have known then what he was dealing with. But he did not. But he knows it now. You have flitted into Lord Voldemort's mind without damage to yourself. But he cannot possess you without enduring mortal agony, as he discovered in the Ministry. I do not think he understands why, Harry. But then, he was in such a hurry to mutilate his own soul, he never paused to understand the incomparable power of a soul that is untarnished and whole. Sir, said Harry, making valiant efforts not to sound argumentative, it all comes to the same thing, doesn't it? I've got to try and kill him, or... Got to, said Dumbledore. Of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy. Because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. We both know it. Imagine, please, just for a moment, that you had never heard that prophecy. How would you feel about Voldemort now? Think. Harry watched Dumbledore striding up and down in front of him and thought. He thought of his mother, his father, and Sirius. He thought of Cedric Diggory. He thought of all the terrible deeds he knew Lord Voldemort had done. A flame seemed to leap inside his chest, searing his throat. I'd want him finished, said Harry quietly, and I'd want to do it. Of course you would cried Dumbledore. You see, the prophecy does not mean you have to do anything. But the prophecy caused Lord Voldemort to mark you as his equal. In other words, you are free to choose your way, quite free to turn your back on the prophecy. But Voldemort continues to set store by the prophecy. He will continue to hunt you, which makes it certain, really, that... That one of us is going to end up killing the other, said Harry. Yes. But he understood at last what Dumbledore had been trying to tell him. It was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. Some people perhaps would say that there was little to choose between the two ways. But Dumbledore knew, and so do I, thought Harry, with a rush of fierce pride, and so did my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. Chapter 24
Sectum Sempra. Exhausted but delighted with his night's work, Harry told Ron and Hermione everything that had happened during next morning's charms lesson, having first cast the Muffliato spell upon those nearest them. They were both satisfyingly impressed by the way he had wheedled the memory out of Slughorn and positively awed when he told them about Voldemort's horcruxes and Dumbledore's promise to take Harry along should he find another one. Wow, said Ron, when Harry had finally finished telling them everything. Ron was waving his wand very vaguely in the direction of the ceiling without paying the slightest bit of attention to what he was doing. Wow! You're actually gonna go with Dumbledore and try and destroy... Wow! Ron, you're making it snow, said Hermione patiently, grabbing his wrist and redirecting his wand away from the ceiling, from which, sure enough, large white flakes had started to fall. Lavender Brown, Harry noticed, glared at Hermione from a neighboring table through very red eyes, and Hermione immediately let go of Ron's arm. Oh, yeah, said Ron looking down at his shoulders in vague surprise. Sorry, looks like we've all got horrible dandruff now. He brushed some of the fake snow off Hermione's shoulder. Lavender burst into tears. Ron looked immensely guilty and turned his back on her. We split up, he told Harry out of the corner of his mouth. Last night, when she saw me coming out of the dormitory with Hermione. Obviously, she couldn't see you, so she thought it had just been the two of us. Ah, said Harry. Well, you don't mind it's over, do you? No, Ron admitted. It was pretty bad while she was yelling, but at least I didn't have to finish it. Coward, said Hermione, though she looked amused. Well, it was a bad night for romance all around. Ginny and Dean split up too, Harry. Harry thought there was a rather knowing look in her eye as she told him that, but she could not possibly know that his insides were suddenly dancing the conga. Keeping his face as immobile and his voice as indifferent as he could, he asked, How come? Oh, something really silly. She said he was always trying to help her through the portrait hole, like she couldn't climb in herself, but they'd been a bit rocky for ages. Harry glanced over at Dean on the other side of the classroom. He certainly looked unhappy. Of course, this puts you in a bit of a dilemma, doesn't it? said Hermione. What do you mean? said Harry quickly. The Quidditch team, said Hermione. If Ginny and Dean aren't speaking... Oh! Oh, yeah, said Harry. Flitwick, said Ron in a warning tone. The tiny little charms master was bobbing his way toward them, and Hermione was the only one who had managed to turn vinegar into wine. Her glass flask was full of deep crimson liquid, whereas the contents of Harry's and Ron's was still murky brown. No, no, boys squeaked Professor Flitwick reproachfully. A little less talk, a little more action. Let me see you try. Together they raised their wands, concentrating with all their might, and pointed them at their flasks. Harry's vinegar turned to ice. Ron's flask exploded. Yes, for homework, said Professor Flitwick, re-emerging from under the table and pulling shards of glass out of the top of his hat. Practice! They had one of their rare joint free periods after charms and walked back to the common room together. Ron seemed to be positively light-hearted about the end of his relationship with Lavender, and Hermione seemed cheery too, though when asked what she was grinning about, she simply said, It's a nice day. Neither of them seemed to have noticed that a fierce battle was raging inside Harry's brain. She's Ron's sister, 
but she's ditched Dean. She still runs sister. I'm his best mate. That'll make it worse. If I talked to him first, he'd hit you. What if I don't care? He's your best mate. Harry barely noticed that they were climbing through the portrait hole into the sunny common room and only vaguely registered the small group of seventh years clustered together there until Hermione cried, Katie, you're back. Are you okay? Harry stared. It was indeed Katie Bell looking completely healthy and surrounded by her jubilant friends. I'm really well, she said happily. They let me out of St. Mungo's on Monday. I had a couple of days at home with Mum and Dad and then came back here this morning. Leanne was just telling me about McLagan and the last match, Harry. Yeah, said Harry. Well, now you're back and Ron's fit. We'll have a decent chance of thrashing Ravenclaw, which means we could still be in the running for the cup. Listen, Katie. He had to put the question to her at once. His curiosity even drove Ginny temporarily from his brain. He dropped his voice as Katie's friends started gathering up their things. Apparently, they were late for transfiguration. That necklace. Can you remember who gave it to you now? No, said Katie, shaking her head ruefully. Everyone's been asking me, but I haven't got a clue. The last thing I remember was walking into the ladies in the three broomsticks. You definitely went into the bathroom then, said Hermione. Well, I know I pushed open the door, said Katie. So I suppose whoever imperious me was standing just behind it. After that, my memories are blank until about two weeks ago in St. Mungo's. Listen, I'd better go. I wouldn't put it past McGonagall to give me lines, even if it is my first day back. She caught up her bag and books and hurried after her friends, leaving Harry, Ron, and Hermione to sit down at a window table and ponder what she had told them. So, it must have been a girl or a woman who gave Katie the necklace, said Hermione to be in the ladies' bathroom. Or someone who looked like a girl or a woman, said Harry. Don't forget there was a cauldron full of polyjuice potion at Hogwarts. We know some of it got stolen. In his mind's eye, he watched a parade of crabs and goyles prance past, all transformed into girls. I think I'm going to take another swig of Felix, said Harry, and have a go at the room of requirement again. That would be a complete waste of potion, said Hermione flatly, putting down the copy of Spellman's syllabary she had just taken out of her bag. Luck can only get you so far, Harry. The situation with Slughorn was different. You always had the ability to persuade him. You just needed to tweak the circumstances a bit. Luck isn't enough to get you through a powerful enchantment, though. Don't go wasting the rest of that potion. You'll need all the luck you can get if Dumbledore takes you along with him. She dropped her voice to a whisper. Couldn't we make some more? Ron asked Harry, ignoring Hermione. It'd be great to have a stock of it. Have a look in the book. Harry pulled his copy of Advanced Potion Making out of his bag and looked up Felix Felicis. Blimey, it's seriously complicated, he said, running an eye down the list of ingredients. And it takes six months. You've got to let it stew. Typical, said Ron. Harry was about to put his book away again when he noticed the corner of a page folded down. Turning to it, he saw the Septum Sempra spell, captioned Four Enemies, that he had marked a few weeks previously. He had still not found out what it did, mainly because he did not want to test it around Hermione, but he was considering trying it out on McLagan next time he came up behind him unawares. The only person who was not particularly pleased to see Katie Bell back at school 
was Dean Thomas, because he would no longer be required to fill her place as chaser. He took the blow stoically enough when Harry told him, merely grunting and shrugging, but Harry had the distinct feeling as he walked away that Dean and Seamus were muttering mutinously behind his back. The following fortnight saw the best Quidditch practices Harry had known as captain. His team was so pleased to be rid of McLagan, so glad to have Katie back at last, that they were flying extremely well. Ginny did not seem at all upset about the breakup with Dean. On the contrary, she was the life and soul of the team. Her imitations of Ron anxiously bobbing up and down in front of the goalposts as the quaffles sped toward him, or of Harry bellowing orders at McLagan before being knocked out cold, kept them all highly amused. Harry, laughing with the others, was glad to have an innocent reason to look at Ginny. He had received several more bludger injuries during practice because he had not been keeping his eyes on the snitch. The battle still raged inside his head, Ginny or Ron. Sometimes he thought that the post-lavender Ron might not mind too much if he asked Ginny out, but then he remembered Ron's expression when he had seen her kissing Dean and was sure that Ron would consider it base treachery if Harry so much as held her hand. Yet Harry could not help himself talking to Ginny, laughing with her, walking back from practice with her. However much his conscience ached, he found himself wondering how best to get her on her own. It would have been ideal if Slughorn had given another of his little parties, for Ron would not be around. But unfortunately, Slughorn seemed to have given them up. Once or twice, Harry considered asking for Hermione's help, but he did not think he could stand seeing the smug look on her face. He thought he caught it sometimes when Hermione spotted him staring at Ginny or laughing at her jokes. And to complicate matters, he had the nagging worry that if he didn't do it, somebody else was sure to ask Ginny out soon. He and Ron were at least agreed on the fact that she was too popular for her own good. All in all, the temptation to take another gulp of Felix Felicis was becoming stronger by the day, for surely this was a case for, as Hermione put it, tweaking the circumstances. The balmy days slid gently through May, and Ron seemed to be there at Harry's shoulder every time he saw Ginny. Harry found himself longing for a stroke of luck that would somehow cause Ron to realize that nothing would make him happier than his best friend and his sister falling for each other, and to leave them alone together for longer than a few seconds. There seemed no chance of either while the final Quidditch game of the season was looming. Ron wanted to talk tactics with Harry all the time, and had little thought for anything else. Ron was not unique in this respect. Interest in the Gryffindor-Ravenclaw game was running extremely high throughout the school, for the match would decide the championship, which was still wide open. If Gryffindor beat Ravenclaw by a margin of 300 points, a tall order and yet Harry had never known his team to fly better, then they would win the championship. If they won by less than 300 points, they would come second to Ravenclaw. If they lost by a hundred points, they would be third behind Hufflepuff, and if they lost by more than a hundred, they would be in fourth place, and nobody Harry thought would ever, ever let him forget that it had been he who had captained Gryffindor to their first bottom-of-the-table defeat in two centuries. The run-up to this crucial match had all the usual features. Members of rival houses attempting to intimidate opposing teams in the corridors, Unpleasant chants about individual players being rehearsed loudly as they passed. The team members themselves either swaggering around enjoying all the attention, or else dashing into bathrooms between classes to throw up. Somehow, 
The game had become inextricably linked in Harry's mind with success or failure in his plans for Ginny. He could not help feeling that if they won by more than 300 points, the scenes of euphoria and a nice loud after-match party might be just as good as a hearty swig of Felix Felicis. In the midst of all his preoccupations, Harry had not forgotten his other ambition, finding out what Malfoy was up to in the Room of Requirement. He was still checking the Marauder's map, and as he was unable to locate Malfoy on it, deduced that Malfoy was still spending plenty of time within the room. Although Harry was losing hope that he would ever succeed in getting inside the Room of Requirement, he attempted it whenever he was in the vicinity. But no matter how he reworded his request, the wall remained firmly doorless. A few days before the match against Ravenclaw, Harry found himself walking down to dinner alone from the common room, Ron having rushed off into a nearby bathroom to throw up yet again, and Hermione having dashed off to see Professor Vector about a mistake she thought she might have made in her last arithmancy essay. More out of habit than anything, Harry made his usual detour along the seventh-floor corridor, checking the marauder's map as he went. For a moment he could not find Malfoy anywhere, and assumed he must indeed be inside the room of requirement again, but then he saw Malfoy's tiny labeled dots standing in a boy's bathroom on the floor below, accompanied not by Crab or Goyle, but by moaning Myrtle. Harry only stopped staring at this unlikely coupling when he walked right into a suit of armor. The loud crash brought him out of his reverie. Hurrying from the scene lest Filch turn up, he dashed down the marble staircase and along the passageway below. Outside the bathroom, he pressed his ear against the door. He could not hear anything. He very quietly pushed the door open. Draco Malfoy was standing with his back to the door, his hands clutching either side of the sink, his white blonde head bowed. Don't, crooned moaning Myrtle's voice from one of the cubicles. Don't. Tell me what's wrong. I can help you. No one can help me, said Malfoy. His whole body was shaking. I can't do it. I can't. It won't work, and unless I do it soon, he says he'll kill me. And Harry realized with a shock so huge it seemed to root him to the spot that Malfoy was crying, actually crying, tears streaming down his pale face into the grimy basin. Malfoy gasped and gulped, and then, with a great shudder, looked up into the cracked mirror and saw Harry staring at him over his shoulder. Malfoy wheeled around, drawing his wand. Instinctively, Harry pulled out his own. Malfoy's hex missed Harry by inches, shattering the lamp on the wall beside him. Harry threw himself sideways, thought, Levicorpus, and flicked his wand, but Malfoy blocked the jinx and raised his wand for another. No, no, stop it! squealed moaning Myrtle, her voice echoing loudly around the tiled room. Stop! Stop! There was a loud bang, and the bin behind Harry exploded. Harry attempted a leg-locker curse that backfired off the wall behind Malfoy's ear and smashed the cistern beneath moaning Myrtle, who screamed loudly. Water poured everywhere, and Harry slipped as Malfoy, his face contorted, cried, Crucy! Sectum Sempra! bellowed Harry from the floor, waving his wand wildly. Blood spurted from Malfoy's face and chest, as though he had been slashed with an invisible sword. He staggered backward and collapsed onto the waterlogged floor with a great splash, his wand falling from his limp right hand. No, 
gasped Harry. Slipping and staggering, Harry got to his feet and plunged toward Malfoy, whose face was now shining scarlet, his white hands scrabbling at his blood-soaked chest. No, I didn't. Harry did not know what he was saying. He fell to his knees beside Malfoy, who was shaking uncontrollably in a pool of his own blood. Moaning Myrtle let out a deafening scream. Murder! Murder in the bathroom! Murder! The door banged open behind Harry, and he looked up, terrified. Snape had burst into the room, his face livid. Pushing Harry roughly aside, he knelt over Malfoy, drew his wand, and traced it over the deep wounds Harry's curse had made, muttering an incantation that sounded almost like song. The flow of blood seemed to ease. Snape wiped the residue from Malfoy's face and repeated his spell. Now the wounds seemed to be knitting. Harry was still watching, horrified by what he had done, barely aware that he too was soaked in blood and water. Moaning Myrtle was still sobbing and wailing overhead. When Snape had performed his counter-curse for the third time, he half-lifted Malfoy into a standing position. You need the hospital wing. There may be a certain amount of scarring. But if you take Dittany immediately, we might avoid even that. Come. He supported Malfoy across the bathroom, turning at the door to say, in a voice of cold fury, And you, Potter, you wait here for me. It did not occur to Harry for a second to disobey. He stood up slowly, shaking, and looked down at the wet floor. There were bloodstains floating like crimson flowers across its surface. He could not even find it in himself to tell Moaning Myrtle to be quiet as she continued to wail and sob with increasingly evident enjoyment. Snape returned ten minutes later. He stepped into the bathroom and closed the door behind him. Go, he said to Myrtle, and she swooped back into her toilet at once, leaving a ringing silence behind her. I didn't mean it to happen, said Harry at once. His voice echoed in the cold, watery space. I didn't know what that spell did. But Snape ignored this. Apparently I underestimated you, Potter, he said quietly. Who would have thought you knew such dark magic? Who taught you that spell? I read about it somewhere. Where? It was a library book, Harry invented wildly. I can't remember what it was called. Liar, said Snape. Harry's throat went dry. He knew what Snape was going to do, and he had never been able to prevent it. The bathroom seemed to shimmer before his eyes. He struggled to block out all thought, but try as he might, the half-blood prince's copy of advanced potion-making swam hazily to the forefront of his mind. And then he was staring at Snape again, in the midst of this wrecked, soaked bathroom. He stared into Snape's black eyes, hoping against hope that Snape had not seen what he feared. But, bring me your school bag, said Snape softly, and all of your school books, all of them. Bring them to me here, now. There was no point arguing. Harry turned at once and splashed out of the bathroom. Once in the corridor, he broke into a run toward Gryffindor Tower. Most people were walking the other way. They gaped at him, drenched in water and blood, but he answered none of the questions fired at him as he ran past. He felt stunned. It was as though a beloved pet had turned suddenly savage. What had the prince been thinking to copy such a spell into his book? 
And what would happen when Snape saw it? Would he tell Slughorn Harry's stomach churned how Harry had been achieving such good results in potions all year? Would he confiscate or destroy the book that had taught Harry so much? The book that had become a kind of guide and friend? Harry could not let it happen. He could not. Where have you... Why are you soaking? Is that blood? Ron was standing at the top of the stairs, looking bewildered at the sight of Harry. I need your book, Harry panted. Your potions book. Quick, give it to me. But what about the half-blood? I'll explain later. Ron pulled his copy of advanced potion-making out of his bag and handed it over. Harry sprinted off past him and back to the common room. Here he seized his school bag, ignoring the amazed looks of several people who had already finished their dinner, threw himself back out of the portrait hall, and hurtled off along the seventh-floor corridor. He skidded to a halt beside the tapestry of dancing trolls, closed his eyes, and began to walk. I need a place to hide my book. I need a place to hide my book. I need a place to hide my book. Three times he walked up and down in front of the stretch of blank wall. When he opened his eyes, there it was at last, the door to the room of requirement. Harry wrenched it open, flung himself inside, and slammed it shut. He gasped. Despite his haste, his panic, his fear of what awaited him back in the bathroom, he could not help but be overawed by what he was looking at. He was standing in a room the size of a large cathedral, whose high windows were sending shafts of light down upon what looked like a city with towering walls, built of what Harry knew must be objects hidden by generations of Hogwarts inhabitants. There were alleyways and roads bordered by teetering piles of broken and damaged furniture, stowed away perhaps to hide the evidence of mishandled magic, or else hidden by castle-proud house elves. There were thousands and thousands of books, no doubt banned or graffitied or stolen. There were winged catapults and fanged frisbees, some still with enough life in them to hover half-heartedly over the mountains of other forbidden items. There were chipped bottles of congealed potions, hats, jewels, cloaks. There were what looked like dragon eggshells, corked bottles whose contents still shimmered evilly, several rusting swords, and a heavy, blood-stained axe. Harry hurried forward into one of the many alleyways between all this hidden treasure. He turned right past an enormous stuffed troll, ran on a short way, took a left at the broken vanishing cabinet in which Montague had got lost the previous year, finally pausing beside a large cupboard that seemed to have had acid thrown at its blistered surface. He opened one of the cupboard's creaking doors. It had already been used as a hiding place for something in a cage that had long since died. Its skeleton had five legs. He stuffed the half-blood prince's book behind the cage and slammed the door. He paused for a moment, his heart thumping horribly, gazing around at all the clutter. Would he be able to find this spot again amidst all this junk? Seizing the chip bust of an old ugly warlock from on top of a nearby crate, he stood it on top of the cupboard where the book was now hidden, perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head to make it more distinctive, then sprinted back through the alleyways of hidden junk as fast as he could go, back to the door, back out onto the corridor, where he slammed the door behind him, and it turned at once back into stone. Harry ran flat out toward the bathroom on the floor below, cramming Ron's copy of advanced potion-making into his bag as he did so. A minute later, he was back in front of Snape, who held out his hand wordlessly for Harry's school bag. 
Harry handed it over, panting, a searing pain in his chest, and waited. One by one, Snape extracted Harry's books and examined them. Finally, the only book left was the potions book, which he looked at very carefully before speaking. This is your copy of Advanced Potion Making, is it, Potter? Yes, said Harry, still breathing hard. You're quite sure of that, are you, Potter? Yes, said Harry, with a touch more defiance. This is the copy of Advanced Potion Making that you purchased from Flourish and Blots. Yes, said Harry firmly. Then why, asked Snape, does it have the name Runil Woslib written inside the front cover? Harry's heart missed a beat. That's my nickname, he said. Your nickname, repeated Snape. Yeah, that's what my friends call me, said Harry. I understand what a nickname is, said Snape. The cold black eyes were boring once more into Harry's. He tried not to look into them. Close your mind, close your mind. But he had never learned how to do it properly. Do you know what I think, Potter? said Snape very quietly. I think that you are a liar and a cheat, and that you deserve detention with me every Saturday until the end of term. What do you think, Potter? I... I don't agree, sir, said Harry, still refusing to look into Snape's eyes. Well, we shall see how you feel after your detentions, said Snape. Ten o'clock Saturday morning, Potter, my office. But sir, said Harry, looking up desperately, Quidditch, the last match of the... Ten o'clock, whispered Snape, with a smile that showed his yellow teeth. Poor Gryffindor. Fourth place this year, I fear. And he left the bathroom without another word, leaving Harry to stare into the cracked mirror, feeling sicker, he was sure, than Ron had ever felt in his life. I won't say I told you so, said Hermione an hour later in the common room. Leave it, Hermione, said Ron angrily. Harry had never made it to dinner. He had no appetite at all. He had just finished telling Ron, Hermione, and Ginny what had happened, not that there seemed to have been much need. The news had travelled very fast. Apparently Moaning Myrtle had taken it upon herself to pop up in every bathroom in the castle to tell the story. Malfoy had already been visited in the hospital wing by Pansy Parkinson, who had lost no time in vilifying Harry far and wide, and Snape had told the staff precisely what had happened. Harry had already been called out of the common room to endure fifteen highly unpleasant minutes in the company of Professor McGonagall, who had told him he was lucky not to have been expelled, and that she supported wholeheartedly Snape's punishment of detention every Saturday until the end of term. I told you there was something wrong with that prince person, Hermione said, evidently unable to stop herself. And I was right, wasn't I? No, I don't think you were, said Harry stubbornly. He was having a bad enough time without Hermione lecturing him. The looks on the Gryffindor team's faces when he had told them that he would not be able to play on Saturday had been the worst punishment of all. He could feel Ginny's eyes on him now, but did not meet them. He did not want to see disappointment or anger there. He had just told her that she would be playing Seeker on Saturday and that Dean would be rejoining the team as Chaser in her place. 
Perhaps if they won, Ginny and Dean would make up during the post-match euphoria. The thought went through Harry like an icy knife. Harry, said Hermione, how can you still stick up for that book when that spell... Will you stop harping on about the book? snapped Harry. The prince only copied it out. It's not like he was advising anyone to use it. For all we know, he was making a note of something that had been used against him. I don't believe this, said Hermione. You're actually defending... I'm not defending what I did, said Harry quickly. I wish I hadn't done it, and not just because I've got about a dozen detentions. You know I wouldn't have used a spell like that, not even on Malfoy. But you can't blame the prince. He hadn't written, try this out, it's really good. He was just making notes for himself, wasn't he? Not for anyone else. Are you telling me, said Hermione, that you're going to go back and get the book? Yeah, I am, said Harry forcefully. Listen, without the prince, I'd never have won the Felix Felicis. I'd never have known how to save Ron from poisoning. I'd never have got a reputation for potions brilliance you don't deserve, said Hermione nastily. Give it a rest, Hermione, said Ginny, and Harry was so amazed, so grateful, he looked up. By the sound of it, Malfoy was trying to use an unforgivable curse. You should be glad Harry had something good up his sleeve. Well, of course I'm glad Harry wasn't cursed, said Hermione, clearly stung. But you can't call that Sectum Sempra spell good, Ginny. Look where it's landed him, and I'd have thought seeing what this has done to your chances in the match. Oh, don't start acting as though you understand Quidditch, snapped Ginny. You'll only embarrass yourself. Harry and Ron stared. Hermione and Ginny, who had always got on together very well, were now sitting with their arms folded, glaring in opposite directions. Ron looked nervously at Harry, then snatched up a book at random and hid behind it. Harry, however, little though he knew he deserved it, felt unbelievably cheerful all of a sudden, even though none of them spoke again for the rest of the evening. His lightheartedness was short-lived. There were slithering taunts to be endured next day, not to mention much anger from fellow Gryffindors, who were most unhappy that their captain had got himself banned from the final match of the season. By Saturday morning, whatever he might have told Hermione, Harry would have gladly exchanged all the Felix Felicis in the world to be walking down to the Quidditch pitch with Ron, Ginny, and the others. It was almost unbearable to turn away from the mass of students streaming out into the sunshine, all of them wearing rosettes and hats and brandishing banners and scarves, to descend the stone steps into the dungeons and walk until the distant sounds of the crowd were quite obliterated, knowing that he would not be able to hear a word of commentary or a cheer or groan. Ah, Potter, said Snape, when Harry had knocked on his door and entered the unpleasantly familiar office that Snape, despite teaching floors above now, had not vacated. It was as dimly lit as ever, and the same slimy dead objects were suspended in colored potions all around the walls. Ominously, there were many cobwebbed boxes piled on a table where Harry was clearly supposed to sit. They had an aura of tedious, hard, and pointless work about them. Mr. Filch has been looking for someone to clear out these old files, said Snape softly. They are the records of other Hogwarts wrongdoers and their punishments. Where the ink has grown faint, or the cards have suffered damage from mice, we would like you to copy out the crimes and punishments afresh, and, 
Making sure that they are in alphabetical order, replace them in the boxes. You will not use magic. Right, Professor, said Harry, with as much contempt as he could put into the last three syllables. I thought you could start, said Snape, a malicious smile on his lips, with boxes 1,012 to 1,056. You will find some familiar names in there which should add interest to the task. Here, you see. He pulled out a card from one of the topmost boxes with a flourish and read, James Potter and Sirius Black, apprehended using an illegal hex upon Bertram Aubrey. Aubrey's head, twice normal size. Double detention. Snape sneered. It must be such a comfort to think that though they are gone, a record of their great achievements remains. Harry felt the familiar boiling sensation in the pit of his stomach. Biting his tongue to prevent himself retaliating, he sat down in front of the boxes and pulled one toward him. It was, as Harry had anticipated, useless, boring work, punctuated, as Snape had clearly planned, with the regular jolt in the stomach that meant he had just read his father or Sirius's names, usually coupled together in various petty misdeeds, occasionally accompanied by those of Remus Lupin and Peter Pettigrew. And while he copied out all their various offenses and punishments, he wondered what was going on outside, where the match would have just started, Ginny playing seeker against Cho. Harry glanced again and again at the large clock ticking on the wall. It seemed to be moving half as fast as a regular clock. Perhaps Snape had bewitched it to go extra slowly. He could not have been here for only half an hour. An hour? An hour and a half? Harry's stomach started rumbling when the clock showed half past twelve. Snape, who had not spoken at all since setting Harry his task, finally looked up at ten past one. I think that will do, he said coldly. Mark the place you have reached. You will continue at ten o'clock next Saturday. Yes, sir. Harry stuffed a bent card into the box at random and hurried out of the door before Snape could change his mind, racing back up the stone steps, straining his ears to hear a sound from the pitch. But all was quiet. It was over then. He hesitated outside the crowded great hall, then ran up the marble staircase. Whether Gryffindor had won or lost, the team usually celebrated or commiserated in their own common room. Quid? Argis? he said tentatively to the fat lady, wondering what he would find inside. Her expression was unreadable as she replied, You'll see! And she swung forward. A roar of celebration erupted from the hole behind her. Harry gaped as people began to scream at the sight of him. Several hands pulled him into the room. We won! yelled Ron, bounding into sight and brandishing the silver cup at Harry. We won! Four hundred and fifty to a hundred and forty! We won! Harry looked around. There was Ginny running toward him. She had a hard, blazing look in her face as she threw her arms around him, and without thinking, without planning it, without worrying about the fact that fifty people were watching, Harry kissed her. After several long moments, or it might have been half an hour, or possibly several sunlit days, they broke apart. The room had gone very quiet. Then several people wolf-whistled, and there was an outbreak of nervous giggling. 
Harry looked over the top of Ginny's head to see Dean Thomas holding a shattered glass in his hand, and Romilda Vane looking as though she might throw something. Hermione was beaming, but Harry's eyes sought Ron. At last he found him still clutching the cup and wearing an expression appropriate to having been clubbed over the head. For a fraction of a second they looked at each other. Then Ron gave a tiny jerk of the head that Harry understood to mean, Well, if you must. The creature in his chest roaring in triumph, he grinned down at Ginny and gestured wordlessly out of the portrait hole. A long walk in the ground seemed indicated, during which, if they had time, they might discuss the match. Chapter 25 The Seer Overheard the fact that Harry Potter was going out with Ginny Weasley seemed to interest a great number of people, most of them girls, yet Harry found himself newly and happily impervious to gossip over the next few weeks. After all, it made a very nice change to be talked about because of something that was making him happier than he could remember being for a very long time, rather than because he had been involved in horrific scenes of dark magic. You'd think people had better things to gossip about said Ginny as she sat on the common room floor, leaning against Harry's legs and reading the Daily Prophet. Three Dementor attacks in a week, and all Romilda Vane does is ask me if it's true you've got a hippogriff tattooed across your chest. Ron and Hermione both roared with laughter. Harry ignored them. What did you tell her? I told her it's a Hungarian horn tail, said Ginny, turning a page of the newspaper idly. Much more, macho. Thanks said Harry, grinning. And what did you tell her Ron's got? A pygmy puff, but I didn't say where. Ron scowled as Hermione rolled around laughing. Watch it, he said, pointing warningly at Harry and Ginny. Just because I've given my permission doesn't mean I can't withdraw it. Your permission, scoffed Ginny. Since when did you give me permission to do anything? Anyway, you said yourself you'd rather it was Harry than Michael or Dean. Yeah, I would said Ron grudgingly, and just as long as you don't start snogging each other in public. You filthy hypocrite! What about you and Lavender thrashing around like a pair of eels all over the place? demanded Ginny. But Ron's tolerance was not to be tested much as they moved into June, for Harry and Ginny's time together was becoming increasingly restricted. Ginny's OWLs were approaching, and she was therefore forced to study for hours into the night. On one such evening, when Ginny had retired to the library and Harry was sitting beside the window in the common room, supposedly finishing his herbology homework, but in reality reliving a particularly happy hour he had spent down by the lake with Ginny at lunchtime, Hermione dropped into the seat between him and Ron with an unpleasantly purposeful look on her face. I want to talk to you, Harry. What about? said Harry suspiciously. Only the previous day, Hermione had told him off for distracting Ginny when she ought to be working hard for her examinations. The so-called half-blood prince. Oh, not again, he groaned. Will you please drop it? He had not dared to return to the room of requirement to retrieve his book, and his performance in potions was suffering accordingly, though Slughorn, who approved of Ginny, had jocularly attributed this to Harry being lovesick. But Harry was sure that Snape had not yet given up hope of laying hands on the prince's book, and was determined to leave it where it was while Snape remained on the lookout. I'm not dropping it, said Hermione firmly, until you've heard me out. Now, 
I've been trying to find out a bit about who might make a hobby of inventing dark spells. He didn't make a hobby of it. He, he, who says it's a he? We've been through this, said Harry crossly. Prince, Hermione, Prince. Right, said Hermione, red patches blazing in her cheeks as she pulled a very old piece of newsprint out of her pocket and slammed it down on the table in front of Harry. Look at that. Look at the picture. Harry picked up the crumbling piece of paper and stared at the moving photograph, yellowed with age. Ron leaned over for a look, too. The picture showed a skinny girl of around fifteen. She was not pretty. She looked simultaneously cross and sullen, with heavy brows and a long, pallid face. Underneath the photograph was the caption, Eileen Prince, captain of the Hogwarts Gobstones team. So? said Harry, scanning the short news item to which the picture belonged. It was a rather dull story about inter-school competitions. Her name was Eileen Prince. Prince, Harry. They looked at each other, and Harry realized what Hermione was trying to say. He burst out laughing. <laughs> no way. What? You think she was the half-blood? Oh, come on. Well, why not, Harry? There aren't any real princes in the wizarding world. It's either a nickname, a made-up title somebody's given themselves, or it could be their actual name, couldn't it? No, listen. If, say, her father was a wizard whose surname was Prince and her mother was a muggle, then that would make her a half-blood prince. Yeah. Very ingenious, Hermione. But it would. Maybe she was proud of being half a prince. Listen, Hermione, I can tell it's not a girl. I can just tell. The truth is that you don't think a girl would have been clever enough, said Hermione angrily. How can I have hung around with you for five years and not think girls are clever, said Harry, stung by this. It's the way he writes. I just know the prince was a bloke, I can tell. This girl hasn't got anything to do with it. Where did you get this, anyway? The library, said Hermione predictably. There's a whole collection of old prophets up there. Well, I'm going to find out more about Eileen Prince, if I can. Enjoy yourself, said Harry irritably. I will said Hermione, and the first place I'll look, she shot at him as she reached the portrait hole, is records of old potions awards. Harry scowled after her for a moment, then continued his contemplation of the darkening sky. She's just never got over you outperforming her in potions, said Ron, returning to his copy of A Thousand Magical Herbs and Fungi. You don't think I'm mad, wanting that book back, do you? Course not, said Ron robustly. He was a genius, the prince. Anyway, without his bezoar tip, he drew his finger significantly across his own throat. I wouldn't be here to discuss it, would I? I mean, I'm not saying that spell you used on Malfoy was great. Nor am I, said Harry quickly. But he healed all right, didn't he? Back on his feet in no time. Yeah, said Harry. This was perfectly true, although his conscience squirmed slightly all the same. Thanks to Snape. You still got detention with Snape this Saturday, Ron continued. Yeah, and the Saturday after that, and the Saturday after that, sighed Harry. And he's hinting now that if I don't get all the boxes done by the end of term, we'll carry on next year. He was finding these detentions particularly irksome because they cut into the already limited time he could have been spending with Ginny. Indeed, he had frequently wondered lately whether Snape did not know this 
for he was keeping Harry later and later every time, while making pointed asides about Harry having to miss the good weather and the varied opportunities it offered. Harry was shaken from these bitter reflections by the appearance at his side of Jimmy Peaks, who was holding out a scroll of parchment. Thanks, Jimmy. Hey, it's from Dumbledore, said Harry excitedly, unrolling the parchment and scanning it. He wants me to go to his office as quick as I can. They stared at each other. Blimey, whispered Ron. You don't reckon? He hasn't found. Better go and see, hadn't I? said Harry, jumping to his feet. He hurried out of the common room and along the seventh floor as fast as he could, passing nobody but Peeves, who swooped past in the opposite direction, throwing bits of chalk at Harry in a routine sort of way, and cackling loudly as he dodged Harry's defensive jinx. Once Peeves had vanished, there was silence in the corridors. With only fifteen minutes left until curfew, most people had already returned to their common rooms. And then Harry heard a scream and a crash. He stopped in his tracks, listening. How dare you! Ah! The noise was coming from a corridor nearby. Harry sprinted toward it, his wand at the ready, hurtled around another corner, and saw Professor Trelawney sprawled upon the floor, her head covered in one of her many shawls, several sherry bottles lying beside her, one broken. Professor! Harry hurried forward and helped Professor Trelawney to her feet. Some of her glittering beads had become entangled with her glasses. She hiccuped loudly, patted her hair, and pulled herself up on Harry's helping arm. What happened, Professor? You may well ask, she said shrilly. I was strolling along, brooding upon certain dark portents I happened to have glimpsed. But Harry was not paying much attention. He had just noticed where they were standing. There, on the right, was the tapestry of dancing trolls, and on the left, that smoothly impenetrable stretch of stone wall that concealed. Professor, were you trying to get into the room of requirement? Omens, I have been vouchsafed. What? She looked suddenly shifty. The room of requirement, repeated Harry. Were you trying to get in there? I, well, I didn't know students knew about. Not all of them do, said Harry. But what happened? You screamed. It sounded as though you were hurt. I, well, said Professor Trelawney, drawing her shawls around her defensively and staring down at him with her vastly magnified eyes. I wish to, uh, deposit certain mm, personal items in the room. And she muttered something about nasty accusations. Right, said Harry, glancing down at the sherry bottles. But you couldn't get in and hide them? He found this very odd. The room had opened for him, after all, when he had wanted to hide the Half-Blood Prince's book. Oh, I got in all right, said Professor Trelawney, glaring at the wall. But there was somebody already in there. Somebody in? Who? demanded Harry. Who was in there? I have no idea, said Professor Trelawney, looking slightly taken aback at the urgency in Harry's voice. I walked into the room and I heard a voice, which has never happened before in all my years of hiding, of using the room, I mean. A voice? Saying what? I don't know that it was saying anything, said Professor Trelawney. It was whooping. Whooping? Gleefully, she said, nodding. Harry stared at her. Was it male or female? I would hazard a guess at male said Professor Trelawney. And it sounded happy? 
Very happy, said Professor Trelawney sniffily, as though it was celebrating. Most definitely. And then, and then I called out, who's there? You couldn't have found out who it was without asking, Harry asked her, slightly frustrated. The inner eye, said Professor Trelawney with dignity, straightening her shawls and many strands of glittering beads, was fixed upon matters well outside the mundane realms of whooping voices. Right, said Harry hastily. He had heard about Professor Trelawney's inner eye all too often before. And did the voice say who was there? No, it did not, she said. Everything went pitch black, and the next thing I knew I was being hurled headfirst out of the room. And you didn't see that coming? said Harry, unable to help himself. No, I did not. As I say, it was pitch. She stopped and glared at him suspiciously. I think you'd better tell Professor Dumbledore, said Harry. He ought to know that Malfoy's celebrating, I mean that someone threw you out of the room. To his surprise, Professor Trelawney drew herself up at this suggestion, looking haughty. The headmaster has intimated that he would prefer fewer visits from me, she said coldly. I am not one to press my company upon those who do not value it. If Dumbledore chooses to ignore the warnings the cards show, her bony hand closed suddenly around Harry's wrist. Again and again, no matter how I lay them out. And she pulled a card dramatically from underneath her shawls. The lightning struck tower, she whispered. Calamity, disaster, coming nearer all the time. Right said Harry again. Well, I still think you should tell Dumbledore about this voice and everything going dark and being thrown out of the room. You think so? Professor Trelawney seemed to consider the matter for a moment, but Harry could tell that she liked the idea of retelling her little adventure. I'm going to see him right now, said Harry. I've got a meeting with him. We could go together. Oh, well, in that case, said Professor Trelawney with a smile. She bent down, scooped up her sherry bottles, and dumped them unceremoniously in a large blue-and-white vase standing in a nearby niche. I miss having you in my classes, Harry, she said soulfully as they set off together. You were never much of a seer, but you were a wonderful object. Harry did not reply. He had loathed being the object of Professor Trelawney's continual predictions of doom. I am afraid, she went on, that the nag... I'm sorry, the centaur knows nothing of cartomancy. I asked him, one seer to another, had he not too sensed the distant vibrations of coming catastrophe? But he seemed to find me almost comical. Yes, comical. Her voice rose rather hysterically, and Harry caught a powerful whiff of sherry, even though the bottles had been left behind. Perhaps the horse has heard people say that I have not inherited my great-great-grandmother's gift. Those rumors have been banded about by the jealous for years. You know what I say to such people, Harry. Would Dumbledore have let me teach at this great school, put so much trust in me all these years, had I not proved myself to him? Harry mumbled something indistinct. I will remember my first interview with Dumbledore, went on Professor Trelawney in throaty tones. He was deeply impressed, of course, deep impressed. I was staying at the hog's head, which I do not advise, incidentally. Bed bugs, dear boy. But funds were low. Dumbledore did me the courtesy of calling upon me in my room. He questioned me. 
I must confess that, at first, I thought he seemed ill-disposed toward divination, and I remember I was starting to feel a little odd. I had not eaten much that day, but then... And now Harry was paying attention properly for the first time, for he knew what had happened then. Professor Trelawney had made the prophecy that had altered the course of his whole life. The prophecy about him and Voldemort. But then we were rudely interrupted by Severus Snape. What? Yes, there was a commotion outside the door and it flew open, and there was that rather uncouth barman standing with Snape, who was waffling about having come the wrong way up the stairs, although I'm afraid that I myself rather thought he had been apprehended eavesdropping on my interview with Dumbledore. You see, he himself was seeking a job at the time, and no doubt hoped to pick up tips. Well, after that, you know, Dumbledore seemed much more disposed to give me a job, and I could not help thinking, Harry, that it was because he appreciated the stark contrast between my own unassuming manners and quiet talent compared to the pushing, thrusting young man who was prepared to listen at keyholes. Harry? Dear? She looked back over her shoulder, having only just realized that Harry was no longer with her. He had stopped walking and they were now ten feet from each other. Harry? she repeated uncertainly. Perhaps his face was white to make her look so concerned and frightened. Harry was standing stock still as waves of shock crashed over him, wave after wave obliterating everything except the information that had been kept from him for so long. It was Snape who had overheard the prophecy, it was Snape who had carried the news of the prophecy to Voldemort. Snape and Peter Pettigrew together had sent Voldemort hunting after Lily and James and their son. Nothing else mattered to Harry just now. Harry, said Professor Trelawney again. Harry, I thought we were going to see the headmaster together. You stay here, said Harry through numb lips. But dear, I was going to tell him how I was assaulted in the room of... You stay here, Harry repeated angrily. She looked alarmed as he ran past her, around the corner into Dumbledore's corridor, where the lone gargoyle stood sentry. Harry shouted the password of the gargoyle and ran up the moving spiral staircase three steps at a time. He did not knock upon Dumbledore's door. He hammered, and the calm voice answered, Enter, after Harry had already flung himself into the room. Forks, the phoenix, looked around, his bright black eyes gleaming with reflected gold from the sunset beyond the windows. Dumbledore was standing at the window, looking out at the grounds, a long black traveling cloak in his arms. Well, Harry, I promised that you could come with me. For a moment or two, Harry did not understand. The conversation with Trelawney had driven everything else out of his head, and his brain seemed to be moving very slowly. Come with you? Only if you wish it, of course. If I... And then Harry remembered why he had been eager to come to Dumbledore's office in the first place. You found one? You found a Horcrux? I believe so. Rage and resentment fought shock and excitement. For several moments, Harry could not speak. It is natural to be afraid, said Dumbledore. I'm not scared, said Harry at once, and it was perfectly true. Fear was one emotion he was not feeling at all. Which Horcrux is it? Where is it? I'm not sure which it is. Though I think we can rule out the snake. 
But I believe it to be hidden in a cave on the coast many miles from here. A cave I have been trying to locate for a very long time. The cave in which Tom Riddle once terrorized two children from his orphanage on their annual trip. You remember? Yes, said Harry. How is it protected? I do not know. I have suspicions that may be entirely wrong. Dumbledore hesitated, then said, Harry, I promised you that you could come with me, and I stand by that promise. But it would be very wrong of me not to warn you that this will be exceedingly dangerous. I'm coming, said Harry, almost before Dumbledore had finished speaking. Boiling with anger at Snape, his desire to do something desperate and risky had increased tenfold in the last few minutes. This seemed to show on Harry's face, for Dumbledore moved away from the window and looked more closely at Harry, a slight crease between his silver eyebrows. What has happened to you? Nothing, lied Harry promptly. What has upset you? I'm not upset. Harry, you were never a good Ocklemans. The word was the spark that ignited Harry's fury. Snape, he said very loudly, and Fawkes gave a soft squawk behind them. Snape's what's happened. He told Voldemort about the prophecy. It was him. He listened outside the door. Trelawney told me. Dumbledore's expression did not change, but Harry thought his face whitened under the bloody tinge cast by the setting sun. For a long moment, Dumbledore said nothing. When did you find out about this? he asked at last. Just now, said Harry, who was refraining from yelling with enormous difficulty. And then suddenly he could not stop himself. And you let him teach here and he told Voldemort to go after my mum and dad. Breathing hard as though he was fighting, Harry turned away from Dumbledore, who still had not moved a muscle and paced up and down the study, rubbing his knuckles in his hand and exercising every last bit of restraint to prevent himself knocking things over. He wanted to rage and storm at Dumbledore, but he also wanted to go with him to try and destroy the Horcrux. He wanted to tell him that he was a foolish old man for trusting Snape, but he was terrified that Dumbledore would not take him along unless he mastered his anger. Harry said Dumbledore quietly. Please listen to me. It was as difficult to stop his relentless pacing as to refrain from shouting. Harry paused, biting his lip, and looked into Dumbledore's lined face. Professor Snape made a terrible... Don't tell me it was a mistake, sir. He was listening at the door. Please let me finish. Dumbledore waited until Harry had nodded curtly, then went on... Professor Snape made a terrible mistake. He was still in Lord Voldemort's employ on the night he heard the first half of Professor Trelawney's prophecy. Naturally, he hastened to tell his master what he had heard, for it concerned his master most deeply. But he did not know, he had no possible way of knowing, which boy Voldemort would hunt from then onward, or that the parents he would destroy in his murderous quest were people that Professor Snape knew that they were your mother and father. Harry let out a yell of mirthless laughter. He hated my dad like he hated Sirius. Haven't you noticed, Professor, how the people Snape hates tend to end up dead? You have no idea of the remorse Professor Snape felt when he realized how Lord Voldemort had interpreted the prophecy, Harry. I believe it to be the greatest regret of his life and the reason that he returned. But he's a very good Ocklemans, isn't he, sir? 
said Harry, whose voice was shaking with the effort of keeping it steady. And isn't Voldemort convinced that Snape's on his side, even now? Professor, how can you be sure Snape's on our side? Dumbledore did not speak for a moment. He looked as though he was trying to make up his mind about something. At last he said, I am sure. I trust Severus Snape completely. Harry breathed deeply for a few moments in an effort to steady himself. It did not work. Well, I don't, he said as loudly as before. He's up to something with Draco Malfoy right now, right under your nose, and you still... We have discussed this, Harry, said Dumbledore, and now he sounded stern again. I have told you my views. You're leaving the school tonight, and I bet you haven't even considered that Snape and Malfoy might decide to... To what? asked Dumbledore, his eyebrows raised. What is it that you suspect them of doing, precisely? I... They're up to something, said Harry, and his hands curled into fists as he said it. Professor Trelawney was just in the room of requirement, trying to hide her sherry bottles, and she heard Malfoy whooping, celebrating. He's trying to mend something dangerous in there, and if you ask me, he's fixed it at last, and you're about to just walk out of school without... Enough, said Dumbledore. He said it quite calmly, and yet Harry fell silent at once. He knew that he had finally crossed some invisible line. Do you think that I have once left the school unprotected during my absences this year? I have not. Tonight, when I leave, there will again be additional protection in place. Please do not suggest that I do not take the safety of my students seriously, Harry. I didn't, mumbled Harry, a little abashed, but Dumbledore cut across him. I do not wish to discuss the matter any further. Harry bit back his retort, scared that he had gone too far, that he had ruined his chance of accompanying Dumbledore. But Dumbledore went on. Do you wish to come with me tonight? Yes, said Harry at once. Very well, then, listen. Dumbledore drew himself up to his full height. I take you with me on one condition, that you obey any command I might give you at once and without question. Of course. Be sure to understand me, Harry. I mean that you must follow even such orders as run, hide, or go back. Do I have your word? I... yes, of course. If I tell you to hide, you will do so? Yes. If I tell you to flee, you will obey? Yes. If I tell you to leave me and save yourself, you will do as I tell you? I... Harry? They looked at each other for a moment. Yes, sir. Very good. Then I wish you to go and fetch your invisibility cloak and meet me in the entrance wall in five minutes' time. Dumbledore turned back to look out of the fiery window. The sun was now a ruby-red glare along the horizon. Harry walked quickly from the office and down the spiral staircase. His mind was oddly clear all of a sudden. He knew what to do. Ron and Hermione were sitting together in the common room when he came back. What does he want? Hermione said at once. Harry, are you okay? She added anxiously. I'm fine, said Harry shortly, racing past them. He dashed up the stairs and into his dormitory where he flung open his trunk and pulled out the marauder's map and a pair of balled-up socks. 
Then he sped back down the stairs and into the common room, skidding to a halt where Ron and Hermione sat, looking stunned. I've got to be quick, Harry panted. Dumbledore thinks I'm getting my invisibility cloak. Listen. Quickly he told them where he was going and why. He did not pause either for Hermione's gasps of horror or for Ron's hasty questions. They could work out the finer details for themselves later. So you see what this means? Harry finished at a gallop. Dumbledore won't be here tonight, so Malfoy's going to have another clear shot at whatever he's up to. No, listen to me, he hissed angrily, as both Ron and Hermione showed every sign of interrupting. I know it was Malfoy celebrating in the Room of Requirement. Here. He shoved the Marauder's map into Hermione's hands. You've got to watch him, and you've got to watch Snape, too. Use anyone else who you can rustle up from the DA, Hermione. Those contact galleons will still work, right? Dumbledore says he's put extra protection in the school. But if Snape's involved, he'll know what Dumbledore's protection is and how to avoid it. But he won't be expecting you lot to be on the watch, will he? Harry, began Hermione, her eyes huge with fear. I haven't got time to argue, said Harry curtly. Take this as well. He thrust the socks into Ron's hands. Thanks, said Ron. Uh, why do I need socks? You need what's wrapped in them. It's the Felix Felicis. Share it between yourselves and Ginny, too. Say goodbye to her for me. I'd better go. Dumbledore's waiting. No, said Hermione, as Ron unwrapped the tiny little bottle of golden potion, looking awestruck. We don't want it. You take it. Who knows what you're going to be facing? I'll be fine. I'll be with Dumbledore, said Harry. I want to know you lot are okay. Don't look like that, Hermione. I'll see you later. And he was off, hurrying back through the portrait hole and toward the entrance hall. Dumbledore was waiting beside the oaken front doors. He turned as Harry came skidding out onto the topmost stone step, panting hard, a searing stitch in his side. I would like you to wear your cloak, please, said Dumbledore, and he waited until Harry had thrown it on before saying, Very good. Shall we go? Dumbledore set off at once down the stone steps, his own traveling cloak barely stirring in the still summer air. Harry hurried alongside him under the invisibility cloak, still panting and sweating rather a lot. But what will people think when they see you leaving, Professor? Harry asked, his mind on Malfoy and Snape. That I am off into Hogsmeade for a drink, said Dumbledore lightly. I sometimes offer Ross Murta my custom, or else visit the Hogshead, or I appear to. It is as good a way as any of disguising one's true destination. They made their way down the drive in the gathering twilight. The air was full of the smells of warm grass, lake water, and wood smoke from Hagrid's cabin. It was difficult to believe that they were heading for anything dangerous or frightening. Professor, said Harry quietly as the gates at the bottom of the drive came into view. Will we be apparating? Yes, said Dumbledore. You can apparate now, I believe. Yes, said Harry, but I haven't got a license. He felt it best to be honest. What if he spoiled everything by turning up a hundred miles from where he was supposed to go? No matter, said Dumbledore. I can assist you again. They turned out of the gates into the twilight, deserted lane to Hogsmeade. Darkness descended fast as they walked. By the time they reached the high street, night was falling in earnest. 
Lights twinkled from windows over shops, and as they neared the three broomsticks, they heard raucous shouting. And stay out, shouted Madame Ross Murta, forcibly ejecting a grubby-looking wizard. Oh, hello, Albus. You're out late. Good evening, Ross Murta. Good evening. Forgive me. I'm off to the hogshead. No offense, but I feel like a quieter atmosphere tonight. A minute later, they turned the corner into the side street where the hogshead sign creaked a little, though there was no breeze. In contrast to the three broomsticks, the pub appeared to be completely empty. It will not be necessary for us to enter, muttered Dumbledore, glancing around. As long as nobody sees us go. Now place your hand upon my arm, Harry. There is no need to grip too hard. I am merely guiding you. On the count of three. One, two, three. Harry turned. At once there was that horrible sensation that he was being squeezed through a thick rubber tube. He could not draw breath. Every part of him was being compressed almost past endurance. And then, just when he thought he must suffocate, the invisible bands seemed to burst open. And he was standing in cool darkness, breathing in lungfuls of fresh, salty air. Chapter 26 The Cave Harry could smell salt and hear rushing waves. A light, chilly breeze ruffled his hair as he looked out at moonlit sea and star-strewn sky. He was standing upon a high outcrop of dark rock, water foaming and churning below him. He glanced over his shoulder. A towering cliff stood behind them, a sheer drop, black and faceless. A few large chunks of rock, such as the one upon which Harry and Dumbledore were standing, looked as though they had broken away from the cliff face at some point in the past. It was a bleak, harsh view, the sea and the rock unrelieved by any tree or sweep of grass or sand. What do you think? asked Dumbledore. He might have been asking Harry's opinion on whether it was a good site for a picnic. They brought the kids from the orphanage here? asked Harry who could not imagine a less cozy spot for a day trip. Not here, precisely, said Dumbledore. There is a village of sorts about halfway along the cliffs behind us. I believe the orphans were taken there for a little sea air and a view of the waves. No, I think it was only ever Tom Riddle and his youthful victims who visited this spot. No muggle could reach this rock unless they were uncommonly good mountaineers, and boats cannot approach the cliffs. The waters around them are too dangerous. I imagine that Riddle climbed down. Magic would have served better than ropes, and he brought two children with him, probably for the pleasure of terrorizing them. I think the journey alone would have done it, don't you? Harry looked up at the cliff again and felt goosebumps. But his final destination, and ours, lies a little farther on. Come. Dumbledore beckoned Harry to the very edge of the rock, where a series of jagged niches made footholds leading down to boulders that lay half-submerged in water and closer to the cliff. It was a treacherous descent, and Dumbledore, hampered slightly by his withered hand, moved slowly. The lower rocks were slippery with seawater. Harry could feel flecks of cold salt spray hitting his face. Lumos, said Dumbledore as he reached the boulder closest to the cliff face. A thousand flecks of golden light sparkled upon the dark surface of the water a few feet below where he crouched.
The black wall of rock beside him was illuminated too. You see, said Dumbledore quietly, holding his wand a little higher. Harry saw a fissure in the cliff into which dark water was swirling. You will not object to getting a little wet? No, said Harry. Then take off your invisibility cloak. There is no need for it now. And let us take the plunge. And with the sudden agility of a much younger man, Dumbledore slid from the boulder, landed in the sea, and began to swim with a perfect breaststroke toward the dark slit in the rock face, his lit wand held in his teeth. Harry pulled off his cloak, stuffed it into his pocket, and followed. The water was icy. Harry's waterlogged clothes billowed around him and weighed him down. Taking deep breaths that filled his nostrils with a tang of salt and seaweed, he struck out for the shimmering, shrinking light now moving deeper into the cliff. The fissure soon opened into a dark tunnel that Harry could tell would be filled with water at high tide. The slimy walls were barely three feet apart and glimmered like wet tar in the passing light of Dumbledore's wand. A little way in, the passageway curved to the left, and Harry saw that it extended far into the cliff. He continued to swim in Dumbledore's wake, the tips of his benumbed fingers brushing the rough, wet rock. Then he saw Dumbledore rising out of the water ahead, his silver hair and dark robes gleaming. When Harry reached the spot, he found steps that led into a large cave. He clambered up them, water streaming from his soaking clothes, and emerged shivering uncontrollably into the still and freezing air. Dumbledore was standing in the middle of the cave, his wand held high as he turned slowly on the spot, examining the walls and ceiling. Yes, this is the place, said Dumbledore. How can you tell? Harry spoke in a whisper. It has known magic, said Dumbledore simply. Harry could not tell whether the shivers he was experiencing were due to his spine-deep coldness or to the same awareness of enchantments. He watched as Dumbledore continued to revolve on the spot, evidently concentrating on things Harry could not see. This is merely the antechamber, the entrance wall, said Dumbledore after a moment or two. We need to penetrate the inner place. Now it is Lord Voldemort's obstacles that stand in our way, rather than those nature made. Dumbledore approached the wall of the cave and caressed it with his blackened fingertips, murmuring words in a strange tongue that Harry did not understand. Twice Dumbledore walked right around the cave, touching as much of the rough rock as he could, occasionally pausing, running his fingers backward and forward over a particular spot, until finally he stopped his hand pressed flat against the wall. Here, he said. We go on through here. The entrance is concealed. Harry did not ask how Dumbledore knew. He had never seen a wizard work things out like this simply by looking and touching. But Harry had long since learned that bangs and smoke were more often the marks of ineptitude than expertise. Dumbledore stepped back from the cave wall and pointed his wand at the rock. For a moment, an arched outline appeared there, blazing white, as though there was a powerful light behind the crack. You've d done it, said Harry through chattering teeth. But before the words had left his lips, the outline had gone, leaving the rock as bare and solid as ever. Dumbledore looked around. 
Harry, I'm so sorry, I forgot, he said. He now pointed his wand at Harry, and at once Harry's clothes were as warm and dry as if they had been hanging in front of a blazing fire. Thank you, said Harry gratefully, but Dumbledore had already turned his attention back to the solid cave wall. He did not try any more magic, but simply stood there staring at it intently, as though something extremely interesting was written on it. Harry stayed quite still. He did not want to break Dumbledore's concentration. Then, after two solid minutes, Dumbledore said, quietly, Oh, surely not. So crude. What is it, Professor? I rather think, said Dumbledore, putting his uninjured hand inside his robes and drawing out a short silver knife of the kind Harry used to chop potion ingredients, that we are required to make payment to pass. Payment? said Harry. You've got to give the door something? Yes, said Dumbledore. Blood, if I'm not much mistaken. Blood? I said it was crude, said Dumbledore, who sounded disdainful, even disappointed, as though Voldemort had fallen short of the standards Dumbledore expected. The idea, as I am sure you will have gathered, is that your enemy must weaken him or herself to enter. Once again, Lord Voldemort fails to grasp that there are much more terrible things than physical injury. Yeah, but still, if you can avoid it, said Harry, who had experienced enough pain not to be keen for more. Sometimes, however, it is unavoidable, said Dumbledore, shaking back the sleeve of his robes and exposing the forearm of his injured hand. Professor! protested Harry, hurrying forward as Dumbledore raised his knife. I'll do it. I'm... He did not know what he was going to say. Younger? Fitter? But Dumbledore merely smiled. There was a flash of silver and a spurt of scarlet. The rock face was peppered with dark, glistening drops. You are very kind, Harry, said Dumbledore, now passing the tip of his wand over the deep cut he had made in his own arm, so that it healed instantly, just as Snape had healed Malfoy's wounds. But your blood is worth more than mine. Ah, that seems to have done the trick, doesn't it? The blazing silver outline of an arch had appeared in the wall once more, and this time it did not fade away. The blood-spattered rock within it simply vanished leaving an opening into what seemed total darkness. After me, I think, said Dumbledore, and he walked through the archway with Harry on his heels, lighting his own wand hastily as he went. An eerie sight met their eyes. They were standing on the edge of a great black lake, so vast that Harry could not make out the distant banks, in a cavern so high that the ceiling too was out of sight. A misty, greenish light shone far away in what looked like the middle of the lake. It was reflected in the completely still water below. The greenish glow and the light from the two wands were the only things that broke the otherwise velvety blackness. Though their rays did not penetrate as far as Harry would have expected, the darkness was somehow denser than normal darkness. Let us walk, said Dumbledore quietly. Be very careful not to step into the water. Stay close to me. He set off around the edge of the lake, and Harry followed close behind him. 
Their footsteps made echoing, slapping sounds on the narrow rim of rock that surrounded the water. On and on they walked, but the view did not vary. On one side of them the rough cavern wall, on the other the boundless expanse of smooth glassy blackness, in the very middle of which was that mysterious greenish glow. Harry found the place and the silence oppressive, unnerving. Professor, he said finally, do you think the Horcrux is here? Oh, yes, said Dumbledore. Yes, I'm sure it is. The question is, how do we get to it? We couldn't, we couldn't just try a summoning charm, Harry said, sure that it was a stupid suggestion. But he was much keener than he was prepared to admit on getting out of this place as soon as possible. Certainly we could, said Dumbledore, stopping so suddenly that Harry almost walked into him. Why don't you do it? Me? Oh, okay. Harry had not expected this, but cleared his throat and said loudly, wand aloft, Asio, Horcrux! With a noise like an explosion, something very large and pale erupted out of the dark water some twenty feet away. Before Harry could see what it was, it had vanished again with a crashing splash that made great, deep ripples on the mirrored surface. Harry leapt backward in shock and hit the wall. His heart was still thundering as he turned to Dumbledore. What was that? Something, I think, that is ready to respond should we attempt to seize the Horcrux. Harry looked back at the water. The surface of the lake was once more shining black glass. The ripples had vanished unnaturally fast. Harry's heart, however, was still pounding. Did you think that would happen, sir? I thought something would happen if we made an obvious attempt to get our hands on the Horcrux. That was a very good idea, Harry. Much the simplest way of finding out what we are facing. But we don't know what the thing was, said Harry, looking at the sinisterly smooth water. What the things are, you mean, said Dumbledore. I doubt very much that there is only one of them. Shall we walk on? Professor? Yes, Harry. Do you think we're going to have to go into the lake? Into it? Only if we are very unfortunate. You don't think the Horcrux is at the bottom? Oh, no. I think the Horcrux is in the middle. And Dumbledore pointed toward the misty green light in the center of the lake. So we're going to have to cross the lake to get to it? Yes, I think so. Harry did not say anything. His thoughts were all of water monsters, of giant serpents, of demons, kelpies, and sprites. Aha, said Dumbledore, and he stopped again. This time Harry really did walk into him. For a moment he toppled on the edge of the dark water, and Dumbledore's uninjured hand closed tightly around his upper arm, pulling him back. So sorry, Harry, I should have given warning. Stand back against the wall, please. I think I have found the place. Harry had no idea what Dumbledore meant. This patch of dark bank was exactly like every other bit as far as he could tell, but Dumbledore seemed to have detected something special about it. This time he was running his hand, not over the rocky wall, but through the thin air, as though expecting to find and grip something invisible. Oh-ho, said Dumbledore happily seconds later. 
His hand had closed in midair upon something Harry could not see. Dumbledore moved closer to the water. Harry watched nervously as the tips of Dumbledore's buckled shoes found the utmost edge of the rock rim. Keeping his hand clenched in midair, Dumbledore raised his wand with the other and tapped his fist with the point. Immediately, a thick coppery-green chain appeared out of thin air, extending from the depths of the water into Dumbledore's clenched hand. Dumbledore tapped the chain, which began to slide through his fist like a snake, coiling itself on the ground with a clinking sound that echoed noisily off the rocky walls, pulling something from the depths of the black water. Harry gasped as the ghostly prow of a tiny boat broke the surface, glowing as green as the chain, and floated with barely a ripple toward the place on the bank where Harry and Dumbledore stood. How did you know that was there? Harry asked in astonishment. Magic always leaves traces, said Dumbledore, as the boat hit the bank with a gentle bump. Sometimes very distinctive traces. I taught Tom Riddle. I know his style. Is, is this boat safe? Oh, yes, I think so. Voldemort needed to create a means to cross the lake without attracting the wrath of those creatures he had placed within it, in case he ever wanted to visit or remove his Horcrux. So the things in the water won't do anything to us if we cross in Voldemort's boat? I think we must resign ourselves to the fact that they will, at some point, realize we are not Lord Voldemort. Thus far, however, we have done well. They have allowed us to raise the boat. But why have they let us? asked Harry who could not shake off the vision of tentacles rising out of the dark water the moment they were out of sight of the bank. Voldemort would have been reasonably confident that none but a very great wizard would have been able to find the boat, said Dumbledore. I think he would have been prepared to risk what was, to his mind, the most unlikely possibility that somebody else would find it, knowing that he had set other obstacles ahead that only he would be able to penetrate. We shall see whether he is right. Harry looked down into the boat. It really was very small. It doesn't look like it was built for two people. Will it hold both of us? Will we be too heavy together? Dumbledore chuckled. Voldemort will not have cared about the weight, but about the amount of magical power that crossed his lake. I rather think an enchantment will have been placed upon this boat so that only one wizard at a time will be able to sail in it. But then, I do not think you will count, Harry. You are underage and unqualified. Voldemort would never have expected a sixteen-year-old to reach this place. I think it unlikely that your powers will register compared to mine. These words did nothing to raise Harry's morale. Perhaps Dumbledore knew it, for he added, Voldemort's mistake, Harry, Voldemort's mistake. Age is foolish and forgetful when it underestimates youth. Now, you first this time, and be careful not to touch the water. Dumbledore stood aside, and Harry climbed carefully into the boat. Dumbledore stepped in too, coiling the chain onto the floor. They were crammed in together. Harry could not comfortably sit, but crouched, his knees jutting over the edge of the boat, which began to move at once. There was no sound other than the silken rustle of the boat's prow cleaving the water.
It moved without their help, as though an invisible rope was pulling it onward toward the light in the center. Soon they could no longer see the walls of the cavern. They might have been at sea except that there were no waves. Harry looked down and saw the reflected gold of his wand lights sparkling and glittering on the black water as they passed. The boat was carving deep ripples upon the glassy surface, grooves in the dark mirror. And then Harry saw it, marble white, floating inches below the surface. Professor, he said, and his startled voice echoed loudly over the silent water. Harry, I think I saw a hand in the water, a human hand. Yes, I'm sure you did said Dumbledore calmly. Harry stared down into the water, looking for the vanished hand, and a sick feeling rose in his throat. So that thing that jumped out of the water? But Harry had his answer before Dumbledore could reply. The wand light had slid over a fresh patch of water and showed him, this time, a dead man lying face up inches beneath the surface. His open eyes misted as though with cobwebs his hair and his robes swirling around him like smoke. There are bodies in here, said Harry, and his voice sounded much higher than usual and most unlike his own. Yes, said Dumbledore placidly, but we do not need to worry about them at the moment. At the moment, Harry repeated, tearing his gaze from the water to look at Dumbledore. Not while they are merely drifting peacefully below us said Dumbledore. There is nothing to be feared from a body, Harry, any more than there is anything to be feared from the darkness. Lord Voldemort, who of course secretly fears both, disagrees. But once again he reveals his own lack of wisdom. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness. Nothing more. Harry said nothing. He did not want to argue, but he found the idea that there were bodies floating around them and beneath them horrible, and what was more, he did not believe that they were not dangerous. But one of them jumped, he said, trying to make his voice as level and calm as Dumbledore's. When I tried to summon the Horcrux, a body leapt out of the lake. Yes, said Dumbledore, I am sure that once we take the Horcrux, we shall find them less peaceable. However, like many creatures that dwell in cold and darkness, they fear light and warmth, which we shall therefore call to our aid should the need arise. Fire, Harry, Dumbledore added with a smile in response to Harry's bewildered expression. Oh, right, said Harry quickly. He turned his head to look at the greenish glow toward which the boat was still inexorably sailing. He could not pretend now that he was not scared. The great black lake teeming with the dead. It seemed hours and hours ago that he had met Professor Trelawney, that he had given Ron and Hermione Felix Felices. He suddenly wished he had said a better goodbye to them, and he hadn't seen Ginny at all. Nearly there, said Dumbledore cheerfully. Sure enough, the greenish light seemed to be growing larger at last, and within minutes the boat had come to a halt, bumping gently into something that Harry could not see at first. But when he raised his illuminated wand, he saw that they had reached a small island of smooth rock in the center of the lake. Careful not to touch the water, 
said Dumbledore again, as Harry climbed out of the boat. The island was no larger than Dumbledore's office, an expanse of flat, dark stone on which stood nothing but the source of that greenish light, which looked much brighter when viewed close to. Harry squinted at it. At first he thought it was a lamp of some kind, but then he saw that the light was coming from a stone basin, rather like the pensive, which was set on top of a pedestal. Dumbledore approached the basin, and Harry followed. Side by side, they looked down into it. The basin was full of an emerald liquid emitting that phosphorescent glow. What is it? asked Harry quietly. I am not sure, said Dumbledore. Something more worrisome than blood and bodies, however. Dumbledore pushed back the sleeve of his robe over his blackened hand and stretched out the tips of his burned fingers toward the surface of the potion. Sir, no, don't touch. I cannot touch, said Dumbledore, smiling faintly. See, I cannot approach any nearer than this. You try. Staring, Harry put his hand into the basin and attempted to touch the potion. He met an invisible barrier that prevented him coming within an inch of it. No matter how hard he pushed, his fingers encountered nothing but what seemed to be solid and inflexible air. Out of the way, please, Harry, said Dumbledore. He raised his wand and made complicated movements over the surface of the potion, murmuring soundlessly. Nothing happened, except perhaps that the potion glowed a little brighter. Harry remained silent while Dumbledore worked. But after a while, Dumbledore withdrew his wand, and Harry felt it was safe to talk again. You think the Horcrux is in there, sir? Oh, yes. Dumbledore peered more closely into the basin. Harry saw his face reflected upside down in the smooth surface of the green potion. But how to reach it? This potion cannot be penetrated by hand, vanished, parted, scooped up, or siphoned away, nor can it be transfigured, charmed, or otherwise made to change its nature. Almost absent-mindedly, Dumbledore raised his wand again, twirled it once in midair, and then caught the crystal goblet that he had conjured out of nowhere. I can only conclude that this potion is supposed to be drunk. What? said Harry. No. Yes, I think so. Only by drinking it can I empty the basin and see what lies in its depths. But what if... what if it kills you? Oh, I doubt that it would work like that, said Dumbledore easily. Lord Voldemort would not want to kill the person who reached this island. Harry couldn't believe it. Was this more of Dumbledore's insane determination to see good in everyone? Sir, said Harry, trying to keep his voice reasonable. Sir, this is Voldemort with... I'm sorry, Harry. I should have said he would not want to immediately kill the person who reached this island. Dumbledore corrected himself. He would want to keep them alive long enough to find out how they managed to penetrate so far through his defenses and... Most importantly of all, why they were so intent upon emptying the basin. Do not forget that Lord Voldemort believes that he alone knows about his horcruxes. 
Harry made to speak again, but this time Dumbledore raised his hand for silence, frowning slightly at the emerald liquid, evidently thinking hard. Undoubtedly, he said finally, this potion must act in a way that will prevent me taking the Horcrux. It might paralyze me, cause me to forget what I am here for, create so much pain I am distracted, or render me incapable in some other way. This being the case, Harry, it will be your job to make sure I keep drinking. Even if you have to tip the potion into my protesting mouth, you understand? Their eyes met over the basin, each pale face lit with that strange green light. Harry did not speak. Was this why he had been invited along? So that he could force-feed Dumbledore a potion that might cause him unendurable pain? You remember, said Dumbledore, the condition on which I brought you with me? Harry hesitated, looking into the blue eyes that had turned green in the reflected light of the basin. But what if you swore, did you not, to follow any command I gave you? Yes, but I warned you, did I not, that there might be danger? Yes, said Harry. But well then, said Dumbledore, shaking back his sleeves once more and raising the empty goblet. You have my orders. Why can't I drink the potion instead? asked Harry desperately. Because I am much older, much cleverer, and much less valuable, said Dumbledore. Once and for all, Harry, do I have your word that you will do all in your power to make me keep drinking? Couldn't, do I have it, but your word, Harry? I, all right, but before Harry could make any further protest, Dumbledore lowered the crystal goblet into the potion. For a split second, Harry hoped that he would not be able to touch the potion with the goblet, but the crystal sank into the surface as nothing else had. When the glass was full to the brim, Dumbledore lifted it to his mouth. Your good health, Harry. And he drained the goblet. Harry watched, terrified, his hands gripping the rim of the basin so hard that his fingertips were numb. Professor, he said anxiously, as Dumbledore lowered the empty glass. How do you feel? Dumbledore shook his head, his eyes closed. Harry wondered whether he was in pain. Dumbledore plunged the glass blindly back into the basin, refilled it, and drank once more. In silence, Dumbledore drank three goblets full of the potion. Then halfway through the fourth goblet, he staggered and fell forward against the basin. His eyes were still closed his breathing heavy. Professor Dumbledore, said Harry, his voice strained. Can you hear me? Dumbledore did not answer. His face was twitching as though he was deeply asleep, but dreaming a horrible dream. His grip on the goblet was slackening. The potion was about to spill from it. Harry reached forward and grasped the crystal cup, holding it steady. Professor, can you hear me? He repeated loudly, his voice echoing around the cavern. Dumbledore panted and then spoke in a voice Harry did not recognize, for he had never heard Dumbledore frightened like this. I don't want... Don't make me... Harry stared into the whitened face he knew so well, at the crooked nose and half-moon spectacles, and did not know what to do. Don't like... 
want to stop, moaned Dumbledore. You, you can't stop, Professor, said Harry. You've got to keep drinking, remember? You told me you had to keep drinking. Here. Hating himself, repulsed by what he was doing, Harry forced the goblet back toward Dumbledore's mouth and tipped it so that Dumbledore drank the remainder of the potion inside. No, he groaned as Harry lowered the goblet back into the basin and refilled it for him. I don't want to. I don't want to. Let me go. It's all right, Professor, said Harry, his hands shaking. It's all right. I'm here. Make it stop. Make it stop, moaned Dumbledore. Yes, yes, this'll make it stop, lied Harry. He tipped the contents of the goblet into Dumbledore's open mouth. Dumbledore screamed. The noise echoed all around the vast chamber, across the dead black water. No, 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 I can't, I can't. Don't make me, I don't want to. It's all right, Professor, it's all right, said Harry loudly, his hands shaking so badly he could hardly scoop up the sixth goblet full of potion. The basin was now half empty. Nothing's happening to you. You're safe. It isn't real. I swear it isn't real. Take this. Now take this. And obediently, Dumbledore drank, as though it was an antidote Harry offered him. But upon draining the goblet, he sank to his knees, shaking uncontrollably. It's all my fault. All my fault, he sobbed. Please make it stop. I know I did wrong. Oh, please, make it stop, and I'll never, never again. This will make it stop, Professor, Harry said, his voice cracking as he tipped the seventh glass of potion into Dumbledore's mouth. Dumbledore began to cower as though invisible torturers surrounded him. His flailing hand almost knocked the refilled goblet from Harry's trembling hands as he moaned, Don't hurt them. Don't hurt them, please. Please. It's my fault. Hurt me instead. Here, drink this. Drink this, you'll be all right, said Harry desperately. And once again, Dumbledore obeyed him, opening his mouth, even as he kept his eyes tight shut and shook from head to foot. And now he fell forward, screaming again, hammering his fists upon the ground, while Harry filled the ninth goblet. Please, 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 no. Not that. Not that. I'll do anything. Just drink, Professor. Just drink. Dumbledore drank like a child dying of thirst. But when he had finished, he yelled again as though his insides were on fire. No more, please. No more. Harry scooped up a tenth goblet full of potion and felt the crystal scrape the bottom of the basin. We're nearly there, Professor. Drink this. Drink it. He supported Dumbledore's shoulders, and again, Dumbledore drained the glass. Then Harry was on his feet once more, refilling the goblet, as Dumbledore began to scream in more anguish than ever. I want to die. I want to die. Make it stop. Make it stop. I want to die. Drink this, Professor. Drink this. Dumbledore drank, and no sooner had he finished than he yelled, 
this. This one will, gasped Harry. Just drink this. It'll be over. All over. Dumbledore gulped at the goblet, drained every last drop, and then with a great rattling gasp, rolled over onto his face. No, shouted Harry, who had stood to refill the goblet again. Instead, he dropped the cup into the basin, flung himself down beside Dumbledore, and heaved him over onto his back. Dumbledore's glasses were askew, his mouth agape, his eyes closed. No, said Harry, shaking Dumbledore. No, you're not dead. You said it wasn't poison. Wake up. Wake up. Renovate, he cried, his wand pointing at Dumbledore's chest. There was a flash of red light, but nothing happened. Renovate! Sir, please. Dumbledore's eyelids flickered. Harry's heart leapt. Sir, are you... Water, croaked Dumbledore. Water, panted Harry. Yes. He leapt to his feet and seized the goblet he had dropped in the basin. He barely registered the golden locket lying curled beneath it. Aguamenti, he shouted, jabbing the goblet with his wand. The goblet filled with clear water. Harry dropped to his knees beside Dumbledore, raised his head, and brought the glass to his lips. But it was empty. Dumbledore groaned and began to pant. But I had some. Wait, Aguamenti, said Harry again, pointing his wand at the goblet. Once more, for a second, clear water gleamed within it, but as he approached Dumbledore's mouth, the water vanished again. Sir, I'm trying, I'm trying, said Harry desperately, but he did not think that Dumbledore could hear him. He had rolled onto his side and was drawing great rattling breaths that sounded agonizing. Aguamenti! 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 The goblet filled and emptied once more and now Dumbledore's breathing was fading. His brain whirling in panic, Harry knew instinctively the only way left to get water, because Voldemort had planned it so. He flung himself over to the edge of the rock and plunged the goblet into the lake, bringing it up full to the brim of icy water that did not vanish. Sir, here, Harry yelled, and lunging forward, he tipped the water clumsily over Dumbledore's face. It was the best he could do, for the icy feeling on his arm not holding the cup was not the lingering chill of the water. A slimy white hand had gripped his wrist, and the creature to whom it belonged was pulling him slowly backward across the rock. The surface of the lake was no longer mirror smooth. It was churning, and everywhere Harry looked, White heads and hands were emerging from the dark water. Men and women and children with sunken, sightless eyes were moving toward the rock. An army of the dead rising from the black water. Petrificus Totalus, yelled Harry, struggling to cling to the smooth, soaked surface of the island as he pointed his wand at the Inferius that had his arm. It released him, falling backward into the water with a splash. He scrambled to his feet, but many more in fury were already climbing onto the rock, their bony hands clawing at its slippery surface, their blank frosted eyes upon him, trailing waterlogged rags, sunken faces leering. Petrificus Totalus! Harry bellowed again, backing away as he swiped his wand through the air. Six or seven of them crumpled, but more were coming toward him. Impedimenta! Incarcerus! 
A few of them stumbled, one or two of them bound in ropes. But those climbing onto the rock behind them merely stepped over or on the fallen bodies. Still slashing at the air with his wand, Harry yelled, Sectum Sempra! Sectum Sempra! But though gashes appeared in their sodden rags and their icy skin, they had no blood to spill. They walked on, unfeeling, their shrunken hands outstretched toward him, and as he backed away still farther, he felt arms enclose him from behind, thin, fleshless arms cold as death, and his feet left the ground as they lifted him and began to carry him slowly and surely back to the water, and he knew there would be no release, that he would be drowned and become one more dead guardian of a fragment of Voldemort's shattered soul. But then, through the darkness, fire erupted, crimson and gold, a ring of fire that surrounded the rock so that the Inferi, holding Harry so tightly, stumbled and faltered. They did not dare pass through the flames to get to the water. They dropped Harry. He hit the ground, slipped on the rock, and fell, grazing his arms, but scrambled back up, raising his wand and staring around. Dumbledore was on his feet again, pale as any of the surrounding Inferi, but taller than any two, the fire dancing in his eyes. His wand was raised like a torch, and from its tip emanated the flames like a vast lasso, encircling them all with warmth. The Inferi bumped into each other, attempting blindly to escape the fire in which they were enclosed. Dumbledore scooped the locket from the bottom of the stone basin and stowed it inside his robes. Wordlessly, he gestured to Harry to come to his side. Distracted by the flames, the Inferi seemed unaware that their quarry was leaving as Dumbledore led Harry back to the boat, the ring of fire moving with them, around them, the bewildered Inferi accompanying them to the water's edge, where they slipped gratefully back into their dark waters. Harry, who was shaking all over, thought for a moment that Dumbledore might not be able to climb into the boat. He staggered a little as he attempted it, all his efforts seemed to be going into maintaining the ring of protective flame around them. Harry seized him and helped him back to his seat. Once they were both safely jammed inside again, the boat began to move back across the black water, away from the rock, still encircled by that ring of fire, and it seemed that the Inferi swarming below them did not dare resurface. Sir, panted Harry, sir, I forgot about fire. They were coming at me, and I panicked. Quite understandable, murmured Dumbledore. Harry was alarmed to hear how faint his voice was. They reached the bank with a little bump, and Harry leapt out, then turned quickly to help Dumbledore. The moment that Dumbledore reached the bank, he let his wand hand fall. The ring of fire vanished, but the Inferi did not emerge again from the water. The little boat sank into the water once more, Clanking and tinkling, its chains slithered back into the lake, too. Dumbledore gave a great sigh and leaned against the cavern wall. I am weak, he said. Don't worry, sir, said Harry at once, anxious about Dumbledore's extreme pallor and by his air of exhaustion. Don't worry, I'll get us back. Lean on me, sir. And pulling Dumbledore's uninjured arm around his shoulders, Harry guided his headmaster back around the lake, bearing most of his weight. The protection was, after all, well designed, said Dumbledore faintly. 
One alone could not have done it. You did well. Very well, Harry. Don't talk now, said Harry, fearing how slurred Dumbledore's voice had become, how much his feet dragged. Save your energy, sir. We'll soon be out of here. The archway will have sealed again. My knife. There's no need. I got cut on the rock, said Harry firmly. Just tell me where. Here. Harry wiped his grazed forearm upon the stone. Having received its tribute of blood, the archway reopened instantly. They crossed the outer cave, and Harry helped Dumbledore back into the icy seawater that filled the crevice in the cliff. It's going to be all right, sir, Harry said over and over again, more worried by Dumbledore's silence than he had been by his weakened voice. We're nearly there. I can apparate us both back. Don't worry. I'm not worried, Harry, said Dumbledore, his voice a little stronger despite the freezing water. I am with you. Chapter 27 The Lightning Struck Tower Once back under the starry sky, Harry heaved Dumbledore onto the top of the nearest boulder and then to his feet. Sodden and shivering, Dumbledore's weight still upon him, Harry concentrated harder than he had ever done upon his destination, Hogsmeade. Closing his eyes, gripping Dumbledore's arm as tightly as he could, he stepped forward into that feeling of horrible compression. He knew it had worked before he opened his eyes. The smell of salt, the sea breeze, had gone. He and Dumbledore were shivering and dripping in the middle of the dark high street in Hogsmeade. For one horrible moment, Harry's imagination showed him more in fury creeping toward him around the sides of shops. But he blinked and saw that nothing was stirring. All was still, the darkness complete, but for a few street lamps and lit upper windows. We did it, Professor, Harry whispered with difficulty. He suddenly realized that he had a searing stitch in his chest. We did it. We got the Horcrux. Dumbledore staggered against him. For a moment, Harry thought that his inexpert apparition had thrown Dumbledore off balance. Then he saw his face, paler and damper than ever in the distant light of a street lamp. Sir, are you all right? I've been better, said Dumbledore weakly, though the corners of his mouth twitched. That potion was no health drink. And to Harry's horror, Dumbledore sank onto the ground. Sir, it's okay, sir. You're going to be all right, don't worry. He looked around desperately for help, but there was nobody to be seen, and all he could think was that he must somehow get Dumbledore quickly to the hospital wing. We need to get you up to the school, sir. Madame Pomfrey. No, said Dumbledore. It is Professor Snape whom I need, but I do not think I can walk very far just yet. Right. Sir, listen. I'm going to knock on a door, find a place you can stay. Then I can run and get Madame Severus, said Dumbledore clearly. I need Severus. All right, then, Snape. But I'm going to have to leave you for a moment so I can... Before Harry could make a move, however, he heard running footsteps. His heart leapt. Somebody had seen, somebody knew they needed help. And looking around, he saw Madame Rosmerta scurrying down the dark street toward them on high-heeled fluffy slippers, wearing a silk dressing gown embroidered with dragons. 
I saw you apparate as I was pulling my bedroom curtains. Thank goodness, thank goodness. I couldn't think what to... But what's wrong with Albus? She came to a halt, panting, and stared down, wide-eyed at Dumbledore. He's hurt, said Harry. Madame Rasmurta, can he come into the three broomsticks while I go up to the school and get help for him? You can't go up there alone. Don't you realize? Haven't you seen? If you help me support him, said Harry, not listening to her, I think we can get him inside. What has happened? asked Dumbledore. Rosmerta, what's wrong? The, the dark mark, Albus. And she pointed into the sky in the direction of Hogwarts. Dread flooded Harry at the sound of the words. He turned and looked. There it was, hanging in the sky above the school, the blazing green skull with a serpent tongue, the mark Death Eaters left behind whenever they had entered a building, wherever they had murdered. When did it appear? asked Dumbledore, and his hand clenched painfully upon Harry's shoulder as he struggled to his feet. Must have been minutes ago. It wasn't there when I put the cat out, but when I got upstairs... We need to return to the castle at once, said Dumbledore. Ross murder. And though he staggered a little, he seemed wholly in command of the situation. We need transport. Brooms. I've got a couple behind the bar, she said, looking very frightened. Shall I run and fetch? No, Harry can do it. Harry raised his wand at once. I see you, Ross Murta's brooms. A second later, they heard a loud bang as the front door of the pub burst open. Two brooms had shot out into the street and were racing each other to Harry's side, where they stopped dead, quivering slightly at waist height. Ross Murta, please send a message to the ministry, said Dumbledore as he mounted the broom nearest him. It might be that nobody within Hogwarts has yet realized anything is wrong. Harry, put on your invisibility cloak. Harry pulled his cloak out of his pocket and threw it over himself before mounting his broom. Madame Rosmerta was already tottering back toward her pub as Harry and Dumbledore kicked off from the ground and rose up into the air. As they sped toward the castle, Harry glanced sideways at Dumbledore, ready to grab him should he fall. But the sight of the dark mark seemed to have acted upon Dumbledore like a stimulant. He was bent low over his broom, his eyes fixed upon the mark, his long silver hair and beard flying behind him on the night air. And Harry too looked ahead at the skull, and fear swelled inside him like a venomous bubble, compressing his lungs, driving all other discomfort from his mind. How long had they been away? Had Ron, Hermione, and Ginny's luck run out by now? Was it one of them who had caused the mark to be set over the school? Or was it Neville, or Luna, or some other member of the D.A.? And if it was, he was the one who had told them to patrol the corridors. He had asked them to leave the safety of their beds. Would he be responsible again for the death of a friend? As they flew over the dark, twisting lane down which they had walked earlier, Harry heard over the whistling of the night air in his ears, Dumbledore muttering in some strange language again. He thought he understood why, as he felt his broom shudder when they flew over the boundary wall into the grounds. Dumbledore was undoing the enchantments he himself had set around the castle so they could enter at speed. The dark mark was glittering directly above the astronomy tower, the highest of the castle. Did that mean the death had occurred there? Dumbledore had already crossed the crenellated ramparts and was dismounting. 
Harry landed next to him seconds later and looked around. The ramparts were deserted. The door to the spiral staircase that led back into the castle was closed. There was no sign of a struggle, of a fight to the death, of a body. What does it mean? Harry asked Dumbledore, looking up at the green skull with its serpent's tongue glinting evilly above them. Is it the real mark? Has someone definitely been... Professor? In the dim green glow from the mark, Harry saw Dumbledore clutching at his chest with his blackened hand. Go and wake Severus, said Dumbledore faintly but clearly. Tell him what has happened and bring him to me. Do nothing else. Speak to nobody else. And do not remove your cloak. I shall wait here. But you swore to obey me, Harry. Go. Harry hurried over to the door leading to the spiral staircase, but his hand had only just closed upon the iron ring of the door when he heard running footsteps on the other side. He looked around at Dumbledore, who gestured him to retreat. Harry backed away, drawing his wand as he did so. The door burst open and somebody erupted through it and shouted, Expelliarmus! Harry's body became instantly rigid and immobile and he felt himself fall back against the tower wall, propped like an unsteady statue, unable to move or speak. He could not understand how it had happened. Expelliarmus was not a freezing charm. Then, by the light of the mark, he saw Dumbledore's wand flying in an arc over the edge of the ramparts and understood. Dumbledore had wordlessly immobilized Harry, and the second he had taken to perform the spell had cost him the chance of defending himself. Standing against the ramparts, very white in the face, Dumbledore still showed no sign of panic or distress. He merely looked across at his disarmor and said, Good evening, Draco. Malfoy stepped forward, glancing around quickly to check that he and Dumbledore were alone. His eyes fell upon the second broom. Who else is here? A question I might ask you, or are you acting alone? Harry saw Malfoy's pale eyes shift back to Dumbledore in the greenish glare of the mark. No, he said, I've got backup. There are Death Eaters here in your school tonight. Well, well, said Dumbledore, as though Malfoy was showing him an ambitious homework project. Very good indeed. You found a way to let them in, did you? Yeah, said Malfoy, who was panting. Right under your nose, and you never realized. Ingenious, said Dumbledore. Yet, forgive me, where are they now? You seem unsupported. They met some of your guards. They're having a fight down below. They won't be long. I came on ahead. I... I've got a job to do. Well, then, you must get on and do it, my dear boy said Dumbledore softly. There was silence. Harry stood imprisoned within his own invisible, paralyzed body, staring at the two of them, his ears straining to hear sounds of the Death Eater's distant fight. And in front of him, Draco Malfoy did nothing but stare at Albus Dumbledore, who incredibly smiled. Draco, Draco, you are not a killer. How do you know? said Malfoy at once. He seemed to realize how childish the words had sounded. Harry saw him flush in the mark's greenish light. You don't know what I'm capable of, said Malfoy more forcefully, 
You don't know what I've done. Oh, yes, I do, said Dumbledore mildly. You almost killed Katie Bell and Ronald Weasley. You have been trying with increasing desperation to kill me all year. Forgive me, Draco, but they have been feeble attempts. So feeble, to be honest, that I wonder whether your heart has been really in it. It has been in it, said Malfoy vehemently. I've been working on it all year, and tonight... Somewhere in the depths of the castle below, Harry heard a muffled yell. Malfoy stiffened and glanced over his shoulder. Somebody is putting up a good fight, said Dumbledore conversationally. But you were saying, yes, you have managed to introduce Death Eaters into my school, which, I admit, I thought impossible. How did you do it? But Malfoy said nothing. He was still listening to whatever was happening below, and seemed almost as paralyzed as Harry was. Perhaps you ought to get on with the job alone, suggested Dumbledore. What if your backup has been thwarted by my guard? As you have perhaps realized, there are members of the Order of the Phoenix here tonight, too. And after all, you don't really need help. I have no wand at the moment. I cannot defend myself. Malfoy merely stared at him. I see, said Dumbledore kindly, when Malfoy neither moved nor spoke. You are afraid to act until they join you. I'm not afraid snarled Malfoy, though he still made no move to hurt Dumbledore. It's you who should be scared. But why? I don't think you will kill me, Draco. Killing is not nearly as easy as the innocent believe. So tell me, while we wait for your friends, how did you smuggle them in here? It seems to have taken you a long time to work out how to do it. Malfoy looked as though he was fighting down the urge to shout or to vomit. He gulped and took several deep breaths, glaring at Dumbledore, his wand pointing directly at the latter's heart. Then, as though he could not help himself, he said, I had to mend that broken vanishing cabinet that no one's used for years, the one Montague got lost in last year. Ah. Dumbledore's sigh was half a groan. He closed his eyes for a moment. That was clever. That is a pair. I take it. In Borgen and Burke's, said Malfoy, and they make a kind of passage between them. Montague told me that when he was stuck in the Hogwarts one, he was trapped in limbo, but sometimes he could hear what was going on at school, and sometimes what was going on in the shop, as if the cabinet was traveling between them, but he couldn't make anyone hear him. In the end, he managed to apparate out, even though he'd never passed his test. He nearly died doing it. Everyone thought it was a really good story, but I was the only one who realized what it meant. Even Borgin didn't know. I was the one who realized there could be a way into Hogwarts through the cabinets, if I fixed the broken one. Very good, murmured Dumbledore. So the Death Eaters were able to pass from Borgin and Burks into the school to help you. A clever plan, a very clever plan, and, as you say, right under my nose. Yeah, 
said Malfoy, who bizarrely seemed to draw courage and comfort from Dumbledore's praise. Yeah, it was. But there were times, Dumbledore went on, weren't there, when you were not sure you would succeed in mending the cabinet, and you resorted to crude and badly judged measures, such as sending me a cursed necklace that was bound to reach the wrong hands. Poisoning mead, there was only the slightest chance I might drink. Yeah, well, you still didn't realize who was behind that stuff, did you? Sneered Malfoy, as Dumbledore slid a little down the ramparts, the strength in his legs apparently fading, and Harry struggled fruitlessly, mutely, against the enchantment binding him. As a matter of fact, I did, said Dumbledore. I was sure it was you. Why didn't you stop me then? Malfoy demanded. I tried, Draco. Professor Snape has been keeping watch over you on my orders. He hasn't been doing your orders. He promised my mother. Of course, that is what he would tell you, Draco. But he's a double agent, you stupid old man. He isn't working for you. You just think he is. We must agree to differ on that, Draco. It so happens that I trust Professor Snape. Well, you're losing your grip then, sneered Malfoy. He's been offering me plenty of help, wanting all the glory for himself, wanting a bit of the action. What are you doing? Did you do the necklace? That was stupid. It could have blown everything. But I haven't told him what I've been doing in the Room of Requirement. He's going to wake up tomorrow and it'll all be over. And he won't be the Dark Lord's favorite anymore. He'll be nothing compared to me. Nothing. Very gratifying, said Dumbledore mildly. We all like appreciation for our own hard work, of course. But you must have had an accomplice. All the same, someone in Hogsmeade. Someone who was able to slip Katie the... the... Ah. Dumbledore closed his eyes again and nodded, as though he was about to fall asleep. Of course, Rosmerta. How long has she been under the imperious curse? Got there at last, have you? Malfoy taunted. There was another yell from below, rather louder than the last. Malfoy looked nervously over his shoulder again, then back at Dumbledore who went on. So poor Rosmerta was forced to lurk in her own bathroom and pass that necklace to any Hogwarts student who entered the room unaccompanied. And the poisoned mead. Well, naturally, Rosmerta was able to poison it for you before she sent the bottle to Slughorn, believing that it was to be my Christmas present. Yes, very neat, very neat. Poor Mr. Filch would not, of course, think to check a bottle of Rosmerta's. Tell me, how have you been communicating with Rosmerta? I thought we had all methods of communication in and out of the school monitored. Enchanted coins, said Malfoy, as though he was compelled to keep talking, though his wand hand was shaking badly. I had one and she had the other, and I could send her messages. Isn't that the secret method of communication the group that called themselves Dumbledore's army used last year? Asked Dumbledore. His voice was light and conversational, 
But Harry saw him slip an inch lower down the wall as he said it. Yeah, I got the idea from them, said Malfoy with a twisted smile. I got the idea of poisoning the mead from the mudblood Granger as well. I heard her talking in the library about Filch not recognizing potions. Please do not use that offensive word in front of me, said Dumbledore. Malfoy gave a harsh laugh. You care about me saying mudblood when I'm about to kill you? Yes, I do, said Dumbledore, and Harry saw his feet slide a little on the floor as he struggled to remain upright. But as for being about to kill me, Draco, you have had several long minutes now. We are quite alone. I am more defenseless than you can have dreamed of finding me. And still you have not acted. Malfoy's mouth contorted involuntarily, as though he had tasted something very bitter. Now, about tonight, Dumbledore went on, I am a little puzzled about how it happened. You knew that I had left the school. But of course, he answered his own question. Rosmerta saw me leaving. She tipped you off using your ingenious coins, I'm sure. That's right, said Malfoy. But she said you were just going for a drink. You'd be back. Well, I certainly did have a drink. And I came back after her fashion, mumbled Dumbledore. So... You decided to spring a trap for me? We decided to put the dark mark over the tower and get you to hurry up here to see who'd been killed, said Malfoy. And it worked. Well, yes and no, said Dumbledore. But am I to take it then that nobody has been murdered? Someone's dead, said Malfoy, and his voice seemed to go up an octave as he said it. One of your people. I don't know who. It was dark. I stepped over the body. I was supposed to be waiting up here when you got back. Only your phoenix lot got in the way. Yes, they do that, said Dumbledore. There was a bang and shouts from below, louder than ever. It sounded as though people were fighting on the actual spiral staircase that led to where Dumbledore, Malfoy, and Harry stood. And Harry's heart thundered unheard in his invisible chest. Someone was dead. Malfoy had stepped over the body. But who was it? There is little time, one way or another, said Dumbledore. So let us discuss your options, Draco. My options? said Malfoy loudly. I'm standing here with a wand. I'm about to kill you. My dear boy, let us have no more pretense about that. If you were going to kill me, you would have done it when you first disarmed me. You would not have stopped for this pleasant chat about ways and means. I haven't got any options, said Malfoy, and he was suddenly white as Dumbledore. I've got to do it. He'll kill me. He'll kill my whole family. I appreciate the difficulty of your position, said Dumbledore. Why else do you think I have not confronted you before now? because I knew that you would have been murdered if Lord Voldemort realized that I suspected you. Malfoy winced at the sound of the name. I did not dare speak to you of the mission with which I knew you had been entrusted, in case he used legitimacy against you, continued Dumbledore. But now at last we can speak plainly to each other. No harm has been done. You have hurt nobody. 
Though you are very lucky that your unintentional victims survived, I can help you, Draco. No, you can't, said Malfoy, his wand hands shaking very badly indeed. Nobody can. He told me to do it or he'll kill me. I've got no choice. He cannot kill you if you are already dead. Come over to the right side, Draco, and we can hide you more completely than you can possibly imagine. What is more, I can send members of the Order to your mother tonight to hide her likewise. Nobody would be surprised that you had died in your attempt to kill me. Forgive me, but Lord Voldemort probably expects it. Nor would the Death Eaters be surprised that we had captured and killed your mother. It is what they would do themselves, after all. Your father is safe at the moment in Azkaban. When the time comes, we can protect him, too. Come over to the right side, Draco. You are not a killer. Malfoy stared at Dumbledore. But I got this far, didn't I? He said slowly. They thought I'd die in the attempt, but I'm here, and you're in my power. I'm the one with the wand. You're at my mercy. No, Draco, said Dumbledore quietly. It is my mercy, and not yours, that matters now. Malfoy did not speak. His mouth was open, his wand hands still trembling. Harry thought he saw it drop by a fraction. But suddenly footsteps were thundering up the stairs, and a second later Malfoy was buffeted out of the way as four people in black robes burst through the door onto the ramparts. Still paralyzed, his eyes staring unblinkingly, Harry gazed in terror upon four strangers. It seemed the Death Eaters had won the fight below. A lumpy-looking man with an odd lopsided leer gave a wheezy giggle. Dumbledore cornered, he said and he turned to a snocky little woman who looked as though she could be his sister, and who was grinning eagerly. Dumbledore wanderers, Dumbledore alone. Well done, Draco, well done. Good evening, Hammocus, said Dumbledore calmly, as though welcoming the man to a tea party. And you brought Electro, too. Charming. The woman gave an angry little titter. Think your little jokes'll help you on your deathbed, then? She jeered. Jokes? No, no, these are manners, replied Dumbledore. Do it, said the stranger standing nearest to Harry, a big rangy man with matted gray hair and whiskers, whose black Death Eater's robes looked uncomfortably tight. He had a voice like none that Harry had ever heard, a rasping bark of a voice. Harry could smell a powerful mixture of dirt, sweat, and, unmistakably, of blood coming from him. His filthy hands had long yellowish nails. Is that you, Fenrir? asked Dumbledore. That's right, rasped the other. Pleased to see me, Dumbledore. No, I cannot say that I am. Greyback grinned, showing pointed teeth. Blood trickled down his chin and he licked his lips slowly, obscenely. But you know how much I like kids, Dumbledore. Am I to take it that you are attacking even without the full moon now? This is most unusual. You have developed a taste for human flesh that cannot be satisfied once a month. That's right, said Fenrir Greyback, 
Shocks you that, does it, Dumbledore? Frightens you? Well, I cannot pretend it does not disgust me a little, said Dumbledore. And yes, I am a little shocked that Draco here invited you of all people into the school where his friends live. I didn't, breathed Malfoy. He was not looking at Fenrir. He did not seem to want to even glance at him. I didn't know he was going to come. I wouldn't want to miss a trip to Hogwarts, Dumbledore, rasped Greyback. Not when there are throats to be ripped out. Delicious, delicious. And he raised a yellow fingernail and picked at his front teeth, leering at Dumbledore. I could do you for afters, Dumbledore. No, said the fourth Death Eater sharply. He had a heavy, brutal-looking face. We've got orders. Draco's got to do it. Now, Draco, and quickly. Malfoy was showing less resolution than ever. He looked terrified as he stared into Dumbledore's face, which was even paler and rather lower than usual, as he had slid so far down the rampart wall. He's not long for this world, anyway, if you ask me, said the lopsided man, to the accompaniment of his sister's wheezing giggles. Look at him. What's happened to you then, Dumby? Oh, weaker resistance, slower reflexes, Amicus, said Dumbledore. Old age, in short. One day, perhaps, it will happen to you, if you are lucky. What's that mean, then? What's that mean? yelled the Death Eater, suddenly violent. What was the same, weren't you, Dumby? Talking and doing nothing, nothing. I don't even know why the Dark Lord's bothering to kill you. Come on, Draco, do it. But at that moment there were renewed sounds of scuffling from below, and a voice shouted, They've blocked the stairs! Reducto! Reducto! Harry's heart leapt. So these four had not eliminated all opposition, but merely broken through the fight to the top of the tower, and, by the sound of it, created a barrier behind them. Now, Jacob, quickly! said the brutal-faced man angrily but Malfoy's hand was shaking so badly that he could barely aim. I'll do it, snarled Fenrir, moving toward Dumbledore with his hands outstretched, his teeth bared. I said no, shouted the brutal-faced man. There was a flash of light, and the werewolf was blasted out of the way. He hit the ramparts and staggered, looking furious. Harry's heart was hammering so hard it seemed impossible that nobody could hear him standing there, imprisoned by Dumbledore's spell. If he could only move, he could aim a curse from under the cloak. Jacob, do it or stand aside so one of us... screeched the woman. But at that precise moment, the door to the ramparts burst open once more, and there stood Snape. His wand clutched in his hand as his black eyes swept the scene, from Dumbledore slumped against the wall to the four Death Eaters, including the enraged werewolf and Malfoy. We've got a problem, Snape, said the lumpy Amicus, whose eyes and wand were fixed alike upon Dumbledore. The boy doesn't seem able. But somebody else had spoken Snape's name quite softly. Severus. The sound frightened Harry beyond anything he had experienced all evening. For the first time, Dumbledore was pleading. Snape said nothing, but walked forward and pushed Malfoy roughly out of the way. The three Death Eaters fell back without a word. Even the werewolf seemed cowed. Snape gazed for a moment at Dumbledore, 
and there was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. Severus, please. Snape raised his wand and pointed it directly at Dumbledore. Avada Kedavra! A jet of green light shot from the end of Snape's wand and hit Dumbledore squarely in the chest. Harry's scream of horror never left him. Silent and unmoving, he was forced to watch as Dumbledore was blasted into the air. For a split second, he seemed to hang suspended beneath the shining skull. And then he fell slowly backward, like a great rag doll, over the battlements and out of sight. Chapter 28 Flight of the Prince Harry felt as though he too were hurtling through space. It had not happened. It could not have happened. Out of here quickly, said Snape. He seized Malfoy by the scruff of the neck and forced him through the door ahead of the rest. Greyback and the squat brother and sister followed, the latter both panting excitedly. As they vanished through the door, Harry realized he could move again. What was now holding him paralyzed against the wall was not magic, but horror and shock. He threw the invisibility cloak aside as the brutal-faced Death Eater, last to leave the tower top, was disappearing through the door. Petrificus Totalus! The Death Eater buckled as though hit in the back with something solid and fell to the ground, rigid as a waxwork. But he had barely hit the floor when Harry was clambering over him and running down the darkened staircase. Terror tore at Harry's heart. He had to get to Dumbledore, and he had to catch Snape. Somehow the two things were linked. He could reverse what had happened if he had them both together. Dumbledore could not have died. He leapt the last ten steps of the spiral staircase and stopped where he landed, his wand raised. The dimly lit corridor was full of dust. Half the ceiling seemed to have fallen in, and a battle was raging before him. But even as he attempted to make out who was fighting whom, he heard the hated voice shout, It's over! Time to go! and saw Snape disappearing around the corner at the far end of the corridor. He and Malfoy seemed to have forced their way through the fight unscathed. As Harry plunged after them, one of the fighters detached themselves from the fray and flew at him. It was the werewolf Fenrir. He was on top of Harry before Harry could raise his wand. Harry fell backward, with filthy matted hair in his face, the stench of sweat and blood filling his nose and mouth, hot, greedy breath at his throat. Petrificus Totalus! Harry felt Fenrir collapse against him. With a stupendous effort, he pushed the werewolf off and onto the floor as a jet of green light came flying toward him. He ducked and ran headfirst into the fight. His feet met something squashy and slippery on the floor, and he stumbled. There were two bodies lying there, lying face down in a pool of blood, but there was no time to investigate. Harry now saw red hair flying like flames in front of him. Ginny was locked in combat with the lumpy Death Eater, Amicus, who was throwing hex after hex at her while she dodged them. Amicus was giggling, enjoying the sport. Crucio! Crucio! You can't dance forever, pretty. Impedimenta! yelled Harry. His jinx hit Amicus in the chest. He gave a pig-like squeal of pain, was lifted off his feet, and slammed into the opposite wall slid down it, and fell out of sight behind Ron, Professor McGonagall, and Lupin, each of whom was battling a separate Death Eater. Beyond them, Harry saw Tonks fighting an enormous blonde wizard, 
who was sending curses flying in all directions so that they ricocheted off the walls around them, cracking stone, shattering the nearest window. Harry, where did you come from? Ginny cried, but there was no time to answer her. He put his head down and sprinted forward, narrowly avoiding a blast that erupted over his head, showering them all in bits of wall. Snape must not escape. He must catch up with Snape. Take that, shouted Professor McGonagall, and Harry glimpsed the female Death Eater, Electro, sprinting away down the corridor with her arms over her head, her brother right behind her. He launched himself after them, but his foot caught on something, and next moment he was lying across someone's legs. Looking around, he saw Neville's pale, round face flat against the floor. Neville, are you... More I, muttered Neville, who was clutching his stomach. Harry, Snape and Malfoy ran past. I know, I'm on it, said Harry, aiming a hex from the floor at the enormous blonde Death Eater who was causing most of the chaos. The man gave a howl of pain as the spell hit him in the face. He wheeled around, staggered, and then pounded away after the brother and sister. Harry scrambled up from the floor and began to sprint along the corridor, ignoring the bangs issuing from behind him, the yells of the others to come back, and the mute call of the figures on the ground whose fate he did not yet know. He skidded around the corner, his trainers slippery with blood. Snape had an immense head start. Was it possible that he had already entered the cabinet in the Room of Requirement, or had the Order made steps to secure it, to prevent the Death Eaters retreating that way? He could hear nothing but his own pounding feet, his own hammering heart, as he sprinted along the next empty corridor, but then spotted a bloody footprint that showed at least one of the fleeing Death Eaters was heading toward the front doors. Perhaps the room of requirement was indeed blocked. He skidded around another corner, and a curse flew past him. He dived behind a suit of armor that exploded. He saw the brother and sister running down the marble staircase ahead, and aimed jinxes at them but merely hit several bewigged witches in a portrait on the landing, who ran screeching into neighboring paintings. As he leapt the wreckage of armor, Harry heard more shouts and screams. Other people within the castle seemed to have awoken. He pelted toward a shortcut, hoping to overtake the brother and sister and close in on Snape and Malfoy, who must surely have reached the grounds by now. Remembering to leap the vanishing step halfway down the concealed staircase, he burst through a tapestry at the bottom and out into a corridor where a number of bewildered and pajama-clad Hufflepuffs stood. Harry, we heard a noise and someone said something about the dark mark, began Ernie Macmillan. Out of the way, yelled Harry, knocking two boys aside as he sprinted toward the landing and down the remainder of the marble staircase. The oak front doors had been blasted open. There were smears of blood on the flagstones, and several terrified students stood huddled against the walls, one or two still cowering with their arms over their faces. The giant Gryffindor hourglass had been hit by a curse, and the rubies within were still falling with a loud rattle onto the flagstones below. Harry flew across the entrance hall and out into the dark grounds. He could just make out three figures racing across the lawn, heading for the gates, beyond which they could disapparate. By the looks of them, the huge blonde Death Eater and, some way ahead of him, Snape and Malfoy. The cold night air ripped at Harry's lungs as he tore after them. He saw a flash of light in the distance that momentarily silhouetted his quarry. He did not know what it was, but continued to run, not yet near enough to get a good aim with a curse. Another flash, shouts, 
retaliatory jets of light, and Harry understood. Hagrid had emerged from his cabin and was trying to stop the Death Eaters escaping. And though every breath seemed to shred his lungs and the stitch in his chest was like fire, Harry sped up as an unbidden voice in his head said, Not Hagrid! Not Hagrid, too! Something caught Harry hard in the small of the back, and he fell forward, his face smacking the ground, blood pouring out of both nostrils. He knew, even as he rolled over, his wand ready, that the brother and sister he had overtaken using his shortcut were closing in behind him. Impedimenta! He yelled as he rolled over again, crouching close to the dark ground. And miraculously, his jinx hit one of them, who stumbled and fell, tripping up the other. Harry leapt to his feet and sprinted on after Snape. And now he saw the vast outline of Hagrid, illuminated by the light of the crescent moon revealed suddenly behind clouds. The blonde Death Eater was aiming curse after curse at the gamekeeper. But Hagrid's immense strength and the toughened skin he had inherited from his giantess mother seemed to be protecting him. Snape and Malfoy, however, were still running. They would soon be beyond the gates, able to disapparate. Harry tore past Hagrid and his opponent, took aim at Snape's back and yelled, Stupefy! He missed. The jet of red light soared past Snape's head. Snape shouted, Run, Draco! And turned. Twenty yards apart, he and Harry looked at each other before raising their wands simultaneously. Cruz! But Snape parried the curse, knocking Harry backward off his feet before he could complete it. Harry rolled over and scrambled back up again as the huge Death Eater behind him yelled, Incendio! Harry heard an explosive bang and a dancing orange light spilled over all of them. Hagrid's house was on fire. Fangs in there! You're evil! Hagrid bellowed. Cruce! yelled Harry for the second time, aiming for the figure ahead illuminated in the dancing firelight. But Snape blocked the spell again. Harry could see him sneering. No unforgivable curses from you, Potter, he shouted over the rushing of the flames, Hagrid's yells, and the wild yelping of the trapped fang. You haven't got the nerve or the ability. Incas, Harry roared, but Snape deflected the spell with an almost lazy flick of his arm. Fight back, Harry screamed at him. Fight back, you cowardly. Coward, did you call me Potter, shouted Snape. Your father would never attack me unless it was four on one. What would you call him, I wonder? Stoop! Blocked again and again and again until you learn to keep your mouth shut and your mind closed, Potter, sneers Snape, deflecting the curse once more. Now come, he shouted at the huge Death Eater behind Harry. It is time to be gone before the Ministry turns up. Impedi! But before he could finish this jinx, excruciating pain hit Harry. He keeled over in the grass. Someone was screaming. He would surely die of this agony. Snape was going to torture him to death or madness. No! roared Snape's voice, and the pain stopped as suddenly as it had started. Harry lay curled on the dark grass, clutching his wand and panting. Somewhere overhead, Snape was shouting, Have you forgotten our orders? Potter belongs to the Dark Lord. We are to leave him. Go, go. And Harry felt the ground shudder under his face as the brother and sister and the enormous Death Eater obeyed, running toward the gates. Harry uttered an inarticulate yell of rage. 
In that instant, he cared not whether he lived or died. Pushing himself to his feet again, he staggered blindly towards Snape, the man he now hated as much as he hated Voldemort himself. Sectum! Snape flicked his wand, and the curse was repelled yet again. But Harry was mere feet away now, and he could see Snape's face clearly at last. He was no longer sneering or jeering. The blazing flames showed a face full of rage. Mustering all his powers of concentration, Harry thought, Levi! No, Potter! screamed Snape. There was a loud bang, and Harry was soaring backward, hitting the ground hard again, and this time his wand flew out of his hand. He could hear Hagrid yelling and Fang howling as Snape closed in and looked down on him where he lay, wandless and defenseless as Dumbledore had been. Snape's pale face, illuminated by the flaming cabin, was suffused with hatred just as it had been before he had cursed Dumbledore. You dare use my own spells against me, Potter. It was I who invented them. I, the half-blood prince. And you'd turn my inventions on me like your filthy father, would you? I don't think so. No! Harry had dived for his wand. Snape shot a hex at it, and it flew feet away into the darkness and out of sight. Kill me then, panted Harry who felt no fear at all, but only rage and contempt. Kill me, like you killed him, you coward. Don't! screamed Snape, and his face was suddenly demented, inhuman, as though he was in as much pain as the yelping, howling dog stuck in the burning house behind them. Call me coward! And he slashed at the air. Harry felt a white-hot, whip-like something hit him across the face and was slammed backward into the ground. Spots of light burst in front of his eyes, and for a moment all the breath seemed to have gone from his body. Then he heard a rush of wings above him, and something enormous obscured the stars. Buckbeak had flown at Snape, who staggered backward as the razor's sharp claws slashed at him. As Harry raised himself into a sitting position, his head still swimming from its last contact with the ground, he saw Snape running as hard as he could, the enormous beast flapping behind him and screeching as Harry had never heard him screech. Harry struggled to his feet, looking around groggily for his wand, hoping to give chase again. But even as his fingers fumbled in the grass, discarding twigs, he knew it would be too late. And sure enough, by the time he had located his wand, he turned only to see the hippogriff circling the gates. Snape had managed to disapparate just beyond the school's boundaries. Hagrid, muttered Harry, still dazed, looking around. Hagrid! He stumbled toward the burning house as an enormous figure emerged from out of the flames carrying Fang on his back. With a cry of thankfulness, Harry sank to his knees. He was shaking in every limb, his body ached all over, and his breath came in painful stabs. You all right, Harry? You all right? Speak to me, Harry! Hagrid's huge, hairy face was swimming above Harry, blocking out the stars. Harry could smell burnt wood and dog hair. He put out a hand and felt Fang's reassuringly warm and alive body quivering beside him. I'm all right, panted Harry. Are you? Course I am. Take more than that to finish me. Hagrid put his hands under Harry's arms and raised him up with such force 
that Harry's feet momentarily left the ground before Hagrid set him upright again. He could see blood trickling down Hagrid's cheek from a deep cut under one eye, which was swelling rapidly. We should put out your house, said Harry. The charm's Aguamenti. No, it was somewhat like that, mumbled Hagrid, and he raised a smoldering pink flowery umbrella and said, Aguamenti. A jet of water flew out of the umbrella tip. Harry raised his wand arm, which felt like lead, and murmured, Aguamenti, too. Together, he and Hagrid poured water on the house until the last flame was extinguished. It's not too bad, said Hagrid hopefully a few minutes later, looking at the smoking wreck. Nothing Dumbledore won't be able to put right. Harry felt a searing pain in his stomach at the sound of the name. In the silence and the stillness, horror rose inside him. Hagrid? I was binding up a couple of bow-chuckle legs when I heard him coming, said Hagrid sadly, still staring at his wrecked cabin. They'll have been burnt to twigs, poor little things. Hagrid? But what happened, Harry? I just saw them Death Eaters running down from the castle. But what the ruddy hell was Snape doing with them? Where's he gone? Was he chasing them? He... Harry cleared his throat. It was dry from panic and the smoke. Hagrid, he killed. Killed? Said Hagrid loudly, staring down at Harry. Snape killed? What are you on about, Harry? Dumbledore, said Harry. Snape killed Dumbledore. Hagrid simply looked at him, the little of his face that could be seen completely blank, uncomprehending. Dumbledore what? Harry. He's dead. Snape killed him. Don't say that, said Hagrid roughly. Snape killed Dumbledore? Don't be stupid, Harry. What's made you say that? I saw it happen. Yeah, couldn't have. I saw it, Hagrid. Hagrid shook his head. His expression was disbelieving but sympathetic, and Harry knew that Hagrid thought he had sustained a blow to the head that he was confused, perhaps, by the after-effects of a jinx. What must have happened was Dumbledore must have told Snape to go with them Death Eaters, Hagrid said confidently. I suppose he's got to keep his cover. Look, let's get you back up to the school. Come on, Harry. Harry did not attempt to argue or explain. He was still shaking uncontrollably. Hagrid would find out soon enough, too soon. As they directed their steps back toward the castle, Harry saw that many of its windows were lit now. He could imagine clearly the scenes inside as people moved from room to room, telling each other that Death Eaters had got in, that the mark was shining over Hogwarts, that somebody must have been killed. The oak front doors stood open ahead of them, light flooding out onto the drive and the lawn. Slowly, uncertainly, dressing-gowned people were creeping down the steps looking around nervously for some sign of the Death Eaters who had fled into the night. Harry's eyes, however, were fixed upon the ground at the foot of the tallest tower. He imagined that he could see a black, huddled mass lying in the grass there, though he was really too far away to see anything of the sort. Even as he stared wordlessly at the place where he thought Dumbledore's body must lie, however, he saw people beginning to move toward it. What are they all looking at? said Hagrid, as he and Harry approached the castle front, Fang keeping as close as he could to their ankles. 
What's that, lying on the grass? Hagrid added sharply, heading now toward the foot of the astronomy tower, where a small crowd was congregating. See it, Harry? Right at the foot of the tower, under where the mark... Blimey, you don't think someone got thrown? Hagrid fell silent, the thought apparently too horrible to express aloud. Harry walked alongside him, feeling the aches and pains in his face and his legs, where the various hexes of the last half hour had hit him, though in an oddly detached way, as though somebody near him was suffering them. What was real and inescapable was the awful pressing feeling in his chest. He and Hagrid moved, dreamlike, through the murmuring crowd to the very front, where the dumbstruck students and teachers had left a gap. Harry heard Hagrid's moan of pain and shock, but he did not stop. He walked slowly forward until he reached the place where Dumbledore lay and crouched down beside him. He had known there was no hope from the moment that the full body-bind curse Dumbledore had placed upon him lifted, known that it could have happened only because its caster was dead. But there was still no preparation for seeing him here, spread-eagled, broken, the greatest wizard Harry had ever, or would ever, meet. Dumbledore's eyes were closed, but for the strange angle of his arms and legs, he might have been sleeping. Harry reached out, straightened the half-moon spectacles upon the crooked nose, and wiped a trickle of blood from the mouth with his own sleeve. Then he gazed down at the wise old face and tried to absorb the enormous and incomprehensible truth that never again would Dumbledore speak to him. Never again could he help. The crowd murmured behind Harry. After what seemed like a long time, he became aware that he was kneeling upon something hard and looked down. The locket they had managed to steal so many hours before had fallen out of Dumbledore's pocket. It had opened, perhaps due to the force with which it hit the ground, and although he could not feel more shock or horror or sadness than he felt already, Harry knew, as he picked it up, that there was something wrong. He turned the locket over in his hands. This was neither as large as the locket he remembered seeing in the pensive, nor were there any markings upon it, no sign of the ornate S that was supposed to be Slytherin's mark. Moreover, there was nothing inside but for a scrap of folded parchment wedged tightly into the place where a portrait should have been. Automatically, without really thinking about what he was doing, Harry pulled out the fragment of parchment, opened it, and read by the light of the many wands that had now been lit behind him. To the Dark Lord I know I will be dead long before you read this, but I want you to know that it was I who discovered your secret. I have stolen the real Horcrux and intend to destroy it as soon as I can. I face death in the hope that when you meet your match, you will be mortal once more. R. A. B. Harry neither knew nor cared what the message meant. Only one thing mattered. This was not a Horcrux. Dumbledore had weakened himself by drinking that terrible potion for nothing. Harry crumpled the parchment in his hand, and his eyes burned with tears as behind him, Fang began to howl. Chapter 29 The Phoenix Lament Come here, Harry. No. He can't stay here, Harry. 
Come on now. No. He did not want to leave Dumbledore's side. He did not want to move anywhere. Hagrid's hand on his shoulder was trembling. Then another voice said, Harry, come on. A much smaller and warmer hand had enclosed his and was pulling him upward. He obeyed its pressure without really thinking about it. Only as he walked blindly back through the crowd did he realize from a trace of flowery scent on the air that it was Ginny who was leading him back into the castle. Incomprehensible voices battered him. Sobs and shouts and wails stabbed the night. But Harry and Ginny walked on, back up the steps into the entrance hall. Faces swam on the edges of Harry's vision. People were peering at him, whispering, wondering, and Gryffindor rubies glistened on the floor like drops of blood as they made their way toward the marble staircase. We're going to the hospital wing, said Ginny. I'm not hurt, said Harry. It's McGonagall's orders, said Ginny. Everyone's up there, Ron and Hermione and Lupin and everyone. Fear stirred in Harry's chest again. He had forgotten the inert figures he had left behind. Ginny, who else is dead? Don't worry, none of us. But the dark mark, Malfoy said he stepped over a body. He stepped over Bill. But it's all right, he's alive. There was something in her voice, however, that Harry knew boded ill. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. He's a, a bit of a mess, that's all. Greyback attacked him. Madam Pomfrey says he won't, won't look the same anymore. Ginny's voice trembled a little. We don't really know what the after-effects will be. I mean, Greyback being a werewolf, but not transformed at the time. But the others, there were other bodies on the ground. Neville and Professor Flitwick are both hurt, but Madam Pomfrey says they'll be all right. And a Death Eater's dead. He got hit by a killing curse that huge blonde one was firing off everywhere. Harry, if we hadn't had your Felix potion, I think we'd all have been killed. But everything seemed to just miss us. They had reached the hospital wing. Pushing open the doors, Harry saw Neville lying, apparently asleep, in a bed near the door. Ron, Hermione, Luna, Tonks, and Lupin were gathered around another bed near the far end of the ward. At the sound of the doors opening, they all looked up. Hermione ran to Harry and hugged him. Lupin moved forward, too, looking anxious. Are you all right, Harry? I'm fine. How's Bill? Nobody answered. Harry looked over Hermione's shoulder and saw an unrecognizable face lying on Bill's pillow, so badly slashed and ripped that he looked grotesque. Madame Pomfrey was dabbing at his wounds with some harsh-smelling green ointment. Harry remembered how Snape had mended Malfoy's sectumsempra wounds so easily with his wand. Can't you fix them with a charm or something? He asked the matron. No charm will work on these, said Madame Pomfrey. I've tried everything I know, but there is no cure for werewolf bites. But he wasn't bitten at the full moon, said Ron, who was gazing down into his brother's face as though he could somehow force him to mend just by staring. Crayback hadn't transformed, so surely Bill won't be a, a real. He looked uncertainly at Lupin. No, I don't think that Bill will be a true werewolf, said Lupin. But that does not mean that there won't be some contamination. Those are cursed wounds. They are unlikely ever to heal fully, and, and Bill might have some wolfish characteristics from now on. 
Dumbledore might know something that'd work, though, Ron said. Where is he? Bill fought those maniacs on Dumbledore's orders. Dumbledore owes him. He can't leave him in this state. Ron, Dumbledore's dead, said Ginny. No! Lupin looked wildly from Ginny to Harry, as though hoping the latter might contradict her. But when Harry did not, Lupin collapsed into a chair beside Bill's bed, his hands over his face. Harry had never seen Lupin lose control before. He felt as though he was intruding upon something private, indecent. He turned away and caught Ron's eye instead, exchanging in silence a look that confirmed what Ginny had said. How did he die? whispered Tonks. How did it happen? Snape killed him, said Harry. I was there. I saw it. We arrived back on the astronomy tower because that's where the mark was. Dumbledore was ill, he was weak, but I think he realized it was a trap when we heard footsteps running up the stairs. He immobilized me, I couldn't do anything. I was under the invisibility cloak, and then Malfoy came through the door and disarmed him. Hermione clapped her hands to her mouth, and Ron groaned. Luna's mouth trembled. More Death Eaters arrived, and then Snape. And Snape did it. The Avada Kedavra. Harry couldn't go on. Madame Pomfrey burst into tears. Nobody paid her any attention except Ginny, who whispered, Shh, listen. Gulping, Madame Pomfrey pressed her fingers to her mouth, her eyes wide. Somewhere out in the darkness, a phoenix was singing in a way Harry had never heard before, a stricken lament of terrible beauty. And Harry felt, as he had felt about Phoenix song before, that the music was inside him, not without. It was his own grief turned magically to song that echoed across the grounds and through the castle windows. How long they all stood there listening he did not know, nor why it seemed to ease their pain a little to listen to the sound of their mourning. But it felt like a long time later that the hospital door opened again and Professor McGonagall entered the ward. Like all the rest, she bore marks of the recent battle. There were grazes on her face and her robes were ripped. Molly and Arthur are on their way, she said, and the spell of the music was broken. Everyone roused themselves as though coming out of trances, turning again to look at Bill, or else to rub their own eyes, shake their heads. Harry, what happened? According to Hagrid, you were with Professor Dumbledore when he... when it happened. He says Professor Snape was involved in some... Snape killed Dumbledore, said Harry. She stared at him for a moment, then swayed alarmingly. Madame Pomfrey, who seemed to have pulled herself together, ran forward, conjuring a chair from thin air, which she pushed under McGonagall. Sneep, repeated McGonagall faintly, falling into the chair. We all wondered, but he trusted, always. Snape? I can't believe it. Snape was a highly accomplished Occlumens, said Lupin, his voice uncharacteristically harsh. We always knew that. But Dumbledore swore he was on our side, whispered Tonks. I always thought Dumbledore must know something about Snape that we didn't. He always hinted that he had an ironclad reason for trusting Snape, muttered Professor McGonagall, now dabbing at the corners of her leaking eyes with a tartan-edged handkerchief. I mean, with Snape's history, 
Of course, people were bound to wonder, but Dumbledore told me explicitly that Snape's repentance was absolutely genuine. Wouldn't hear a word against him. I'd love to know what Snape told him to convince him, said Tonks. I know, said Harry, and they all turned to look at him. Snape passed Voldemort the information that made Voldemort hunt down my mum and dad. Then Snape told Dumbledore he hadn't realized what he was doing. He was really sorry he'd done it. Sorry that they were dead. They all stared at him. And Dumbledore believed that, said Lupin incredulously. Dumbledore believed Snape was sorry James was dead. Snape hated James. And he didn't think my mother was worth a damn either, said Harry, because she was muggle-born. Mudblood, he called her. Nobody asked how Harry knew this. All of them seemed to be lost in horrified shock, trying to digest the monstrous truth of what had happened. This is all my fault, said Professor McGonagall suddenly. She looked disoriented, twisting her wet handkerchief in her hands. My fault! I sent Phileas to fetch Snape tonight. I actually sent for him to come and help us. If I hadn't alerted Snape to what was going on, he might never have joined forces with the Death Eaters. I don't think he knew they were there before Phileas told him. I don't think he knew they were coming. It isn't your fault, Minerva, said Lupin firmly. We all wanted more help. We were glad to think Snape was on his way. So when he arrived at the fight, he joined in on the Death Eater's side? Asked Harry, who wanted every detail of Snape's duplicity and infamy, feverishly collecting more reasons to hate him, to swear vengeance. I don't know exactly how it happened, said Professor McGonagall distractedly. It's all so confusing. Dumbledore had told us that he would be leaving the school for a few hours and that we were to patrol the corridors just in case. Remus, Bill, and Nymphadora were to join us, and so we patrolled. All seemed quiet. Every secret passageway out of the school was covered. We knew nobody could fly in. There were powerful enchantments on every entrance into the castle. I still don't know how the Death Eaters can possibly have entered. I do, said Harry, and he explained briefly about the pair of vanishing cabinets and the magical pathway they formed. So they got in through the room of requirement. Almost against his will, he glanced from Ron to Hermione, both of whom looked devastated. I messed up, Harry, said Ron bleakly. We did like you told us. We checked the Marauder's map and we couldn't see Malfoy on it. So we thought he must be in the room of requirement, so me, Ginny, and Neville went to keep watch on it. But Malfoy got past us. He came out of the room about an hour after we started keeping watch, said Ginny. He was on his own, clutching that awful shriveled arm. His hand of glory, said Ron, gives light only to the holder, remember? Anyway, Ginny went on. He must have been checking whether the coast was clear to let the Death Eaters out, because the moment he saw us, he threw something into the air, and it all went pitch black. Peruvian instant darkness powder, said Ron bitterly. Fred and George's. I'm gonna be having a word with them about who they let buy their products. We tried everything, Lumos, Incendio, said Ginny. Nothing would penetrate the darkness. All we could do was grope our way out of the corridor again, and meanwhile, we could hear people rushing past us. Obviously, Malfoy could see because of that hand thing and was guiding them. 
But we didn't dare use any curses or anything in case we hit each other, and by the time we'd reached a corridor that was light, they'd gone. Luckily, said Lupin hoarsely, Ron, Ginny, and Neville ran into us almost immediately and told us what had happened. We found the Death Eaters minutes later heading in the direction of the astronomy tower. Malfoy obviously hadn't expected more people to be on the watch. He seemed to have exhausted his supply of darkness powder at any rate. A fight broke out. They scattered and we gave chase. One of them, Gibbon, broke away and headed up the tower stairs. To set off the mark? asked Harry. He must have done, yes. They must have arranged that before they left the room of requirement, said Lupin. But I don't think Gibbon liked the idea of waiting up there alone for Dumbledore, because he came running back downstairs to rejoin the fight, and was hit by a killing curse that just missed me. So, if Ron was watching the room of requirement with Ginny and Neville, said Harry, turning to Hermione, were you outside Snape's office? Yes, whispered Hermione, her eyes sparkling with tears. But Luna, we hung around for ages outside it and nothing happened. We didn't know what was going on upstairs. Ron had taken the map. It was nearly midnight when Professor Flitwick came sprinting down into the dungeons. He was shouting about Death Eaters in the castle. I don't think he really registered that Luna and I were there at all. He just burst his way into Snape's office, and we heard him saying that Snape had to go back with him and help, and then we heard a loud thump. And Snape came hurtling out of his room, and he saw us, and... and... What? Harry urged her. I was so stupid, Harry, said Hermione in a high-pitched whisper. He said Professor Flitwick had collapsed, and that we should go and take care of him while he while he went to help fight the Death Eaters. She covered her face in shame and continued to talk into her fingers so that her voice was muffled. We went into his office to see if we could help Professor Flitwick and found him unconscious on the floor. And oh, it's so obvious now. Snape must have stupefied Flitwick. But we didn't realize, Harry. We didn't realize. We just let Snape go. It's not your fault, said Lupin firmly. Hermione, had you not obeyed Snape and got out of the way, he probably would have killed you and Luna. So then he came upstairs, said Harry, who was watching Snape running up the marble staircase in his mind's eye, his black robes billowing behind him as ever, pulling his wand from under his cloak as he ascended, and he found the place where you were all fighting. We were in trouble, we were losing, said Tonks in a low voice. Gibbon was down, but the rest of the Death Eaters seemed ready to fight to the death. Neville had been hurt. Bill had been savaged by Greyback. It was all dark. Curses flying everywhere. The Malfoy boy had vanished. He must have slipped past up the stairs. Then more of them ran after him. But one of them blocked the stair behind them with some kind of curse. Neville ran at it and got thrown up into the air. None of us could break through, said Ron. And that massive Death Eater was still firing off jinxes all over the place. They were bouncing off the walls and barely missing us. And then Snape was there, said Tonks. And then he wasn't. I saw him running toward us, but that huge Death Eater's jinx just missed me right afterward, and I ducked and lost track of things, said Ginny. I saw him run straight through the cursed barrier as though it wasn't there, said Lupin. I tried to follow him, but was thrown back just like Neville. He must have known a spell we didn't, whispered McGonagall. After all, he was the defense against the dark arts teacher. 
I just assumed that he was in a hurry to chase after the Death Eaters who'd escaped up to the tower. He was, said Harry savagely, but to help them, not to stop them. And I'll bet you had to have a dark mark to get through that barrier. So what happened when he came back down? Well, the big Death Eater had just fired off a hex that caused half the ceiling to fall in, and also broke the curse blocking the stairs, said Lupin. We all ran forward, those of us who were still standing anyway, and then Snape and the boy emerged out of the dust. Obviously, none of us attacked them. We just let them pass, said Tonks in a hollow voice. We thought they were being chased by the Death Eaters, and next thing, the other Death Eaters and Greyback were back, and we were fighting again. I thought I heard Snape shout something, but I don't know what. He shouted, it's over, said Harry. He'd done what he'd meant to do. They all fell silent. Fawkes' lament was still echoing over the dark grounds outside. As the music reverberated upon the air, unbidden, unwelcome thoughts slunk into Harry's mind. Had they taken Dumbledore's body from the foot of the tower yet? What would happen to it next? Where would it rest? He clenched his fists tightly in his pockets. He could feel the small, cold lump of the fake Horcrux against the knuckles of his right hand. The doors of the hospital wing burst open, making them all jump. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley were striding up the ward, Fleur just behind them, her beautiful face terrified. Molly, Arthur, said Professor McGonagall, jumping up and hurrying to greet them. I am so sorry. Bill, whispered Mrs. Weasley, darting past Professor McGonagall as she caught sight of Bill's mangled face. Oh, Bill. Lupin and Tonks had got up hastily and retreated so that Mr. and Mrs. Weasley could get nearer to the bed. Mrs. Weasley bent over her son and pressed her lips to his bloody forehead. You said Greyback attacked him? Mr. Weasley asked Professor McGonagall distractedly. But he hadn't transformed. So what does that mean? What will happen to Bill? We don't yet know, said Professor McGonagall, looking helplessly at Lupin. There will probably be some contamination, Arthur, said Lupin. It is an odd case, possibly unique. We don't know what his behavior might be like when he awakens. Mrs. Weasley took the nasty-smelling ointment from Madame Pomfrey and began dabbing at Bill's wounds. And, uh, Dumbledore, said Mr. Weasley. Minerva, is it true? Is he really? As Professor McGonagall nodded, Harry felt Ginny move beside him and looked at her. Her slightly narrowed eyes were fixed upon Fleur, who was gazing down at Bill with a frozen expression on her face. Dumbledore gone, whispered Mr. Weasley. But Mrs. Weasley had eyes only for her eldest son. She began to sob, tears falling onto Bill's mutilated face. Of course, it doesn't matter how he looks. It's not really important. But he was a very handsome little boy, always very handsome. And he was g going to be married. And what do you mean by that? said Fleur suddenly and loudly. What do you mean he was going to be married? Mrs. Weasley raised her tear-stained face, looking startled. Well, only that. You think Bill will not wish to marry me any more? demanded Fleur. You think... Because of these bites, he will not love me? 
No, that's not what I... Because he will, said Fleur, drawing herself up to her full height and throwing back her long mane of silver hair. It will take more than a werewolf to stop Bill loving me. Well, yes, I'm sure, said Mrs. Weasley. But I thought, perhaps, given how... how he... You thought I would not wish to marry him? Or perhaps you hoped, said Fleur, her nostrils flaring. What do I care how he looks? I am good-looking enough for both of us, I think. All these scars show is that my husband is brave. And I shall do that, she added fiercely, pushing Mrs. Weasley aside and snatching the ointment from her. Mrs. Weasley fell back against her husband and watched Fleur mopping up Bill's wounds with the most curious expression upon her face. Nobody said anything. Harry did not dare move. Like everybody else, he was waiting for the explosion. Our great Auntie Muriel, said Mrs. Weasley after a long pause, has a very beautiful tiara, goblin-made, which I am sure I could persuade her to lend you for the wedding. She is very fond of Bill, you know, and it would look lovely with your hair. Thank you, said Fleur stiffly. I am sure that will be lovely. And then Harry did not quite see how it happened. Both women were crying and hugging each other. Completely bewildered, wondering whether the world had gone mad, he turned around. Ron looked as stunned as he felt, and Ginny and Hermione were exchanging startled looks. You see, said a strained voice. Tonks was glaring at Lupin. She still wants to marry him, even though he's been bitten. She doesn't care. It's different said Lupin, barely moving his lips and looking suddenly tense. Bill will not be a full werewolf. The cases are completely... But I don't care either. I don't care, said Tonks, seizing the front of Lupin's robes and shaking them. I've told you a million times. And the meaning of Tonks's Patronus and her mouse-colored hair, and the reason she had come running to find Dumbledore when she had heard a rumor someone had been attacked by Greyback all suddenly became clear to Harry. It had not been serious that Tonks had fallen in love with, after all. And I've told you a million times, said Lupin, refusing to meet her eyes, staring at the floor, that I am too old for you, too poor, too dangerous. I've said all along you're taking a ridiculous line on this, Remus, said Mrs. Weasley over Fleur's shoulder as she patted her on the back. I am not being ridiculous, said Lupin steadily. Tonks deserves somebody young and whole. But she wants you, said Mr. Weasley with a small smile. And after all, Remus, young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. He gestured sadly at his son lying between them. This is not the moment to discuss it said Lupin, avoiding everybody's eyes as he looked around distractedly. Dumbledore is dead. Dumbledore would have been happier than anybody to think that there was a little more love in the world, said Professor McGonagall curtly, just as the hospital doors opened again, and Hagrid walked in. The little of his face that was not obscured by hair or beard was soaking and swollen. He was shaking with tears, a vast spotted handkerchief in his hand. I've... I've done it, Professor, he choked. M moved him, 
Professor Spouts got the kids back in bed. Professor Flitwick's lying down, but he says he'll be all right in a jiffy. And Professor Slughorn says the Ministry's been informed. Thank you, Hagrid, said Professor McGonagall, standing up at once and turning to look at the group around Bill's bed. I shall have to see the Ministry when they get here. Hagrid, please tell the heads of houses. Slughorn can represent Slytherin, that I want to see them in my office forthwith. I would like you to join us, too. As Hagrid nodded, turned, and shuffled out of the room again, she looked down at Harry. Before I meet them, I would like a quick word with you, Harry, if you'll come with me. Harry stood up, murmured, See you in a bit, to Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, and followed Professor McGonagall back down the ward. The corridors outside were deserted, and the only sound was the distant Phoenix song. It was several minutes before Harry became aware that they were not heading for Professor McGonagall's office, but for Dumbledore's, and another few seconds before he realized that, of course, she had been deputy headmistress. Apparently, she was now headmistress, so the room behind the gargoyle was now hers. In silence, they ascended the moving spiral staircase and entered the circular office. He did not know what he had expected, that the room would be draped in black, perhaps, or even that Dumbledore's body might be lying there. In fact, it looked almost exactly as it had done when he and Dumbledore had left it mere hours previously. The silver instruments whirring and puffing on their spindle-leg tables, Gryffindor's sword in its glass case gleaming in the moonlight, the sorting hat on a shelf behind the desk. But Fawkes's perch stood empty. He was still crying his lament to the grounds. And a new portrait had joined the ranks of the dead headmasters and headmistresses of Hogwarts. Dumbledore was slumbering in a golden frame over the desk, his half-moon spectacles perched upon his crooked nose, looking peaceful and untroubled. After glancing once at this portrait, Professor McGonagall made an odd movement as though stealing herself, then rounded the desk to look at Harry, her face taut and lined. Harry, she said, I would like to know what you and Professor Dumbledore were doing this evening when you left the school. I can't tell you that, Professor, said Harry. He had expected the question and had his answer ready. It had been here, in this very room, that Dumbledore had told him that he was to confide the contents of their lessons to nobody but Ron and Hermione. Harry, it might be important, said Professor McGonagall. It is, said Harry, very. But he didn't want me to tell anyone. Professor McGonagall glared at him. Potter, Harry registered the renewed use of his surname. In the light of Professor Dumbledore's death, I think you must see that the situation has changed somewhat. I don't think so, said Harry, shrugging. Professor Dumbledore never told me to stop following his orders if he died. But there's one thing you should know before the Ministry gets here, though. Madame Ross Murta's under the Imperious Curse. She was helping Malfoy in the Death Eaters. That's how the necklace and the poisoned mead. Ross Murta? said Professor McGonagall incredulously. But before she could go on, there was a knock on the door behind them, and Professors Sprout, Flitwick, and Slughorn traipsed into the room, followed by Hagrid, who was still weeping copiously, his huge frame trembling with grief. Snape? ejaculated Slughorn, who looked the most shaken, pale, and sweating. Snape? 
I taught him. I thought I knew him. But before any of them could respond to this, a sharp voice spoke from high on the wall. A sallow-faced wizard with a short black fringe had just walked back into his empty canvas. Minerva, the minister will be here within seconds. He has just disapparated from the ministry. Thank you, Everard, said Professor McGonagall, and she turned quickly to her teachers. I want to talk about what happens to Hogwarts before he gets here, she said quickly. Personally, I'm not convinced that the school should reopen next year. The death of the headmaster at the hands of one of our colleagues is a terrible stain upon Hogwarts history. It is horrible. I am sure Dumbledore would have wanted the school to remain open, said Professor Sprout. I feel that if a single pupil wants to come, then the school ought to remain open for that pupil. But will we have a single pupil after this? said Slughorn, now dabbing his sweating brow with a silken handkerchief. Parents will want to keep their children at home, and I can't say I blame them. Personally, I don't think we're in more danger at Hogwarts than we are anywhere else. But you can't expect mothers to think like that. They'll want to keep their families together. It's only natural. I agree, said Professor McGonagall. And in any case, it is not true to say that Dumbledore never envisaged the situation in which Hogwarts might close. When the Chamber of Secrets reopened, he considered the closure of the school. And I must say that Professor Dumbledore's murder is more disturbing to me than the idea of Slytherin's monster living undetected in the bowels of the castle. We must consult the governors, said Professor Flitwick in his squeaky little voice. He had a large bruise on his forehead, but seemed otherwise unscathed by his collapse in Snape's office. We must follow the established procedures. A decision should not be made hastily. Hagrid, you haven't said anything, said Professor McGonagall. What are your views? Ought Hogwarts to remain open? Hagrid, who had been weeping silently into his large spotted handkerchief throughout this conversation, now raised puffy red eyes and croaked. I don't know, Professor. That's for the heads of house and the headmistress to decide. Professor Dumbledore always valued your views, said Professor McGonagall kindly, and so do I. Well, I'm staying, said Hagrid, fat tears still leaking out of the corners of his eyes and trickling down into his tangled beard. It's me home. It's been me home since I was thirteen. And if there's kids who want me to teach them, I'll do it, but... I don't know. Hogwarts without Dumbledore. He gulped and disappeared behind his handkerchief once more, and there was silence. Very well, said Professor McGonagall, glancing out of the window at the grounds, checking to see whether the minister was yet approaching. Then I must agree with Phileas that the right thing to do is to consult the governess, who will make the final decision. Now, as to getting students home... There is an argument for doing it sooner rather than later. We could arrange for the Hogwarts Express to come tomorrow if necessary. What about Dumbledore's funeral? said Harry, speaking at last. Well, said Professor McGonagall, losing a little of her briskness as her voice shook. I, I know that it was Dumbledore's wish to be laid to rest here at Hogwarts. Then that's what'll happen, isn't it? said Harry fiercely. 
If the ministry thinks it appropriate, said Professor McGonagall, no other headmaster or headmistress has ever been. No other headmaster or headmistress ever gave more to this school, growled Hagrid. Hogwarts should be Dumbledore's final resting place, said Professor Flitwick. Absolutely, said Professor Sprout. And in that case, said Harry, you shouldn't send the students home until the funeral's over. They'll want to say... The last word caught in his throat, but Professor Sprout completed the sentence for him. Goodbye. Well said, squeaked Professor Flitwick. Well said indeed. Our students should pay tribute. It is fitting. We can arrange transport home afterward. Seconded, barked Professor Sprout. I suppose, yes said Slughorn in a rather agitated voice, while Hagrid let out a strangled sob of assent. He's coming, said Professor McGonagall suddenly, gazing down into the grounds. The minister, and by the looks of it, he's brought a delegation. Can I leave, Professor? said Harry at once. He had no desire at all to see or be interrogated by Rufus Scrimgeour tonight. You may, said Professor McGonagall, and quickly. She strode toward the door and held it open for him. He sped down the spiral staircase and off along the deserted corridor. He had left his invisibility cloak at the top of the astronomy tower, but it did not matter. There was nobody in the corridors to see him pass, not even Filch, Mrs. Norris, or Peeves. He did not meet another soul until he turned into the passage leading to the Gryffindor common room. Is it true? whispered the fat lady as he approached her. It is really true, Dumbledore, dead. Yes, said Harry. She let out a wail, and without waiting for the password, swung forward to admit him. As Harry had suspected it would be, the common room was jam-packed. The room fell silent as he climbed through the portrait hall. He saw Dean and Seamus sitting in a group nearby. This meant that the dormitory must be empty, or nearly so. Without speaking to anybody, without making eye contact at all, Harry walked straight across the room and through the door to the boys' dormitories. As he had hoped, Ron was waiting for him, still fully dressed, sitting on his bed. Harry sat down on his own four-poster, and for a moment they simply stared at each other. They're talking about closing the school, said Harry. Lupin said they would, said Ron. There was a pause. So? said Ron, in a very low voice, as though he thought the furniture might be listening in. Did you find one? Did you get it? Uh, a horcrux? Harry shook his head. All that had taken place around that black lake seemed like an old nightmare now. Had it really happened, and only hours ago? You didn't get it? said Ron, looking crestfallen. It wasn't there? No, said Harry. Someone had already taken it and left a fake in its place. Already taken? Wordlessly, Harry pulled the fake locket from his pocket, opened it, and passed it to Ron. The full story could wait. It did not matter tonight. Nothing mattered except the end. The end of their pointless adventure. The end of Dumbledore's life. R.A.B.? whispered Ron. But who was that? Dunno said Harry, lying back on his bed fully clothed and staring blankly upwards. 
He felt no curiosity at all about R.A.B. He doubted that he would ever feel curious again. As he lay there, he became aware suddenly that the grounds were silent. Forks had stopped singing. And he knew, without knowing how he knew it, that the phoenix had gone, had left Hogwarts for good, just as Dumbledore had left the school, had left the world, had left Harry. Chapter 30 The White Tomb All lessons were suspended, all examinations postponed. Some students were hurried away from Hogwarts by their parents over the next couple of days. The Patil twins were gone before breakfast on the morning following Dumbledore's death, and Zacharias Smith was escorted from the castle by his haughty-looking father. Seamus Finnegan, on the other hand, refused point-blank to accompany his mother home. They had a shouting match in the entrance hall that was resolved when she agreed that he could remain behind for the funeral. She had difficulty in finding a bed in Hogsmeade, Seamus told Harry and Ron, for wizards and witches were pouring into the village, preparing to pay their last respects to Dumbledore. Some excitement was caused among the younger students, who had never seen it before, when a powder-blue carriage the size of a house, pulled by a dozen giant-winged palominos, came soaring out of the sky in the late afternoon before the funeral, and landed on the edge of the forest. Harry watched from a window as a gigantic and handsome, olive-skinned, black-haired woman descended the carriage steps and threw herself into the waiting Hagrid's arms. Meanwhile, a delegation of ministry officials, including the Minister of Magic himself, was being accommodated within the castle. Harry was diligently avoiding contact with any of them. He was sure that sooner or later he would be asked again to account for Dumbledore's last excursion from Hogwarts. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny were spending all of their time together. The beautiful weather seemed to mock them. Harry could imagine how it would have been if Dumbledore had not died, and they had had this time together at the very end of the year. Ginny's examinations finished, the pressure of homework lifted. An hour by hour, he put off saying the thing that he knew he must say, doing what he knew was right to do, because it was too hard to forego his best source of comfort. They visited the hospital wing twice a day. Neville had been discharged, but Bill remained under Madame Pomfrey's care. His scars were as bad as ever. In truth, he now bore a distinct resemblance to Mad-Eye Moody, though thankfully with both eyes and legs. But in personality he seemed just the same as ever. All that appeared to have changed was that he now had a great liking for very rare steaks. So it is lucky he is marrying me said Fleur happily, plumping up Bill's pillows, because the British overcook their meat. I have always said this. I suppose I'm just going to have to accept that he really is going to marry her, sighed Ginny later that evening, as she, Harry, Ron and Hermione sat beside the open window of the Gryffindor common room, looking out over the twilight grounds. She's not that bad, said Harry. Ugly, though, he added hastily as Ginny raised her eyebrows and she let out a reluctant giggle. Well, I suppose if Mum can stand it, I can. Anyone else we know died? Ron asked Hermione, who was perusing the evening prophet. Hermione winced at the forced toughness in his voice. No, she said reprovingly, folding up the newspaper. They're still looking for Snape, but no sign. Of course there isn't, 
said Harry, who became angry every time this subject cropped up. They won't find Snape till they find Voldemort, and seeing as they've never managed to do that in all this time. I'm going to go to bed, yawned Ginny. I haven't been sleeping that well since, well, I could do with some sleep. She kissed Harry. Ron looked away pointedly, waved at the other two, and departed for the girls' dormitories. The moment the door had closed behind her, Hermione leaned forward toward Harry with the most Hermione-ish look on her face. Harry, I found something out this morning in the library. R.A.B., said Harry, sitting up straight. He did not feel the way he had so often felt before, excited, curious, burning to get to the bottom of a mystery. He simply knew that the task of discovering the truth about the real Horcrux had to be completed before he could move a little farther along the dark and winding path stretching ahead of him, the path that he and Dumbledore had set out upon together, and which he now knew he would have to journey alone. There might still be as many as four Horcruxes out there somewhere, and each would need to be found and eliminated before there was even a possibility that Voldemort could be killed. He kept reciting their names to himself, as though by listing them, he could bring them within reach. The locket, the cup, the snake, something of Gryffindor's or Ravenclaw's. The locket, the cup, the snake, something of Gryffindor's or Ravenclaw's. This mantra seemed to pulse through Harry's mind as he fell asleep at night, and his dreams were thick with cups, lockets, and mysterious objects that he could not quite reach, though Dumbledore helpfully offered Harry a rope ladder that turned to snakes the moment he began to climb. He had shown Hermione the note inside the locket the morning after Dumbledore's death, and although she had not immediately recognized the initials as belonging to some obscure wizard about whom she had been reading, she has since been rushing off to the library a little more often than was strictly necessary for somebody who had no homework to do. No, she said sadly. I've been trying, Harry, but I haven't found anything. There are a couple of reasonably well-known wizards with those initials. Rosalind Antigone Bungs, Rupert Axbanger Brooke Stanton, but they don't seem to fit at all. Judging by that note, the person who stole the Horcrux knew Voldemort and I can't find a shred of evidence that Bungs or Axe Banger ever had anything to do with him. No, actually, it's about, well, Snape. She looked nervous, even saying the name again. What about him? asked Harry heavily, slumping back in his chair. Well, it's just that I was sort of right about the Half-Blood Prince business, she said tentatively. Do you have to rub it in, Hermione? How do you think I feel about that now? No, no, Harry, I didn't mean that, she said hastily, looking around to check that they were not being overheard. It's just that I was right about Eileen Prince once owning the book. You see, she was Snape's mother. I thought she wasn't much of a looker, said Ron. Hermione ignored him. I was going through the rest of the old prophets, and there was a tiny announcement about Eileen Prince marrying a man called Tobias Snape, and then later an announcement saying that she'd given birth to a... Murderer, spat Harry. Well, yes, said Hermione, so I was sort of right. Snape must have been proud of being half a prince, you see. Tobias Snape was a muggle, from what it said in the prophet. Yeah, that fits, said Harry. 
He'd play up the pure blood side so he could get in with Lucius Malfoy and the rest of them. He's just like Voldemort, pure blood mother, muggle father, ashamed of his parentage, trying to make himself feared using the dark arts, gave himself an impressive new name, Lord Voldemort. The half-blood prince. How could Dumbledore have missed? He broke off, looking out the window. He could not stop himself dwelling upon Dumbledore's inexcusable trust in Snape. But as Hermione had just inadvertently reminded him, he, Harry, had been taken in just the same. In spite of the increasing nastiness of those scribbled spells, he had refused to believe ill of the boy who had been so clever, who had helped him so much. Helped him? It was an almost unendurable thought now. I still don't get why he didn't turn you in for using that book, said Ron. He must have known where you were getting it all from. He knew, said Harry bitterly. He knew when I used Sectum Sempra. He didn't really need legitimacy. He might even have known before then, with Slughorn talking about how brilliant I was at potions. Shouldn't have left his old book in the bottom of that cupboard, should he? But why didn't he turn you in? I don't think he wanted to associate himself with that book, said Hermione. I don't think Dumbledore would have liked it very much if he'd known. And even if Snape pretended it hadn't been his, Slughorn would have recognized his writing at once. Anyway, the book was left in Snape's old classroom, and I'll bet Dumbledore knew his mother was called Prince. I should have shown the book to Dumbledore, said Harry. All that time he was showing me how Voldemort was evil, even when he was at school, and I had proof Snape was too. Evil is a strong word said Hermione quietly. You were the one who kept telling me the book was dangerous. I'm trying to say, Harry, that you're putting too much blame on yourself. I thought the prince seemed to have a nasty sense of humor, but I would never have guessed he was a potential killer. None of us could have guessed Snape would, you know, said Ron. Silence fell between them, each of them lost in their own thoughts, but Harry was sure that they, like him, were thinking about the following morning, when Dumbledore's body would be laid to rest. He had never attended a funeral before. There had been no body to bury when Sirius had died. He did not know what to expect, and was a little worried about what he might see, about how he would feel. He wondered whether Dumbledore's death would be more real to him once it was over. Though he had moments when the horrible fact of it threatened to overwhelm him, there were blank stretches of numbness where, despite the fact that nobody was talking about anything else in the whole castle, he still found it difficult to believe that Dumbledore had really gone. Admittedly, he had not, as he had with Sirius, looked desperately for some kind of loophole, some way that Dumbledore would come back. He felt in his pocket for the cold chain of the fake Horcrux, which he now carried with him everywhere, not as a talisman, but as a reminder of what it had cost and what remained still to do. Harry rose early to pack the next day. The Hogwarts Express would be leaving an hour after the funeral. Downstairs he found the mood in the great hall subdued. Everybody was wearing their dress robes, and no one seemed very hungry. Professor McGonagall had left the throne-like chair in the middle of the staff table empty. Hagrid's chair was deserted, too. Harry thought that perhaps he had not been able to face breakfast. But Snape's place had been unceremoniously filled by Rufus Scrimgeour. Harry avoided his yellowish eyes as they scanned the hall. 
Harry had the uncomfortable feeling that Scrimjaw was looking for him. Among Scrimjaw's entourage, Harry spotted the red hair and horn-rimmed glasses of Percy Weasley. Ron gave no sign that he was aware of Percy, apart from stabbing pieces of Kipper with unwanted venom. Over at the Slytherin table, Crab and Goyle were muttering together. Hulking boys though they were, they looked oddly lonely without the tall, pale figure of Malfoy between them, bossing them around. Harry had not spared Malfoy much thought. His animosity was all for Snape, but he had not forgotten the fear in Malfoy's voice on that tower top, nor the fact that he had lowered his wand before the other Death Eaters arrived. Harry did not believe that Malfoy would have killed Dumbledore. He despised Malfoy still for his infatuation with the Dark Arts, but now the tiniest drop of pity mingled with his dislike. Where, Harry wondered, was Malfoy now? And what was Voldemort making him do under threat of killing him and his parents? Harry's thoughts were interrupted by a nudge in the ribs from Ginny. Professor McGonagall had risen to her feet, and the mournful hum in the hall died away at once. It is nearly time, she said. Please follow your heads of houses out into the grounds. Gryffindors, after me. They filed out from behind their benches in near silence. Harry glimpsed Slughorn at the head of the Slytherin column, wearing magnificent long emerald green robes embroidered with silver. He had never seen Professor Sprout, head of the Hufflepuffs, looking so clean. There was not a single patch on her hat, and when they reached the entrance hall, they found Madame Pince standing beside Filch, she in a thick black veil that fell to her knees, he in an ancient black suit and tie, reeking of mothballs. They were heading, as Harry saw, when he stepped out onto the stone steps from the front doors toward the lake. The warmth of the sun caressed his face as they followed Professor McGonagall in silence to the place where hundreds of chairs had been set out in rows. An aisle ran down the center of them. There was a marble table standing at the front, all chairs facing it. It was the most beautiful summer's day. An extraordinary assortment of people had already settled into half of the chairs, shabby and smart, old and young. Most Harry did not recognize, but a few he did, including members of the Order of the Phoenix, Kingsley Shacklebolt, Mad-Eye Moody, Tonks, her hair miraculously returned to vividest pink, Remus Lupin, with whom she seemed to be holding hands, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, Bill, supported by Fleur and followed by Fred and George, who were wearing jackets of black dragon skin. Then there was Madame Maxime, who took up two and a half chairs on her own. Tom, the landlord of the Leaky Cauldron in London. Arabella Fig, Harry's squib neighbor. The hairy bass player from the wizarding group The Weird Sisters. Ernie Prang, driver of the night bus. Madame Malkin of the robe shop in Diagon Alley and some people whom Harry merely knew by sight, such as the barman of the Hogshead and the witch who pushed the trolley on the Hogwarts Express. The castle ghosts were there too, barely visible in the bright sunlight, discernible only when they moved, shimmering insubstantially on the gleaming air. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny filed into seats at the end of a row beside the lake. People were whispering to each other. It sounded like a breeze in the grass but the bird's song was louder by far. The crowd continued to swell. With a great rush of affection for both of them, 
Harry saw Neville being helped into a seat by Luna. Neville and Luna alone of the DA had responded to Hermione's summons the night that Dumbledore had died, and Harry knew why. They were the ones who had missed the DA most, probably the ones who had checked their coins regularly in the hope that there would be another meeting. Cornelius Fudge walked past toward the front rows, his expression miserable, twirling his green bowler hat as usual. Harry next recognized Rita Skeeter, who, he was infuriated to see, had a notebook clutched in her red-taloned hand, and then, with a worse jolt of fury, Dolores Umbridge, an unconvincing expression of grief upon her toad-like face, a black velvet bow set atop her iron-colored curls. At the sight of the centaur Ferenzi, who was standing like a sentinel near the water's edge, she gave a start and scurried hastily into a seat a good distance away. The staff was seated at last. Harry could see Scrimjaw looking grave and dignified in the front row with Professor McGonagall. He wondered whether Scrimjaw or any of these important people were really sorry that Dumbledore was dead. But then he heard music, strange, otherworldly music, and he forgot his dislike of the ministry in looking around for the source of it. He was not the only one. Many heads were turning, searching, a little alarmed. In there, whispered Ginny in Harry's ear, and he saw them in the clear green sunlit water, inches below the surface, reminding him horribly of the Inferi, a chorus of merpeople singing in a strange language he did not understand, their pallid faces rippling, their purplish hair flowing all around them. The music made the hair on Harry's neck stand up, and yet it was not unpleasant. It spoke very clearly of loss and of despair. As he looked down into the wild faces of the singers, he had the feeling that they at least were sorry for Dumbledore's passing. Then Ginny nudged him again, and he looked around. Hagrid was walking slowly up the aisle between the chairs. He was crying quite silently, his face gleaming with tears, and in his arms, wrapped in purple velvet spangled with golden stars, was what Harry knew to be Dumbledore's body. A sharp pain rose in Harry's throat at this sight. For a moment, the strange music and the knowledge that Dumbledore's body was so close seemed to take all warmth from the day. Ron looked white and shocked. Tears were falling thick and fast into both Ginny's and Hermione's laps. They could not see clearly what was happening at the front. Hagrid seemed to have placed the body carefully upon the table. Now he retreated down the aisle, blowing his nose with loud trumpeting noises that drew scandalized looks from some, including, Harry saw, Dolores Umbridge. But Harry knew that Dumbledore would not have cared. He tried to make a friendly gesture to Hagrid as he passed, but Hagrid's eyes were so swollen it was a wonder he could see where he was going. Harry glanced at the back row to which Hagrid was heading and realized what was guiding him. For there, dressed in a jacket and trousers each the size of a small marquee, was the giant Grawp, his great ugly boulder-like head bowed, docile, almost human. Hagrid sat down next to his half-brother, and Grawp patted Hagrid hard on the head so that his chair legs sank into the ground. Harry had a wonderful momentary urge to laugh. But then the music stopped, and he turned to face the front again. A little tufty-haired man in plain black robes had got to his feet and stood now in front of Dumbledore's body. Harry could not hear what he was saying, 
Odd words floated back to them over the hundreds of heads. Nobility of spirit, intellectual contribution, greatness of heart. It did not mean very much. It had little to do with Dumbledore as Harry had known him. He suddenly remembered Dumbledore's idea of a few words. Nitwit, oddment, blubber, and tweak. And again had to suppress a grin. What was the matter with him? There was a soft splashing noise to his left, and he saw that the mer-people had broken the surface to listen to. He remembered Dumbledore crouching at the water's edge two years ago, very close to where Harry now sat, and conversing in Mermish with the mer-chieftainess. Harry wondered where Dumbledore had learned Mermish. There was so much he had never asked him, so much he should have said. And then, without warning, it swept over him, the dreadful truth more completely and undeniably than it had until now. Dumbledore was dead. Gone. He clutched the cold locket in his hands so tightly that it hurt, but he could not prevent hot tears spilling from his eyes. He looked away from Ginny and the others and stared out over the lake toward the forest as the little man in black droned on. There was movement among the trees. The centaurs had come to pay their respects too. They did not move into the open, but Harry saw them standing quite still, half hidden in shadow, watching the wizards, their bows hanging at their sides. And Harry remembered his first nightmarish trip into the forest, the first time he had ever encountered the thing that was then Voldemort, and how he had faced him, and how he and Dumbledore had discussed fighting a losing battle not long thereafter. It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight, and fight again and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. And Harry saw very clearly as he sat there under the hot sun how people who cared about him had stood in front of him one by one, his mother, his father, his godfather, and finally Dumbledore, all determined to protect him. But now that was over. He could not let anybody else stand between him and Voldemort, he must abandon forever the illusion he ought to have lost at the age of one, that the shelter of a parent's arms meant that nothing could hurt him. There was no waking from his nightmare, no comforting whisper in the dark that he was safe, really, that it was all in his imagination. The last and greatest of his protectors had died, and he was more alone than he had ever been before. The little man in black had stopped speaking at last and resumed his seat. Harry waited for somebody else to get to their feet. He expected speeches, probably from the minister, but nobody moved. Then several people screamed. Bright white flames had erupted around Dumbledore's body and the table upon which it lay. Higher and higher they rose, obscuring the body. White smoke spiraled into the air and made strange shapes. Harry thought for one heart-stopping moment that he saw a phoenix fly joyfully into the blue, but next second the fire had vanished. In its place was a white marble tomb, encasing Dumbledore's body and the table on which he had rested. There were a few more cries of shock as a shower of arrows soared through the air, but they fell far short of the crowd. It was, Harry knew, the centaur's tribute. He saw them turn tail and disappear back into the cool trees. Likewise, the mer-people sank slowly back into the green water and were lost from view.
Harry looked at Ginny, Ron, and Hermione. Ron's face was screwed up as though the sunlight were blinding him. Hermione's face was glazed with tears, but Ginny was no longer crying. She met Harry's gaze with the same hard, blazing look that he had seen when she had hugged him after winning the Quidditch Cup in his absence, and he knew that at that moment they understood each other perfectly, and that when he told her what he was going to do now, she would not say, be careful, or don't do it, but accept his decision, because she would not have expected anything less of him. And so he steeled himself to say what he had known he must say ever since Dumbledore had died. Ginny, listen, he said very quietly, as the buzz of conversation grew louder around them and people began to get to their feet. I can't be involved with you any more. We've got to stop seeing each other. We can't be together. She said with an oddly twisted smile, It's for some stupid, noble reason, isn't it? It's been like, like something out of someone else's life these last few weeks with you, said Harry. But I can't. We can't. I've got things to do alone now. She did not cry. She simply looked at him. Voldemort uses people his enemies are close to. He's already used you as bait once, and that was just because you're my best friend's sister. Think how much danger you'll be in if we keep this up. He'll know. He'll find out. He'll try and get to me through you. What if I don't care? said Ginny fiercely. I care, said Harry. How do you think I'd feel if this was your funeral and it was my fault? She looked away from him over the lake. I never really gave up on you, she said. Not really. I always hoped. Hermione told me to get on with life, maybe go out with some other people, relax a bit around you, because I never used to be able to talk if you were in the room, remember? And she thought you might take a bit more notice if I was a bit more myself. Smart girl, that Hermione, said Harry, trying to smile. I just wish I'd asked you sooner. We could have had ages, months, years, maybe. But you've been too busy saving the wizarding world, said Ginny, half laughing. Well, I can't say I'm surprised. I knew this would happen in the end. I knew you wouldn't be happy unless you were hunting Voldemort. Maybe that's why I like you so much. Harry could not bear to hear these things, nor did he think his resolution would hold if he remained sitting beside her. Ron, he saw, was now holding Hermione and stroking her hair while she sobbed into his shoulder, tears dripping from the end of his own long nose. With a miserable gesture, Harry got up, turned his back on Ginny and on Dumbledore's tomb, and walked away around the lake. Moving felt much more bearable than sitting still just as setting out as soon as possible to track down the Horcruxes and kill Voldemort would feel better than waiting to do it. Harry! He turned. Rufus Scrimjaw was limping rapidly toward him around the bank, leaning on his walking stick. I've been hoping to have a word. Do you mind if I walk a little way with you? No, said Harry indifferently, and set off again. Harry... This was a dreadful tragedy, said Scrimjaw quietly. I cannot tell you how appalled I was to hear of it. Dumbledore was a very great wizard. We had our disagreements, as you know, but 
No one knows better than I. What do you want? asked Harry flatly. Scrimjaw looked annoyed, but as before, hastily modified his expression to one of sorrowful understanding. You are, of course, devastated, he said. I know that you were very close to Dumbledore. I think you may have been his favorite pupil ever. The bond between the two of you. What do you want? Harry repeated, coming to a halt. Scrimgeour stopped, too, leaned on his stick, and stared at Harry, his expression shrewd now. The word is that you were with him when he left the school the night that he died. Whose word? said Harry. Somebody stupefied a Death Eater on top of the tower after Dumbledore died. There were also two broomsticks up there. The Ministry can add two and two, Harry. Glad to hear it, said Harry. Well, where I went with Dumbledore and what we did is my business. He didn't want people to know. Such loyalty is admirable, of course, said Scrimgeour, who seemed to be restraining his irritation with difficulty. But Dumbledore is gone, Harry. He's gone. He will only be gone from the school when none here are loyal to him, said Harry, smiling in spite of himself. My dear boy, even Dumbledore cannot return from the... I am not saying he can. You wouldn't understand. But I've got nothing to tell you. Scrimgeour hesitated, then said in what was evidently supposed to be a tone of delicacy, The Ministry can offer you all sorts of protection, you know, Harry. I would be delighted to place a couple of my aurors at your service. Harry laughed. Voldemort wants to kill me himself, and aurors won't stop him, so... Thanks for the offer, but no thanks. So, said Scrimgeour, his voice cold now, the request I made of you at Christmas. What request? Oh, yeah, the one where I tell the world what a great job you're doing in exchange for... For raising everyone's morale, snapped Scrimgeour. Harry considered him for a moment. Released Stan Shunpike yet? Scrimgeour turned a nasty purple color, highly reminiscent of Uncle Vernon. I see you are Dumbledore's man through and through, said Harry. That's right. Scrimgeour glared at him for another moment, then turned and limped away without another word. Harry could see Percy and the rest of the Ministry delegation waiting for him, casting nervous glances at the sobbing Hagrid and Grawp, who were still in their seats. Ron and Hermione were hurrying toward Harry, passing Scrimgeour going in the opposite direction. Harry turned and walked slowly on, waiting for them to catch up, which they finally did in the shade of a beech tree, under which they had sat in happier times. What did Scrimgeour want? Hermione whispered. Same as he wanted at Christmas, shrugged Harry. Wanted me to give him inside information on Dumbledore and be the Ministry's new poster boy. Ron seemed to struggle with himself for a moment, then he said loudly to Hermione, Look, let me go back and hit Percy. No, she said firmly, grabbing his arm. It'll make me feel better. Harry laughed. Even Hermione grinned a little, though her smile faded as she looked up at the castle. I can't bear the idea that we might never come back, she said softly. How can Hogwarts close? Maybe it won't, said Ron. We're not in any more danger here than we are at home, are we? 
Everywhere's the same now. I'd even say Hogwarts is safer. There are more wizards inside to defend the place. What do you reckon, Harry? I'm not coming back, even if it does reopen, said Harry. Ron gaped at him, but Hermione said sadly, I knew you were going to say that. But then what will you do? I'm going back to the Dursleys once more because Dumbledore wanted me to, said Harry. But it'll be a short visit and then I'll be gone for good. But where will you go if you don't come back to school? I thought I might go back to Godric's Hollow, Harry muttered. He had had the idea in his head ever since the night of Dumbledore's death. For me, it started there, all of it. I've just got a feeling I need to go there. And I can visit my parents' graves. I'd like that. And then what? said Ron. Then I've got to track down the rest of the Horcruxes, haven't I? said Harry, his eyes upon Dumbledore's white tomb, reflected in the water on the other side of the lake. That's what he wanted me to do. That's why he told me all about them. If Dumbledore was right, and I'm sure he was, there are still four of them out there. I've got to find them and destroy them, and then I've got to go after the seventh bit of Voldemort's soul, the bit that's still in his body, and I'm the one who's going to kill him. And if I meet Severus Snape along the way, he added, so much the better for me, so much the worse for him. There was a long silence. The crowd had almost dispersed now, the stragglers giving the monumental figure of Grawp a wide berth as he cuddled Hagrid, whose howls of grief were still echoing across the water. We'll be there, Harry, said Ron. What? At your aunt and uncle's house, said Ron. And then we'll go with you, wherever you're going. No, said Harry quickly. He had not counted on this. He had meant them to understand that he was undertaking this most dangerous journey alone. You said to us once before, said Hermione quietly, that there was time to turn back if we wanted to. We've had time, haven't we? We're with you, whatever happens, said Ron. But mate... You're going to have to come round my mum and dad's house before we do anything else, even Godric's Hollow. Why? Bill and Fleur's wedding, remember? Harry looked at him, startled. The idea that anything as normal as a wedding could still exist seemed incredible, and yet wonderful. Yeah, we shouldn't miss that, he said finally. His hand closed automatically around the fake Horcrux. But in spite of everything, in spite of the dark and twisting path he saw stretching ahead for himself, in spite of the final meeting with Voldemort he knew must come, whether in a month, in a year, or in ten, he felt his heart lift at the thought that there was still one last golden day of peace left to enjoy with Ron and Hermione. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was read by Jim Dale. Text copyright J.K. Rowling 2005. Recording copyright Listening Library 2005. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Digitally remastered by Pottermore at Pinewood Studios in 2015. Pottermore is the digital entertainment, news and e-commerce company from J.K. Rowling. 
inspired by her Harry Potter books and the wider wizarding world. Pottermore is a place for Harry Potter fans to be entertained and discover more of the wizarding world they love through Pottermore.com experiences or products including Harry Potter ebooks, digital audiobooks, and more. Harry Potter characters, names, and related indicia are trademarks and copyright of Warner Brothers Entertainment. The story continues. Find out what happens next in this preview of the digital audiobook Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by J.K. Rowling. Text copyright J.K. Rowling 2007. Recording copyright Listening Library 2007. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Chapter 1. The Dark Lord Ascending. The two men appeared out of nowhere, a few yards apart in the narrow, moonlit lane. For a second, they stood quite still, wands directed at each other's chests. Then, recognizing each other, they stowed their wands beneath their cloaks and started walking briskly in the same direction. News? asked the taller of the two. The best, replied Severus Snape. The lane was bordered on the left by wild, low-growing brambles, on the right by a high, neatly manicured hedge. The men's long cloaks flapped around their ankles as they marched. Thought I might be late, said Yaxley, his blunt features sliding in and out of sight as the branches of overhanging trees broke the moonlight. It was a little trickier than I expected, but I hope he will be satisfied. You sound confident that your reception will be good. Snape nodded, but did not elaborate. They turned right into a wide driveway that led off the lane. The high hedge curved with them, running off into the distance beyond the pair of impressive wrought iron gates barring the men's way. Neither of them broke step. In silence, both raised their left arms in a kind of salute and passed straight through, as though the dark metal were smoke. The yew hedges muffled the sound of the men's footsteps. There was a rustle somewhere to their right. Yaxley drew his wand again, pointing it over his companion's head, but the source of the noise proved to be nothing more than a pure white peacock strutting majestically along the top of the hedge. He always did himself well, Lucius. Peacocks. Yaxley thrust his wand back under his cloak with a snort. A handsome manor house grew out of the darkness at the end of the straight drive, lights glinting in the diamond-paned downstairs windows. Somewhere in the dark garden beyond the hedge, a fountain was playing. Gravel crackled beneath their feet as Snape and Yaxley sped toward the front door, which swung inward at their approach, though nobody had visibly opened it. The hallway was large, dimly lit, and sumptuously decorated with a magnificent carpet covering most of the stone floor. The eyes of the pale-faced portraits on the walls followed Snape and Yaxley as they strode past. The two men halted at a heavy wooden door leading into the next room, hesitated for the space of a heartbeat. Then Snape turned the bronze handle. The drawing room was full of silent people sitting at a long and ornate table. The room's usual furniture had been pushed carelessly up against the walls. Illumination came from a roaring fire beneath a handsome marble mantelpiece surmounted by a gilded mirror. 
Snape and Yaxley lingered for a moment on the threshold. As their eyes grew accustomed to the lack of light, they were drawn upward to the strangest feature of the scene, an apparently unconscious human figure hanging upside down over the table, revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope and reflected in the mirror and in the bare, polished surface of the table below. None of the people seated underneath this singular sight was looking at it except for a pale young man sitting almost directly below it. He seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upward every minute or so. Yuxley! Snape! said a high, clear voice from the head of the table. You are very nearly late. The speaker was seated directly in front of the fireplace, so that it was difficult, at first, for the new arrivals to make out more than his silhouette. As they drew nearer, however, his face shone through the gloom, hairless, snake-like, with slits for nostrils and gleaming red eyes whose pupils were vertical. He was so pale that he seemed to emit a pearly glow. Severus, here, said Voldemort, indicating the seat on his immediate right. Yaxley, beside Dolohov. The two men took their allotted places. Most of the eyes around the table followed Snape, and it was to him that Voldemort spoke first. So, my lord, the Order of the Phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next, at nightfall. The interest around the table sharpened palpably. Some stiffened, others fidgeted, all gazing at Snape and Voldemort. Saturday, at nightfall, repeated Voldemort. His red eyes fastened upon Snape's black ones with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that they themselves would be scorched by the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Good, very good. And this information comes from the source we discussed, said Snape. My lord? Yaxley had leaned forward to look down the long table at Voldemort and Snape. All faces turned to him. My lord, I have heard... Differently. Yaxley waited, but Voldemort did not speak, so he went on. Dawlish, the Auror, let slip that Potter will not be moved until the 30th, the night before the boy turns 17. Snape was smiling. My source told me that there are plans to lay a false trail. This must be it. No doubt a confundus charm has been placed upon Dawlish. It would not be the first time. He is known to be susceptible. I assure you, my lord, Dawlish seemed quite certain, said Yaxley. If he has been confounded, naturally he is certain, said Snape. I assure you, Yaxley, the Auror Office will play no further part in the protection of Harry Potter. The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. 
The order's got one thing right then, eh? Said a squat man sitting a short distance from Yaxley. He gave a wheezy giggle that was echoed here and there along the table. Voldemort did not laugh. His gaze had wandered upward to the body revolving slowly overhead, and he seemed to be lost in thought. My lord, Yaxley went on, Dolish believes an entire party of auras will be used to transfer the boy. Voldemort held up a large white hand, and Yaxley subsided at once, watching resentfully as Voldemort turned back to Snape. Where are they going to hide the boy next? At the home of one of the order, said Snape. The place, according to the source, has been given every protection that the Order and Ministry together could provide. I think that there is little chance of taking him once he is there, my lord, unless, of course, the Ministry has fallen before next Saturday, which might give us the opportunity to discover and undo enough of the enchantments to break through the rest. Well, Yaxley. Voldemort called down the table, the firelight glinting strangely in his red eyes. Will the Ministry have fallen by next Saturday? Once again, all heads turned. Yaxley squared his shoulders. My lord, I have good news on that score. I have, with difficulty and after great effort, succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. Many of those sitting around Yaxley looked impressed. His neighbor, Dolohov, a man with a long, twisted face, clapped him on the back. It is a start, said Voldemort. But thickness is only one man. Scrimger must be surrounded by our people before I act. One failed attempt on the minister's life will set me back a long way. Yes, my lord, that is true. But, you know, as head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, Thickness has regular contact not only with the minister himself, but also with the heads of all the other ministry departments. It will, I think, be easy now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control to subjugate the others, and then they can all work together to bring Scrimger down. As long as our friend Thickness is not discovered before he has converted the rest, said Voldemort. At any rate, it remains unlikely that the Ministry will be mine before next Saturday. If we cannot touch the boy at his destination, then it must be done while he travels. We are at an advantage there, my lord said Yaxley, who seemed determined to receive some portion of approval. We now have several people planted within the Department of Magical Transport. If Potter apparates or uses the flu network, we shall know immediately. He will not do either, said Snape. The Order is eschewing any form of transport that is controlled or regulated by the Ministry. They mistrust everything to do with the place. All the better, said Voldemort. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take by far. Again, Voldemort looked up at the slowly revolving body as he went on. I shall attend to the boy in person.
There have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. That Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. The company around the table watched Voldemort apprehensively, each of them, by his or her expression, afraid that they might be blamed for Harry Potter's continued existence. Voldemort, however, seemed to be speaking more to himself than to any of them, still addressing the unconscious body above him. I have been careless, and so have been thwarted by luck and chance, those wreckers of all but the best laid plans. But I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter, and I shall be. At these words, seemingly in response to them, a sudden wail sounded, a terrible, drawn-out cry of misery and pain. Many of those at the table looked downward, startled, for the sound had seemed to issue from below their feet. Wormtail, said Voldemort, with no change in his quiet, thoughtful tone and without removing his eyes from the revolving body above. Have I not spoken to you about keeping our prisoner quiet? Yes, my lord, gasped a small man halfway down the table who had been sitting so low in his chair that it had appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. As I was saying, continued Voldemort, looking again at the tense faces of his followers, I understand better now. I shall need, for instance, to borrow a wand from one of you before I go to kill Potter. The faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced that he wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no reason for you to have a wand anymore. Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord, your wand, Lucius. I require your wand. I... Malfoy glanced sideways at his wife. She was staring straight ahead, quite as pale as he was, her long blonde hair hanging down her back, but beneath the table her slim fingers closed briefly on his wrist. At her touch, Malfoy put his hand into his robes, withdrew a wand, and passed it along to Voldemort, who held it up in front of his red eyes, examining it closely. What is it? Helm, my lord, whispered Malfoy. And the core? Dragon. Dragon heartstring. Good, said Voldemort. He drew out his own wand and compared the lengths. Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement, for a fraction of a second, it seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wand in exchange for his own. The gesture was not missed by Voldemort, whose eyes widened maliciously. Give you my wand, Lucius, my wand? 
some of the throngs sniggered. I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is that not enough for you? But I have noticed that you and your family seem less than happy of late. What is it about my presence in your home that displeases you, Lucius? Nothing. Nothing, my lord. Such lies, Lucius. The soft voice seemed to hiss on, even after the cruel mouth had stopped moving. One or two of the wizards barely repressed a shudder as the hissing grew louder. Something heavy could be heard sliding across the floor beneath the table. The huge snake emerged to climb slowly up Voldemort's chair. It rose seemingly endlessly and came to rest across Voldemort's shoulders, its neck the thickness of a man's thigh, its eyes with their vertical slits for pupils, unblinking. Voldemort stroked the creature absently with long, thin fingers, still looking at Lucius Malfoy. Why do the Malfoys look so unhappy with their lot? Is my return, my rise to power, not the very thing they profess to desire for so many years? Of course, my lord, said Lucius Malfoy. His hands shook as he wiped sweat from his upper lip. We did desire it. We do. To Malfoy's left, his wife made an odd, stiff nod, her eyes averted from Voldemort and the snake. To his right, his son Draco, who had been gazing up at the inert body overhead, glanced quickly at Voldemort and away again, terrified to make eye contact. My lord, said a dark woman halfway down the table, her voice constricted with emotion. It is an honor to have you here in our family's house. There can be no higher pleasure. She sat beside her sister, as unlike her in looks, with her dark hair and heavily lidded eyes, as she was in bearing and demeanor. Where Narcissa sat rigid and impassive, Bellatrix leaned toward Voldemort, for mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. No higher pleasure, repeated Voldemort, his head tilted a little to one side as he considered Bellatrix. That means a great deal, Bellatrix, from you. Her face flooded with color. Her eyes welled with tears of delight. My lord knows I speak nothing but the truth. No higher pleasure. Even compared with the happy event that I hear has taken place in your family this week. She stared at him, her lips parted, evidently confused. I don't know what you mean, my lord. I'm talking about your niece, Bellatrix, and yours, Lucius and Narcissa. She has just married the werewolf, Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. There was an eruption of jeering laughter from around the table. Many leaned forward to exchange gleeful looks. A few thumped the table with their fists. The great snake, disliking the disturbance, opened its mouth wide and hissed angrily. But the Death Eaters did not hear it, so jubilant were they at Bellatrix and the Malfoys' humiliation. Bellatrix's face, so recently flushed with happiness, had turned an ugly, blotchy red. 
She is no niece of ours, my lord, she cried over the outpouring of mirth. We, Narcissa and I, have never set eyes on our sister since she married the mudblood. This brat has nothing to do with either of us, nor any beast she marries. What say you, Draco? asked Voldemort, and though his voice was quiet, it carried clearly through the catcalls and jeers. Will you babysit the cubs? The hilarity mounted. Draco Malfoy looked in terror at his father, who was staring down into his own lap, then caught his mother's eye. She shook her head almost imperceptibly, then resumed her own deadpan stare at the opposite wall. Enough, said Voldemort, stroking the angry snake. Enough! And the laughter died at once. Many of our oldest family trees become a little diseased over time, he said, as Bellatrix gazed at him, breathless and imploring. You must prune yours, must you not, to keep it healthy. Cut away those parts that threaten the health of the rest. Yes, my lord, whispered Bellatrix, and her eyes swam with tears of gratitude again. At the first chance, you shall have it, said Voldemort, and in your family, so in the world. We shall cut away the canker that infects us until only those of the true blood remain. Voldemort raised Lucius Malfoy's wand, pointed it directly at the slowly revolving figure suspended over the table, and gave it a tiny flick. The figure came to life with a groan and began to struggle against invisible bonds. Do you recognize our guest, Severus? asked Voldemort. Snape raised his eyes to the upside-down face. All of the Death Eaters were looking up at the captive now, as though they had been given permission to show curiosity. As she revolved to face the firelight, the woman said in a cracked and terrified voice, Severus, help me. Ah, yes, said Snape, as the prisoner turned slowly away again. And you, Draco? asked Voldemort, stroking the snake's snout with his wand-free hand. Draco shook his head jerkily. Now that the woman had woken, he seemed unable to look at her any more. But you would not have taken her classes, said Voldemort. For those of you who do not know, we are joined here tonight by Charity Burbage, who, until recently, taught at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. There were small noises of comprehension around the table. A broad, hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. Yes, Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles, how they are not so different from us. One of the Death Eaters spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape again. Severus, please. Please, silence, said Voldemort with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity fell silent as if gagged. 
Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of wizarding children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet. Wizards, she says, must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic. The dwindling of the purebloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. She would have us all mate with muggles, or, no doubt, werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. There was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice. For the third time, Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape. Tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair. Snape looked back at her, quite impassive, as she turned slowly away from him again. Avada Kedavra! The flash of green light illuminated every corner of the room. Charity fell with a resounding crash onto the table below, which trembled and creaked. Several of the Death Eaters leapt back in their chairs. Draco fell out of his onto the floor. Dinner, Nagi said Voldemort softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulders onto the polished wood.